Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being broadcast live and recorded live at 10.51 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. October 23rd, 2022 is the date right now. We do have a free roll. You have to get in there real quickly because it started at 10.30. I was a bit later getting the show going than I expected, so I started the free roll 10.30. I could have stopped it when I noticed we were starting later than 10.30, but I just didn't. I just let it go because... I didn't want to make people who had progress and had won some chips to start all over. It's kind of demoralizing, and it's kind of late anyway, so, you know, it'll be a small field. Whoever wins, wins. Whoever doesn't, doesn't, and we're giving away $50 this week, which is our minimum. We sometimes give away more. Sometimes it's 50. Sometimes it's way more than 50. Sometimes it's a little more than 50, but it's always at least 50 if we have a free roll, which is just about every time we do the show. And this week, the money came from Singles Hitter. So thank you to him. $50 from Singles Hitter. We still have $23 left to give away. So I appreciate that donation from him. We still have some more money to give away in the future. So I thank all the donors to this site over our 10 and a half year history. The free roll is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You needed a validated and verified account to play the free roll. If you don't have that by now, then you're not getting in this week. But if you sign up on the No Fraud Online Poker Room and it does not get validated and verified, you can let me know Dan Space Druff on the forum. That's Dan Druff with a space in between. And I will get it validated or you can message the poker room administrator for the moment, Belly Buster, who's been running it all this time, and he can validate you, but soon I will be taking it over myself and taking over the expense and everything else. I do thank Belly Buster for all the time and money he put into running this thing with really nothing in return. He's just a nice, generous guy, and you know, it's just time to turn it over because uh, he's done it for enough years. I'd say that more than a decade is uh, quite enough so I'm very grateful for what he did. And at some point, I'll make the announcement that it is under my control. And at that point, it'll be uh, another expense out of the Jew wallet for this site. But that's okay. This is a not-for-profit site. And if you're new here, you may notice that even though we have a very, very, very long show, I'm talking about every week, we go like five to eight hours usually, sometimes even more than eight. And yet, you don't hear any ads for sponsors. Why is that? That's because we don't have any sponsors. And the bad side of that is that I don't get paid anything for doing this show. The good side is that I don't have to worry about anything I say. And I would never take a sponsor that would attempt to control what I say. The only monetization on this site, and it's very small, I can't stress how small it is. It does not cover the expenses. But we have a banner at the bottom for Amazon that if you click on it will give me a percentage of whatever you buy. So when people go down and click on it, then it will give me some small percentage of the purchase. I won't see who you are, but I will get that small percentage. I appreciate that small amount of revenue, but that's all we have here. This is a site not only not for profit, but it's a site that loses money kind of intentionally. Though I would take a sponsor as long as it's not one that I'd have to worry about interfering with my objectivity and my ability to say what I want and piss off who I want. 
I thank our listeners for giving all these generous donations. And I want to talk about one in particular today because it happened today. Daly, who is a longtime member of the site and listener to this show, and I've met him in person, he had won some money in the free rolls on this site, and he decided to take $100 that was owed to him and had me place a bet on a golfer to win the tournament that was concluding today. He did not have me place this bet for his benefit. He did this for the site. So the attempt here was for uh, Kurt Kitayama, who is a long shot to win the event that concluded today. And if he were to win, we would get paid $9,000, which would have ended up in one of my sportsbook accounts. So this was a golf tournament known as the CJ, and it concluded today. And if the $9,000 was won because of Kurt Kitayama winning the event, then he was going to donate the entire 9000 to putting someone in the World Series of Poker main event in 2023. And that's really generous. Yes, I know that the main event is 10000 but we would have found a way to come up with the other 1000 That wouldn't have been tough, obviously. And then we were going to put in somebody to the main event from Poker Fraud Alert. There would have been some kind of uh, contest or something to figure out who that would be. It was not going to be me. I was going to buy myself in and play for myself, but someone from the site was going to get put in with that money. Now, this seemed like a long shot, but Kurt Kitayama had a very good tournament, and he was right up there on the leaderboard in the top few spots the entire way for that three-day tournament. And coming into the final rounds, it was pretty much going to be him or Rory McIlroy. So it was very exciting. Very exciting, and unfortunately, McElroy, who was favored over Kitayama, who's, uh, as I said, one of the long-shot golfers, McElroy ended up being the winner, and unfortunately, the $100 did not turn into anything, but it came really, really close. That was an excellent pick by Daly, and it really came that close, a 90-to-1 shot to win $9,000 that would have gone to a member of this site to play the World Series of Poker main event. And this isn't a huge site. This isn't like we're going to give it to one out of 100,000 people. This is a fairly small site. And there would have been very strict rules as to who would qualify. You couldn't just show up and say, hey, I want it to be me. You'd have to be someone who's known around here. So I really suggest that you participate in the forum. And if you don't like the flying stupidity portion of the forum, which is the most active part because there's some trolling and some... uh, rude behavior, so to speak, even towards me. If you don't like that sort of thing, don't worry. We have various other sections of the forum where I don't allow any kind of trolling. So you can post in any other portion of the site if you don't want to be part of all that trolling-type posting. And if you do like the trolling-type posting, then you can go to the Flying Stupidity Forum and have at it. But there's always generous contests held, not with my money, not with my... Jew Wallet's money, but uh, from other people who donate their money and their expertise and their time to putting on contests for people who participate on the site. And usually there's some sort of requirement that you have to be a known person on the forum or something along those lines. 
So show up there and start posting. And it's a community that they're very generous to one another. And that's why we get donate donations to the free roll every week from people who just want to do it to be helpful. Because this money's not going to me. It's going to the people who play the free roll for this show. We do have kind of two separate communities, the radio listeners and the forum members. There are some who do both. There are some regular forum posters who listen to the show regularly. But for the most part, most of the people active on the forum don't listen to this show like really actively. They'll listen once in a while, some of them, but a lot of them don't listen very much. And then we have radio listeners who really don't participate in the forum. In fact, many don't even read the forum. And that's fine. If you don't want to be part of the forum, don't want to read the forum, that's obviously up to you. But a lot of times I will tie the eligibility into the free money we give away to having a forum account registered by a certain date or by number of quality posts in the forum or something like that. So that's just my little speech in case you want to check out the forum. And as I said, there's sections of it where only serious posts are allowed. So you don't have to worry about being trolled or anything like that if that's not your thing. Anyway, if you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also text that number at any time before, during, or after the show, 775-372-8355. I usually will respond to you. If you text during the show, then I may read it on the air unless you ask me not to. For example, there's someone who is frustrated they did not get into the free roll because I didn't start the show fast enough and he forgot to register. This is someone in the 773. He texted me, for fuck's sake, I forgot to re-register because you didn't have your shit together. God bless it. So this person was not very happy, but nevertheless, I read it here on this show because uh, I don't hide things like that. It, it is true that I started later than expected. I take the responsibility for that. But you can text me anytime. Never too late, never too early. And if there's something you want to say to me, then just go ahead and say it. Please try to be respectful. You're welcome to criticize the show. You're welcome to say, I didn't like this, I didn't like that. You can even say, hey, you know what? The show was much better last year, or it was much better in 2019, now it sucks. You can say that too. Or you can tell me positive things. You can tell me what you'd liked, what you'd like to hear more of, whatever. I always like to get feedback, and I like to get honest feedback, so I can try to do the best show possible. Because the show is for the listeners. It is not for me to hear myself talk. If there were no listeners, then I would not do this show. We have a call to listen line, which is very simple. You just call it up and you listen. It works with any device. It does not ever buffer. It does not ever freeze. It does not require a computer or the internet. It does not require a smartphone or an app or even a data plan. And if you have one bar on your phone because you're driving through the mountains, no problem. It'll still work and it won't buffer. It won't freeze. That phone number is 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189. It is not a way to interact with me because I cannot hear you. You can only hear me, but it's a way to listen to the show. 518-931-1189. It is a free call if you can call within the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case there will be one cent a minute, which I do not get. I showed Benjamin the call to listen line this week. I either hadn't showed it to him before or he forgot 
but he told me he wasn't aware of it. So I showed him the call to listen line, and he thought it was very interesting. And the big question he had, and, and you know, he's internet savvy, as you might expect. He's 12 years old. You might uh, guess that he knows a lot about the internet and streaming media and all that. So the thing that fascinated him the most was the fact that it doesn't buffer or freeze. And he said, how do you do that? And I said, it's my secret. But don't you hate buffering and freezing when you try to watch things that are streaming? And he said, yes. And I said, exactly. So I made sure the call to listen line never buffers and never freezes. 518-931-1189. The Mount Charleston line is another way to call the show. 702-430-1808. Just like the main number, except you can't text it. 702-430-1808. It's located on a cabin on top of Mount Charleston, which is located near Las Vegas, about 40 minutes away by car. About 30 degrees cooler there than Las Vegas at all times. We will see snow there fairly soon. Las Vegas is starting to cool down, as you might imagine, here on October 23rd. By the way, if you win anything in the free roll, I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by cryptocurrency, or other methods you might be able to think of. I probably will pay out a batch of winners before November 1st. So here is the agenda, and then we will get going. If you're listening live, you are welcome to go into the chat room, by the way. I'm going to give you even more coverage of the Garrett Adelstein cheating allegations against Robbie Jade Lou on Hustler Casino Live, because more has happened. This is like a story that just does not quit. Now, eventually, we're going to run out of things to say about it, and eventually I'm going to get so bored of it that I'm not going to talk about it much unless something major happens. But this is one of the biggest stories in poker of all time. So it does deserve getting substantial airtime. With that said, as you probably noticed, last week we did some other topics in addition to this, and the week before it was entirely that topic. So this week we are also going to cover this topic for a while, but we're going to cover more other topics after. So we're getting less and less each week with how much it dominates the show. And if you don't like this topic, if you're sick of it, then just wait until it comes out in the archives. Because, you know, this show, we're available on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, iHeartMedia, Spotify, the Bullhorn app, Audible, and Amazon Alexa, you can say Alexa Play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. A lot of different ways to listen to the show. You can even click on the MP3 file that I provide in the Radio Archives forum here, and you can listen to the show on any device. So if you do it that way rather than listen live, then all you have to do is click on the timestamp that is past all of the Robbie Jade Lou stuff, which is going to be in the first portion of the show. And then you will not hear about it for the rest of the show. Isn't that nice? But I think most of you are kind of fascinated with this story. I haven't really gotten complaints. I thought maybe I'd have people saying, come on, get on with this. I don't want to hear about this topic anymore. But I actually have gotten compliments about my coverage of this, that it was fair, that it was clear, that it was interesting. So I think people are enjoying it. And it's full of drama, that's for sure. I mean, this really has twists and turns and things you never would expect. We even had something happen today. Perfect timing for the show. I almost did the show yesterday. I said, no, I'll do it on Sunday. Well, that was a good idea because something big happened today. Something I would have never expected. 
So that'll be the first topic we do here, long topic. Then we're going to talk about dog food. Yes, dog food. I have a can of dog food I can't bear to throw away that was from my dog that died more than a year ago. In fact, it's getting close to a year and a half now. still have one can of dog food left. But we're going to talk about dog food because a poker player named Nick Howard claims to have eaten dog food 10 years ago when he was broke after losing his money playing poker. But is that true? We're going to discuss Nick Howard and his dog food. That's our second story. It's a big second story, dog food. A high-stakes poker pro was robbed in the parking lot of Doug Polk's Lodge poker room in Texas. This happened a month ago. In fact, it was a month ago today when it happened. And it has not gotten much coverage, especially because six days later is when the whole Robbie J. Lou controversy happened. So any traction this story was starting to get did not really take... And it wasn't found out right away, so people found out about this, and then very shortly after, there was that hustler hand, and everything changed. But we will discuss this tonight, the poker pro robbed in the parking lot of the lodge. IGT has prevailed in a lawsuit against the DOJ. What are these acronyms? Well, IGT makes machines that you find in casinos all over the country. And the DOJ, of course, is the U.S. Department of Justice. They had a lawsuit against the DOJ regarding the 1961 Wire Act. And I will tell you what that ruling is and how it applies to online poker, because it does have to do with online poker somewhat. A week after PokerGo announced a ban on two accused cheaters, Jake Schindler and Ali Imsrovic, then a guy who admitted he cheated, won one of their events. That's kind of embarrassing. Sean McCormack, who is the sometimes controversial head of the Aria Poker Room in Vegas, has left, but he has moved up the chain in MGM. He has not been fired. I'll tell you what happened there. WSOP.com is now also in Canada, but it's not .com over there. It's .ca. So I'll tell you about WSOP.ca and how the software is something quite notable. It's not the software you're used to on WSB.com. And it says something about the future. Finally, I had a request. I had a request for a Zed Run update. Remember Zed Run? Those NFT horses that I got into last year? I haven't talked much about Zed Run recently, but someone wanted an update on Zed Runs. And they want to know how it's going, especially because... Well, if you think about it, NFTs are not what they once were. So I'll tell you how Zed Run is going and whether or not I'm still participating in it. Finally, if we have any time left, then I will discuss a COVID topic, which would be a combination of, number one, should you get the bivalent vaccine? I think that's how you pronounce it. Bivalent, bivalent, I don't know. I've never heard it pronounced. I've seen it written. But should you get that new vaccine? And how much do you have to fear from the new variants like BQ1 and BQ1.1? And are you going to get COVID again if you already got it this summer, such as at the World Series of Poker like I did? So that's our show for tonight. Let's get going. Well, if you have been listening to the last two shows we've done, you've heard a lot of coverage on Robbie Jade Lou, the female poker player who came out of nowhere, appeared on Hustler Casino Live, 
played a hand very strangely against all-star Garrett Adelstein and won despite making a ridiculous call with Jack 4 offsuit with Jack High no draw on a terrible board and winning both runouts because Garrett had a monster draw but was only holding 8 high at the moment and didn't improve with either runout and Robbie Jade Lou won a $269,000 pot. I think that's how much it was. And Garrett immediately thought he got cheated and accused her of cheating. And she gave the money back after being told to go out to the hallway and talk to Garrett about it. I'm sure you've heard the whole story. If you haven't, I'm not going to rehash it because we have hours and hours in the archives where I talk all about it. And then I gave a lot of updates on the story on our last episode, which was on October 14th. So if you want to catch up on it, just go back to the episodes in the archives. There's no point for me to talk about all of that again. So I'm going to continue this right now with the belief that you have listened to the last two episodes about the subject and that either you've heard everything I talked about or you've been following the story yourself and didn't really need my coverage to understand what was going on and that you can follow along if I just pick up on the current events. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time breaking down who these characters are or what they're accused of, blah, blah, blah. You can find all of that in the previous episodes or in the endless coverage all over poker media and even in the mainstream media. So we're going to get right to the story that occurred today, and then we're going to go back to some other stuff that's been occurring in the week and a half since we were last on. Why are we going backwards? Because the most interesting thing happened today, and there's no point to do it in chronological order, because you really don't have to know about anything else that's happened recently to get something out of this story. Some of you might have seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In fact, I assume most of you have because we don't have a young audience. There's a lot of young people, young adults who have not seen the movie. Keep in mind, the movie came out in 1986. So 36-year-olds today were infants when it came out. And people who are 40 were only four years old when it came out. And I bet you didn't see many four-year-olds in the theater when you went to go see this in 1986. So the truth is... You probably have to be around middle age or older to have seen it in the theater the first time, and probably at least in your 30s to have been at least aware enough of the movie to have seen it in some kind of rerun format, whether on video or on TV or whatever. But I assume most of the listeners to this show, who tend to be over 35, have seen the movie. So if you remember in Ferris Bueller's Day Off... It was all about Ferris Bueller ditching school and trying to avoid getting caught. And he was engaging in all kinds of elaborate schemes as he went around Chicago and had a pretty big adventure everywhere with his girlfriend and his best friend. And all the while, he was faking being sick because his parents didn't know that he was a big schemer and they trusted him. He didn't want to lose his parents' trust. So he had this whole scheme so he wouldn't get caught ditching and therefore his parents wouldn't find out that uh, he wasn't the good sweet kid they thought he was. That was the whole movie, as I'm sure you remember. Well, there was one memorable scene. I mean, there were a lot of memorable scenes, but one of them I'm going to talk about here was in 
a baseball stadium. It was in Wrigley Field in Chicago, and he took his friends to go see a Cubs game. However, when a foul ball was hit where he was sitting, they showed him and uh, his friends going for the foul ball, and that appeared on TV. And of all things, the principal, who was looking to catch him because the principal wanted to finally catch Ferris Bueller red-handed so he could prove to his parents what a bad kid he is, the principal looked away for the moment and, and didn't catch him. He just missed catching him on TV. And for some reason, this kind of stuck with me over the years. I always wondered, like, how many people have ever been exposed by coverage on TV at a ball game? Like, for example... What if you are cheating on your wife and you take your girlfriend, which your wife doesn't know exists, to a baseball game, and then of all things, a foul ball is hit in your direction or for whatever reason they show you, and you are seen on TV sitting next to this girl that you're dating behind your wife's back. Even if your wife's not watching, if anyone who knows you is watching who might tell your wife then that could be a way you could get busted cheating. So I've always wondered, like, has there ever been any kind of real-life situation like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Now, Ferris didn't get caught ditching school, but it came very close in the movie. But in real life, has anyone been caught that way? In fact, I even wondered the same thing when, for a while, they were releasing these high-res pictures of the entire stadium at several stadiums around the country, including Dodger Stadium. And in fact, I even found one of a game I was at. And knowing where I had been sitting, I zoomed in and actually found myself. So I thought, that's interesting. Again, what if a wife who suspects her husband is cheating on her and knows where he sits goes and zooms in and... (laughs) You can see pretty clearly, amazingly, because there's like 50-something thousand people in the stadium, but you can zoom in and you can find someone if you know approximately where they're sitting and see who they're with. So I had wondered if that resulted in anyone having an affair. Well, I need to wonder no longer. Remember that when Robbie was on that stream on September 29th, the infamous stream with the Jack Forehand, There was another person on the stream who it turned out she knew, and it turned out was actually backing her. Rip was not revealed as being her backer until Rip got angry at Garrett Adelstein for taking the money back that he had lost in that pot. And then Rip freaked out because, of course, uh, he was backing her here, and he shouted at Garrett, and Garrett hightailed out of there and then when he sat back down people were wondering why was Rip so angry about this even if he's her friend why was he so hopping mad and so finally he just blurted it out and said well why do you think they're angry you know why do you think I'm angry and he's like does anyone at the table know why I'd probably be angry so strangely enough he wasn't hiding it anymore that he was backing her and then she said something like well I guess now they all know now she didn't clarify, but it was pretty obvious, and then she confirmed on Chicago Joey's show that, yes, Rip was backing her in this game, or at least backing her like 50%. Well, Doug Polk put out a claim in one of his videos where he was claiming that he was just about sure Robbie was cheating, 
He was claiming that Rip and Robbie were having a romantic relationship, that they weren't just friends or business associates like they had both claimed when they appeared on Chicago Joey's show. Doug was saying that they are having some kind of romantic relationship and that he got credible information from people in Las Vegas who had seen Robbie and Rip playing poker in the past and said they were acting just like a couple, the way they were sitting together and interacting. Uh, I didn't hear any details. He didn't say that they were seen kissing or groping or whatever, but he said he got credible information that Robbie and Rip were looking just like a couple and acting just like a couple and that he's pretty sure that they are a couple, even though both are married. Now, Robbie's husband came on Chicago Joey's show and he stated that he's not in what he called an L.A. relationship, meaning an open relationship. I'd never heard that term before, and I'm from L.A., but I I don't know. He called it an L.A. relationship. He said he's not in one, that if he is, that it's only one-sided and it would be news to him, and that as far as he knows, that this isn't going on, which was kind of a weird way of putting it. So let's say your wife has a male friend and she spends time with him and you're not present, you're either going to think, yes, my wife is having sex with this male friend of hers, or no, I'm sure she's not. Yeah, there can be a middle ground like, oh, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. I'm a bit worried, but I have no proof. But if this were to come out publicly and you were sure that she was just friends with the guy, and there could be various reasons that you would strongly believe that. It could be that she's not attracted to him. It could be just that you really trust her and that even if uh, she otherwise would mess around with this guy, that she's loyal enough to you that she would never do it. Uh, It could be that the guy is actually gay and nobody knows it. There could be many reasons. I'm not saying Rip is gay, by the way. I do not believe that at all. But there could be a lot of reasons that you would know or be very strong in your belief that your wife is not messing around on you with this male friend she's hanging around with. Now, even if you're wrong, you will at least have that belief. So if you really think it's not happening and you're on a podcast that like tons of people are watching, then if you're asked, is your wife having an affair with this dude? If you really believe the answer is no, you would just say no. You would just say, no, they're just friends. I know what it might look like, but I know the two of them are just friends And I'm not the slightest bit worried about anything going on. It's not what Doug has been saying. Like, that's all you have to say. You don't have to say, well, we're not in an open relationship. We're not in an L.A. relationship. And if we are, it would only be one-sided. It would be news to me. That's like a weird way to put it. Why not just say, no, they're just friends. (laughs) So the way he answered that, it didn't strike me as a totally sincere answer. Yeah, it's possible that it's just a weird way that he put it. But it kind of seemed like that he either knew that they were messing around or he thought it was possible and didn't want to look like a fool later if it turned out that uh, they were messing around. He didn't want to put it out there strongly that he knew they weren't. He wanted to put it out like, well, if you know, I don't know anything about this, so if it's true, then it's news to me. Like That was kind of the way he was answering it, which is kind of a weird way to answer a question of, is your wife messing around with this dude? I did note that at the time. However, there has never been any kind of concrete proof that Robbie and Rip are having any kind of romantic or sexual relationship. And again, I've heard from uh, multiple people that they, quote, know someone who saw evidence that Robbie and Rip were together in some way, but never anything that I could really hang my hat on. 
Now, I'll be honest, I thought it was quite possible, but there wasn't really anything conclusive. Well, today, I wouldn't say something conclusive came out, but they kind of had their Ferris Bueller moment. And then that really kicked off a shitstorm of discussion, and it's looking a hell of a lot more likely that Doug Polk was right. Not 100%, but it's looking a hell of a lot more likely. So here's what's going on. The Las Vegas Raiders, formerly the Oakland Raiders, formerly the Los Angeles Raiders, but currently the Las Vegas Raiders, the NFL team, which now plays in the city of Las Vegas, not a very good team, but nevertheless they play. Uh, They were playing a pretty bad team today. They were playing the Houston Texans, which is a dumb name, by the way, but they're playing the Houston Texans. This was on local TV. The Raiders against the Texans is not a huge game people really wanted to watch because these are two bad teams. And, yeah, there's so many NFL games every day. So this was being shown on CBS Channel 8 in Las Vegas. But Robbie and Rip decided to attend this game. Robbie has been spending a lot of time in Las Vegas for whatever reason. On our last episode... On the day of that episode, she had released the results of her polygraph test, which I already discussed. I'm not going to discuss that again. But she did that in North Las Vegas, which is really weird because she lives in Los Angeles. So why go all the way to North Las Vegas to take a polygraph test, which was one of my questions. But she's been spending a lot of time in Vegas. She played the Bellagio Five Diamond, which I will talk about a little bit later. So she's in Vegas. And the Raiders are playing at home today. So she and Rip decided to take in the football game. So they went to this Raiders home game against the Houston Texans. Now, being that Rip and Robbie have money, they're not going to go sit in the nosebleed seats. So they sat in some pretty good seats. In fact, some very good seats. And when you sit in very good seats close to the field, then you are much more likely to appear on TV. Poor Ferris Bueller, he wasn't in very good seats because Ferris Bueller was a teenager. He couldn't afford to sit right by the field. But a foul ball was hit to him and he almost got caught ditching school. Almost some bad luck for Ferris, the guy who seemingly never has bad luck. But Robbie and Rip were right there. They were right there in some great seats in the field. And sure enough, the camera caught them. So a guy named Jesse Lonis who is from Las Vegas, who is part of the poker community and obviously is very aware of Rip and Robbie. I can always tell when people are going to be aware of a story. I can always tell how big a story is when poker-adjacent people know a lot about it. Like yesterday, I was with somebody who plays poker recreationally, but he doesn't follow poker news very closely. But he knew all about this and was asking me questions and about my opinion and was giving his opinion. So this is a very, very well-known story. Now, this Jesse Lonis is not poker adjacent. He's actually a professional poker player from Las Vegas. And he actually uh, did pretty well in the 2021 main event. So he tweeted today, I can't even get away from this shit during NFL Sundays. And he put laughing emojis. And he showed a six-second video clip of Robbie and Rip sitting 
really, really close to one another at the stadium. And it kind of looks like from the picture that Rip has his arm around Robbie. You can't tell for sure. I've only seen that little clip that Jesse Lonis posted, but they're very close. Like when I go to a baseball game with another dude, I don't sit that way with another dude or even with my son. I don't sit with him this way. Uh, This is the way you sit when you're with a significant other, someone you're dating, someone you're having sex with. They were clearly sitting together, as Doug Polk would put it, looking like a couple. And it really looks like in the position Rip is that he has his arm around her. But you can go take a look at yourself. It's at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Lonis, L-O-N-I-S, Jesse Lonis. On October 23rd, he posted a six-second clip. You can see, you can judge for yourself. It definitely looks like they are sitting together like they're a couple. So he got Ferris Bueller, except this time the principal didn't have his head down. Jesse Lonis caught it, and he put it out there, and it has gone viral. It has 1,422 likes in just seven hours, 121 retweets, and now everyone poker, everyone in poker is talking about it. This is going viral real fast among those who have been following this story. Now some people tried to say, well... These are just two friends at a football game. You could say to me, hey, Druff, haven't you gone to baseball games with male friends? Does that mean you're having sex with your male friends? And I'd say, no, because I don't sit that way with my male friends when I go to any kind of sporting event. We both sit in our chair. We both face forward. We don't lean into one another. I don't have my arm around another dude I go to baseball games with. That's not how it is. So when you're sitting this way, then something is probably going on. Also, noticeably absent from this game are Robbie's husband and Rip's wife. And yes, Rip is married too. In fact, Rip has an infant child with his wife. And his wife is now speaking out. In fact, his wife already was kind of speaking out for the past two weeks, but people didn't know who she was, so they weren't seeing it. But now... I can see everything. So this has really ignited the discussion on poker Twitter about Rip and Robbie. And it's not just about their personal lives. It also comes to how much you trust what Robbie had to say. The way she was characterizing Rip as just a friend and business partner. If this really is a person that she is dating in some kind of relationship with then it would be more likely that if she was cheating, then he would probably be involved. Now, it could be that she was not cheating, in which case, obviously, he wasn't involved. And it has been verified by several parties now that Rip was not originally planned to be in that game. Ryan Feldman has verified it. Nick Airball has verified it. And yeah, they could all be getting together to tell the same story. But I do believe that Rip was a last-minute addition to the game. So... I know people are talking about Rip as giving nonverbal signals to Robbie in the game. I don't really believe that. I think people are stretching. They're just looking for anything they can find. And, hey, look, I'll tell you that when I have been at the table with friends, they will shoot me a look not to try to tell me what they have or what I have, 
but just kind of like related to someone uh, putting on a stupid play there. Like we don't want to say out loud, hey, look at this fish in C3, but he'll kind of like give me a look when the C3 does something stupid. Or, uh, you know, maybe they'll shoot me a look quickly if they're re-raising somebody. I'm not in the hand. Like I'm, I'm just kind of watching as I've already folded and they're re-raising somebody. They'll shoot me a look like, uh, you know, that they, they really have it or whatever. Like friends will do this here where there's nothing wrong. Like you can shoot a look to somebody else in the hand or someone else at the table who's not in the hand who's a friend of yours and it's fine because they can't affect the hand. It's only a problem if you're giving looks to someone to give them a signal about uh, information they shouldn't have. But if you're in the hand yourself and or if you're not in the hand, you're looking at the person like kind of wondering what they're doing in a certain hand. There's nothing wrong with that. It happens all the time with friends at the table who are not cheating at all. So I wouldn't look at anything that Rip is doing with Robbie at the table and say that's suspicious. But I would say it's a hell of a lot more likely now, like by a pretty wide margin, that they are in some kind of dating relationship. And that does at least say that, number one, she wasn't honest about this, and number two, anything that was happening, they were probably doing together. And by the way... Remember, it has been suggested, for example, from uh, one of our listeners, Patrick from Minnesota, that maybe this whole thing was really just a way to get her noticed in the poker world and on social media. And maybe with Rip being in that world, because remember, he has been associated with Jake Paul for a while, maybe this was his idea to get her on there and make a move against Garrett. And it just was unfortunate that she made a dumb move that looked like it was cheating when it wasn't. So that would mean that he had planned with her for her to do this, but that wouldn't mean there was any cheating. That just meant that they were talking about trying to make some kind of big move against Garrett to get attention. So it could be a lot of things. But let's get back to the whole marital aspect to this story. Now, you could say this isn't our business, and it isn't, but in another way it is, because when you have thrust yourself into the public eye, and for sure she has, because you can say, well, she didn't expect it to become something like this. She was just going there to play poker. Well, first of all, she went on a high-stakes stream that is very, very well-watched. It is the best-watched poker stream in the world presently. So by going on there, you're already making yourself somewhat of a public figure. But second of all, she hasn't hid from this. She is appearing on Chicago Joey's show over and over. She's constantly talking about this on social media. She's hired a PR firm to try to parlay this into internet fame. So this is definitely someone who wants to be talked about. So, okay, I'm talking about her. So definitely talking about her personal life is fair game here. And by extension, talking about Rip's personal life is fair game here. Now, I know there are two other individuals involved, one of whom did appear on Chicago Joey's show and one who, one of whom did not, uh, her husband and his wife. And it is unfortunate for them that they're getting dragged into this. But you know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> Sometimes when someone gets themselves noticed by the public, the spouse can't just not be part of it. So one of the spouses is speaking up now, and it's not Charles Liu, who has been quite silent through this whole thing. 
Because as I said, you look at this video, and even though it's only six seconds, it just really looks like they are at this game like a boyfriend and girlfriend would be. It looks just like that by the way they're sitting. I would be shocked if the way they are there, that they're just friends. I don't have it 100%, but I'd be pretty damn shocked at this point. I think you would be too if you took a look at this video, which you might have already. But what about Rip's wife? Who is she? And what is she saying? Well, I'll give Rip credit. He has a pretty attractive wife. Her name is Savannah Hale. And she's on Twitter as S-A-V-N Hale. So it's kind of like abbreviation of Savannah. S-A-V-N Hale. She lists herself as dancer. Now, I have learned from my years of living in Las Vegas that dancer equals stripper. However, I think that's actually not true here. I can't say for sure, but on her Instagram, that same screen name, S-A-V-N Hale, that's where she actually lists herself as dancer. On Twitter, it doesn't say dancer. But then I look at her Instagram and I actually see real dancing, like not stripping. I see her and other girls dancing and not in a strip club environment. So maybe she is just a regular dancer. I don't know like what she's actually doing to support herself because you can say you're a dancer, but someone has to pay you to dance. But anyway, she's an attractive girl and she has a lot of pictures of herself on Instagram. Again, it's Instagram.com slash S-A-V-N Hale. Keep in mind, I got to warn you people about this because I know a lot of my listeners are old, like I am. I'm kind of old too, but I know a lot of you are old to me, even older than me. So I know some of you aren't that familiar with Instagram. You probably know what it is, but you probably don't use it much. I don't use it much because, to be honest, I kind of feel too old for Instagram. I don't really feel like I fit in there. I don't really have a need for it. But if you're not that familiar with it, you may look at a girl's pictures on Instagram and go, oh my God, this girl's like a perfect 10. She's gorgeous. I've never seen a girl this pretty. Well, there's a reason for that. Just about every Instagram model's pictures are filtered. Filtered means that they run it through a program which smooths out any blemishes and really makes you look like a much more attractive version of yourself. The filters are very, very effective at doing that. I have had complaints for male friends on dating apps, especially male friends around my age, that they'll see a girl who's like, I guess not a girl, a woman who's 45 and just looks gorgeous for 45. You know, this girl looks like she's 26. And I'm sent a picture and, wow, look how hot this chick is. And she's talking to me and she likes me. We're going to meet up on Saturday. And I go, you better get some real pictures. Oh, no, these are real pictures. I go, no, 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 no. The, these are not real pictures. These are filtered pictures. So that's why she looks so young. So she might still be pretty when you see the real her, but I bet you'll see she doesn't look anything like this. She'll look pretty for a 45-year-old maybe, but she won't look 26. So whenever you see a picture of an older woman who isn't a celebrity, who looks impossibly young, it's almost always through a filter. And even young women use filters. In fact, they use them more often than older women because they just like filtering their pictures and looking even better than they already look. Even if they're very pretty, even if they're you know 25 and very attractive, they will still filter their pictures to look even better. So I've seen pictures of Savannah Hale, both filtered and unfiltered, 
and the unfiltered ones, you can see she's an attractive woman, but they don't compare to the filtered ones. So I just, just to throw that out there that don't get too excited when you look at her Instagram. But nevertheless, I will say that uh, Rip did well for herself, himself, at least uh, looks wise with Savannah Hale. She is an attractive woman. She looks like she's a good deal younger than he is. I don't know how old he is, but I'm kind of guessing he's around Robbie's age. She is 38. He kind of looks around 38. I never looked up his age, but that's kind of what I'm putting him at. Maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger. That's kind of where I'm guessing he's at. So, okay. He's married to this Savannah Hale person. I don't know if that's her real name. And she's an attractive woman. And they have a little infant together and there's tons of pictures of Savannah and her baby on Instagram, even some on Twitter. And that in fact was one of the defenses that was being used as to why Rip is not having an affair. I think Robbie's husband even said that, that this is not only something that's being said, that's making him and Robbie look bad, but it's something that is making him look like a cheater on his wife with a little baby when he's not, when he's a good family man who has uh, a little infant kid. And how can you put this out there about him? Because it's not fair. And, you know, that was a good point at the time. I thought, yeah, you know what? If Robbie and Rip are just friends, yeah, it's kind of not fair to put this out there that they're cheating on their respective spouses. And he's got this little infant at home if he's totally innocent and not messing around with Robbie. But now that I have seen some things, I don't think it's really that unfair anymore. So what happened here with Savannah Hale? Because she is commenting on this. Did she see the appearance of Rip and Robbie on TV? Maybe watching herself. Maybe she found it on Twitter. And did that open her eyes that her husband's unfaithful? No. She has actually been tweeting about her husband being unfaithful, not directly, but very strongly indirectly, for the past two weeks. Let me give you the timeline. September 29th was when the infamous stream occurred, the Jack 4 stream, September 29th. And then October 9th, she started tweeting things very strongly indicating that her husband is cheating on her. And now today is October 23rd, exactly two weeks later, and they are seen together at the Raiders game. On October 9th, Savannah Hale, who at the time was not being followed by any poker players to my knowledge, I don't think anyone knew that she was married to Rip. They knew Rip was married with an infant, but I don't think anyone bothered to look up who that was. I know I didn't. She tweeted on... October 9th, listen to your heart. It knows all things. Okay, that's kind of cryptic, and that can mean a lot of things. It could even mean something not related to romance. It could be about a friend. It could be about a career opportunity. It could be about family. It can be about a lot of things. Listen to your heart. It knows all things. But it does kind of imply something about romance. Listen to your heart. Let's move on. On the same day, October 9th, she tweeted or she retweeted a person named Mind Haste who said, Trust your gut, it's rarely wrong. Trust your gut, it's rarely wrong. Well, again, that 
doesn't directly say anything about cheating, but now trust your gut, and she's retweeting that this person saying this, is pretty much saying that she must have been suspicious of something and now has gotten confirmation in some way that her suspicion was correct, which would fit into the timeline, right? September 29th is when all this stuff happens with Rip and Robbie. She starts to get suspicious. Okay, maybe there is a relationship. Maybe she even saw Doug Polk's video. Who knows? And he probably assured her this wasn't true. And then something happened on October 9th, and she believed that that she had figured out that Rip was uh, cheating on her. But okay, let's get more current. Three days ago, October 20th, now she writes herself, always, always, always trust your gut. This is no longer retweeting someone. She's now saying herself on October 20th, always, always, always trust your gut. Then she retweeted this. Never, ever lose yourself again for anyone. That's not her words, but she's retweeting it from someone named Moral Philosophy. Well, that is really, really now looking like dissatisfaction with a romantic partner. Never lose yourself again for anyone. That's a common theme when people split up is someone, often the female, will say that they lost themselves, they changed themselves, they suppressed themselves for a man and then he ended up being no good and they regretted what they had sacrificed or given up of themselves to make him happy. So never ever lose yourself again for anyone. Again, these weren't her words, but she was retweeting it. Is strongly implying like she f- feels that she's she lost herself in some way for Rip and now is regretting it. But then we get to something more explicit. That's, shall I say, explicitly said, not explicit, sexually. She retweeted a guy named Smoove, And the tweet said, cheating equals the end of relationship. No discussion. Well, well, when a married woman retweets, cheating equals end of relationship, no discussion. That's pretty clear what she's unhappy about, right? You don't see a happily married woman retweeting that one, especially after all that other stuff I read you. Well... Today, she decided to jump feet first into the controversy. So someone sarcastically said in response to the video of Rip and Robbie at the game, this person named Mello25 said, that doesn't look like her husband, LOL, referring to Rip. And then Savannah Hale popped in and tweeted back, that's my husband. Uh-oh. Then someone named Supreme LA Poker tweeted, again in response to that video, Damn, rip from Savannah to that? Referring to the person's belief that Savannah was a lot more attractive than Robbie. That's a super mean downgrade. That's like trading in a new Ferrari for a Yugo. Damn, I'll give rip my optometrist phone number. <laughs> so he feels that rip needs glasses if he's gone from Savannah to... Robbie. So then Savannah responded, not agreeing, not disagreeing, but she did respond just with an at Jacob Rip Chavez, which is his Twitter name, Jacob Rip Chavez. So she wanted him to see it. She wanted him to see that this guy was pointing out that this was a downgrade 
going from Savannah to Robbie. Notice Savannah didn't say, oh, no, 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 he's not cheating on me. Or, oh, no, no, they're just friends. He's like, wow, that's a big downgrade. And she's like, yeah, at Jacob Ribs Chavez, take a look at this. (laughs) Melissa Schubert, who is one of the co-hosts on Matt Berkey's Only Friends show on YouTube, she said to Savannah, girl, you are so hot, you deserve better. And then Savannah Hale said, you are too, mama. Now, the reason that's significant is not that Savannah was complimenting Melissa back, but that, again, she wasn't disputing that she deserved better. She's like, yeah, yeah, I agree. I deserve better. And yeah, Melissa, you're hot, too. (laughs) Then uh, Jared Smith, a pro player in Vegas, took a still shot of Robbie or of, of Rip gazing into Robbie's eyes and tweeted, find someone that looks at you the way Rip looks at Robbie. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, looks like an affair is probably happening. We don't have any footage of them kissing or anything making it 100%, but the chance that there's any kind of romance or sexual behavior between the two has gone way, way up after seeing that little clip that was on CBS Channel 8 in Las Vegas. If only one of the two of them was old enough to have seen Ferris Bueller. I bet neither of them saw Ferris Bueller or they would not have done this. You don't show up at a stadium where people are going to recognize you. The truth is people could have recognized them at the stadium and even said something. So that was stupid in itself. But something is going to be televised and you're sitting right in the front with someone that you're not supposed to be there with in that way. I mean, if they just sat with their faces forward, like two friends together, then that's one thing. But that's not the way they were sitting. In case you're wondering, Robbie has not tweeted about this at all, nor has Rip. They have not explained this. In fact, Robbie, who's been tweeting a storm ever since all this happened, has not tweeted at all today. So that's pretty indicative that she was not expecting this to be seen. It's the latest uh, twist here. And I don't think this was intentional. It could have been intentional, but I don't think this is intentional. I think they just wanted to go and have nice seats at the Raiders game and just didn't think of this happening. Which is kind of stupid, but that's what happened. I remember in... I don't know, 2005, 2006. It was not not too long after I won my bracelet, and I was getting a lot better known in poker and around Las Vegas, and it was strange. I would walk around, and people would know who I was. I'm not talking about in a poker room or a casino. I mean, just like around Las Vegas. I'd go to the supermarket. The checker would say, hey, Todd, how's poker going lately? And I'd just have randoms coming up to me talking about poker. And I was a little bit uncomfortable because I felt like Everything I did was always being watched. Everything I said, everything I did, that there were people all around who knew who I was. And I thought, well, shit, I'm not a celebrity, but this is kind of how they feel, but to a much higher degree. And this was only in Vegas. Like, if I went to any other city, including L.A., then it was nothing like this. But in Vegas, like in the mid-2000s, there were a lot of people who knew me around town just for my poker play and because poker was so big in the mid-2000s. So how 
someone like Robbie, who is so much not only in poker news but in mainstream news, can go to this game and not think anyone will talk about the way she's acting there with Rip. I don't know unless they just don't care about it being found. But if they don't care about it being found, then why has Robbie not talked about it today on Twitter? I'm really interested to see what she says next and what Rip says next. And definitely his wife is going off here. Looks like his wife believed she found evidence of cheating two weeks ago, presumably with Robbie, been tweeting about it ever since then. And then the first thing she actually tweeted today in response to that video was just the word embarrassing. And then she put at Jacob Rip Chavez. She's already telling him right away that he's embarrassing himself to do this. Let's take a look at the text we received so far on 775-372-8355. From the 530, to me, it looks like he has his hand on her breast. As far as why she went to Vegas for the lie detector, because that lie detector guy has specific training to get people exonerated. I mean, does he? I don't know. I didn't look into the guy. But I did find it very suspicious, as I said last week, that she took a lie detector test in North Las Vegas when she lives in L.A., and it was arranged by her PR firm. There were a lot of elements to that, as I mentioned last week, that just didn't sit well with me. The only thing I was wrong about, and I took some heat for this on Twitter, the only thing I was wrong about was the number of questions. I said, why did she only answer three questions? It turns out, and I learned this new, I had not known this before, that you only answer three or four what they call relevant questions on a lie detector test, meaning ones that they're looking to see the answers to. The rest of them are control questions like how old are you, what's your name, is your hair blue? So they're trying to ask you questions you're going to say yes and no so they can get a baseline of how to compare your relevant answers to those. And they can only ask like three or four relevant questions because of the stuff they have hooked up to you, I guess it's not good for your body to be hooked up too long. So they really can only ask three or four questions. Then they have to end it and do another test if they have more questions than that. So her only answering three questions is not suspicious. But the fact that she knew them in advance is a little suspicious. And the fact that her PR firm did the whole thing is a lot suspicious. And the fact that she went all the way to North Las Vegas to do it is especially suspicious. And I mentioned all that last week. And the fact that she only answered three questions and it turned out that was fine. That doesn't negate the rest of my points. But idiots on Twitter are like, oh, oh, look, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I go, no, no, no. Look, my main points still stand that a, a lie detector test that you took 300 miles from home arranged by your PR firm is weird and suspicious and should be ignored. Anyway, I couldn't see his hand on her breast. I can see how it kind of looks like that. It's kind of hard to tell from this angle. But it does look to me, the way he's sitting, and I think I even get like a brief glimpse of some kind of hand like on her shoulder on the other side. It really looks like he's got his arm around her. And if not, it looks like their body is making some kind of contact and he's leaning in towards her. It just really has the look of two people who are there with a romantic relationship. Okay, so moving on to the next Robbie topic. I mentioned last week that there were some allegations against Ryan Feldman, who is one of the two owners of Hustler Casino Live, and that he answered those allegations on 2 Plus 2. And his answers weren't bad, and it's possible that he was telling the truth. He also 
since then has appeared on Chicago Joey's show to defend himself. So he hasn't been hiding from these allegations. I'll give him that. I also revealed on last week's show, and in fact, Ryan even messaged me to ask me about uh, this. So he either heard the show or someone told him about it. But I told him honestly, privately, and I'll say it publicly, that the information I revealed last week that a guy came up to me during the World Series and told me pretty much what that Reddit post that I read to you last week said, but this was told to me in the summer, and the person who gave it to me told me, you know, they gave me no proof. They told me things, but they gave me no proof, so I wasn't going to come out there and make these allegations about Ryan when just some random dude tells me this is the World Series. The person who told me I did not know him, I had never met him before, and he said he doesn't even listen to the show much. He said his friend listens a lot, but he knew who I was and wanted to tell me about it. And I revealed this on last week's show. And I said to Ryan, I don't know who this is. I have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> and that's the truth. If someone held a gun to my head and said, who was this guy who told you this? I wouldn't be able to tell this person, even with a gun to my head, because I don't know. And to be honest, at the time, it wasn't that interesting. It was just kind of, okay, well, this guy obviously either doesn't like Ryan or has been told bad things about Ryan and wanted me to hear it. But without proof... You know, what can I do with it? I hear bad things about people all the time. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. So to me, it wasn't a big event. I didn't report it anywhere or tell anyone. I'm not going to just go repeat unfounded rumors. I told the story last week because it was already told on Reddit and Ryan acknowledged the concerns and uh, answered to the allegations so at that point, it definitely was fair game for me to discuss what had happened in the summer. But I didn't have any kind of groundbreaking information. I basically just had the information months ago without any kind of verification. So I never brought it up. The only interesting thing was this was told to me months ago. But somebody else has since shown up on Reddit and made more allegations towards Ryan Feldman and his time at Live at the Bike. So this was posted on October 19th. Remember the Reddit stuff I read you, which then also made its rounds on Twitter, was from a while before that. That's why it made it onto the last show we did on October 14th. And now this is a second post on October 19th, which I have not talked about on the show, obviously. And I'm going to read it to you. This person made a burner account to post this this person made no secret that it was a burner account. It was on the R Poker subreddit section of Reddit. And this person called themselves HCL Throwaway, meaning Hustler Casino Live Throwaway. So it's basically a throwaway account to post about Hustler Casino Live. So whoever posted this did not want their identity known. They didn't want this associated with any other posts they've made on Reddit in the past. This is what they wrote. I worked at the bike with Ryan Feldman. He has lied time and time again about the circumstances surrounding his departure from the casino, meaning the bicycle club, and live at the bike. There was a comment from this subreddit that made the rounds on Twitter and 2plus2 regarding the events and circumstances surrounding Ryan's time at the bicycle casino and about his former roommate known as Ludacris. No, it wasn't me, and no, I don't know who it was. So basically, this guy is saying that he's completely different from the guy who made the other Reddit post, and that this guy's just adding to it. 
but that this person worked at the bike with Ryan Feldman. He just won't say who he is. Now, of course, we don't have proof that this person really worked at the bike with Ryan Feldman. This could be a troll making all this up. This could be a guy who hates Ryan making all this up. So you do have to take these into consideration as well. And I'm not just saying this to cover my ass legally or anything. I'm saying that, honestly, when an anonymous person with a throwaway account that they actually call HCL throwaway shows up to Reddit and posts a bunch of allegations, you do have to say, okay, well, this is an anonymous person. We can't verify they really work there, and therefore we have to take all this with a grain of salt. So please keep that in mind as I read this. So he writes, I worked at the Bicycle Casino and was familiar with some of the day-to-day operations of Live at the Bike before and after Ryan Feldman became involved. Because many of the parties involved are unable to comment or unwilling to go through the social media circus like others in the Jack Ford debacle, and because I am personally not under an NDA, meaning non-disclosure agreement, I felt compelled to speak up and shed light on the matter. First, I want to refute the idea that Chris, meaning Ludacris, the guy who is accused in the first Reddit post of cheating on Live at the Bike with the help of Ryan, was good for the game or for the show at that time. He presented himself as a grinder and was known as a nit and an action killer. If the table called for a round of straddles, he would routinely be the one to not straddle. A straddle is where you put out pretty much like a blind raise from the under the gun position, which is one away from the blinds. So it's almost like an extra blind there and it creates action. Because, of course, if someone has to put in a blind raise, then they could have any hand. It could be a good hand. It could be an okay hand. It could be a total trash hand. So then people will typically re-raise the straddle if they have anything decent, and that creates a lot of action. So this guy's saying that this ludicrous was not good for a stream like Life of the Bike because when everyone agrees to straddle, he'd be the one going, no, no, I don't really want to do it. And then sometimes if one guy won't straddle, then the rest of the table won't because it's kind of unfair if everyone's straddling except one guy. So basically, this poster is making the case that ludicrous on Life of the Bike was just a very conservative, tight player who wouldn't do anything like straddle and therefore was bad for the show. The bomb pot story with his weak excuse was also fairly well known, but I don't know how many times this actually happened. He was pretty antisocial and had a reputation for being abrasive at the table the rare times he would speak. The current version of, quote, ludicrous may not be the same as back then, and I don't know with certainty if he was a net winner or loser in those games. But from 2017 to 2019, he was certainly not the type of guy you wanted at your table. So the case this guy's trying to make here is that Ludacris getting in that game was not because Ryan knew him and said, oh, this guy's going to be a really fun dude to have at the table. The allegation is that Ryan put his buddy into the game because he wanted to help him some way, where at best he's putting him in with an easy lineup to beat uh, because it's his friend, and at worst it's someone that... Uh, is being given information he shouldn't have. But it's definitely not because Ludacris was fun for the table or for the stream because this guy's alleging that Ludacris was very boring and an action killer and the exact opposite of who he'd want on the stream. Around 2016, Ryan Feldman periodically commentated Live at the Bike shows and eventually became the manager who put lineups for the games together. There was sort of a honeymoon period between Ryan and the owners from 2017 to 2018 while he was managing the show but wasn't a full owner. Thanks to him, Live of the Bike started spreading bigger games, which was also a point of contention due to security and other concerns. Viewership was steadily increasing, which was nice, but the priority at the time was the local player pool who came to the casino and regularly filled seats. Now, this is true. Live of the Bike 
was very different for many years than Hustler Casino Live presently is. Hustler Casino Live, you need the producers of the show to give you permission to be on. You can't just get on a list to be on Hustler Casino Live. You have to get permission from Ryan or Nick, the owners of it, to put you in the game because you bring something to the table, whether it's your looks, your personality, your poker play, meaning you're probably bad, uh, or at least very aggressive and willing to put in action. There's got to be some reason that they're willing to put you on. Now, yeah, they will put in people that they personally like just as a favor to them, but for the most part, they're trying to put together the most interesting game possible, not the game with the very best players. Which is fine. It's an entertainment product they can put together who they want in the game. But this guy is saying here that this kind of changed at Live at the Bike also in the period around 2018 where instead of just people showing up at the bike and getting on a list to be in the Live at the Bike game that you actually had to be invited into it for some of these high-stakes games. Before Ryan, player selection for these games was mostly first-come, first-served like a regular table at the casino. The games were smaller back then, and some regs, meaning regulars, basically always had a seat ready for them. But after Ryan came in, he started soft-banning players both in big games and games as small as 510. So we were all wondering, why would Ryan push Chris, an awkward antisocial action killer with little to no history or rapport, so hard into these lineups? They were roommates and friends with each other, which would normally have not been a huge problem. But players within the pool didn't like playing with Chris, and many expressed concerns about angle shoots, nonspecific dodgy plays, and favoritism on Ryan's part. Viewers would question the roommate connection whenever it came up in chat, but they would mostly just complain that Chris was boring. Okay, let me stop here. So, I noticed something in this paragraph I just read you. The word dodgy. If you're not from England, if you're not Colonel Fabersham or one of his friends, how often do you use the word dodgy? D-O-D-G-Y. Well, I, I, I use it quite a lot. Um, you know, if something just doesn't seem quite right to me, I say, yeah, this is on the dodgy side. This is a dodgy game. This is a dodgy bloke. But Americans don't use the term dodgy. Now, it has been used before by Americans. I've seen Americans use it before. It's not that common. So this does make me suspect that this Reddit poster might not actually be a former Live at the Bike employee because it could be someone trying to sound like an American and then they let the dodgy things slip. It's kind of like uh, someone pretending like they're an American and then saying, yeah, so uh, back in 1990, I went to university. And like, wait a minute, Americans don't call it university, they call it college. You must be from Canada or Europe, aren't you? That's something like that. Dodgy, not quite as bad as calling college university, but it's it's just a, a little red flag to me. Anyway, going on. Another strange development was that the person who entered cards for Live at the Bike during the streams was also adamant about having Chris play as much as possible. He was a non-managing employee who was relatively new, but was one of only two people who had access to players' hands in real time. I won't name him, but he would later follow Ryan Feldman to Hustler Casino Live as part of their original staff and remain there until recently. Now, who is that? Who's the guy that supposedly, according to this anonymous poster, kept pushing for Ludacris to be in the lineup? And then when Ryan started Hustler Casino Live, went over to Hustler Casino Live and worked there, quote, until recently. Does he mean Brian Sagbixall, the employee caught cheating or 
the employee caught stealing? Was it Brian Sagbixall, the employee caught stealing? Or was it someone else? Well, I think I know who it was, and I don't believe this person's talking about Brian. There was another employee who left recently before this whole thing happened. And I'll tell you who it is, and they actually listen or listened, but I think they still listen, to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. But we'll get to that shortly. Let's go on. Other red flags included suspicious hands and large cumulative winnings involving ludicrous over the course of 2017 to 2018. People within the show who tracked Chris reported the figure as, quote, between 200K to 300K in a nine-month span, an eye-opening number having only played a couple hundred hours of 5-5 with a $50 ante and 5-10-20 games on stream, but not a Russ Hamilton-level outlier. That said, if you had something similar to a super user god switch like Postle or Hamilton, would you use it all the time? So this person is suggesting that maybe this was a smarter version of knowing the cards cheating, whereas Russ Hamilton was just beating everybody and never making a mistake on the river because he knew all the cards, whereas Scott Tom did the same thing on Absolute Poker, and uh, Mike Postle was accused of doing the same thing on Stones, that what if someone did this but was smart about it and purposely lost some hands so they didn't win every single time. To be fair, I saw a few hands that were mentioned in the Reddit post back then. They weren't conclusive in a vacuum, and the hand histories were slightly different than described. But people who were familiar with Chris's play outside of the stream were certain that they were that it was next to impossible lines for him to take. The Live at the Bike archives aren't available anymore as far as I know, but hopefully some of the questionable hands will resurface. So I guess you can't go back and look at these hands, but he's saying that people who knew Ludacris and how he played said that somehow on stream he played totally differently and just made some impossibly good moves that he normally would never make. People who worked on the stream voiced their concerns, but Ryan, who had sole discretion over the lineups, continued to be adamant that Chris be put in as many streams as possible. The complaints from players, staff, and co-owners also prompted Mark Ventre, the manager of poker operations at the bike, to open an internal investigation with regards to the ludicrous Ryan Feldman allegations. The focus at the time was mostly related to board manipulation for must-moves and main games. Now, what he's saying here is that the allegations then was not about any kind of whole card cheating, was that they were giving favoritism to people they liked to get into tables when they're on the waiting list. They were basically either waiting list hopping where they would just get ahead of other people who were supposed to be ahead of them to get into games or when there was a must-move game, meaning where there's two or more tables and they feed into a main table. So every time someone leaves the main table, they pluck someone from the one of the must-move tables and puts them in the main table. That in that case, that there would be certain things done to always keep preferred players in the better game that they would move someone away from the must move game into the main game or uh, wouldn't move someone differently than the list said because it's first come first serve is the way it's supposed to be but sometimes it's advantageous to stay in the must move game it's a better if it's a better game and you can't they force you your choices then are either just to leave or move over and the allegations here are that Ryan manipulated it for his friends where they either didn't have to move over when the non-must-move game was the better one or 
where people where a bus move table's about to break and he would leapfrog someone on the list to get into the main game so the people in the uh, must move wouldn't get a seat or if the main game was better they would uh, be able to move over faster now it's harder to do things like taking people from the table and moving them when they shouldn't be moving because everybody at the table basically knows how long everyone has been there because they frequently have must move games at commerce and the bike when i play and the floor man will come over and say okay there's a seat who's next and i know who was there before me and who was not there before me so if they move a guy who sat down after me i'll immediately object and say no 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 no, i'm next or sometimes they'll make the opposite mistake. Sometimes they'll say, okay, you're next. And I'll go, no, 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 this guy here, he was here before me. And I'll be honest about it. I won't try to take someone's seat. Even if I, I'm afraid the game's going to break and it's better for me to move, I'll be honest if someone else has been there longer. I'll say, no, 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 I think it's him. He was sitting before me. So it's hard to manipulate that. So I'm not sure how that could have been done, but that's the allegation here. Ryan apparently would not budge until around December 2018, when the VP of the Bicycle Casino forbade Chris from playing on Live of the Bike due to potential security risks and poor optics. After Chris was barred from the show, Ryan vehemently protested and unsuccessfully petitioned multiple times to be to have him allowed back. That is, to allow Chris to play again. By spring 2019, the relationship between Feldman and the rest of the owners deteriorated to the point that they wanted him gone. As I understand it, they each had a handful of unrelated grievances in addition to the rift caused by the ludicrous connection. The record will officially show that Ryan withdrew, meaning that he quit, but in reality he was forced out because he had alienated most of the people who operated the show on a day-to-day basis. The main executives at Live at the Bike opted to keep the circumstances surrounding the separation quiet and to this day never commented on it publicly as far as I know. I imagine it was to avoid fallout, especially since no serious foul play was proven. After Ryan left Live at the Bike, he continued as a house player at the bike for a few more months, though he liked to refer to himself as a host. Now, he did say that. He did uh, talk about it on this show when Ryan came on. He did say that first he left Live at the Bike, and then he stayed on as a bike employee because those were two different companies, and that then the bike unceremoniously fired him during COVID. Security was being strengthened to coincide with the revamping of the Live at the Bike room, and in response to some tips regarding RFID breaches in the months leading up to Postlegate. I didn't hear about any kind of RFID breaches, but remember this was still before the Mike Postle situation, which which was whistleblown in September of 2019. So this is in spring of 2019 in this story. When Postlegate shook the poker world, Ryan made tweets to some on-screen anomalies in the Strones broadcasts, implying they couldn't have happened unless inside crew members were participating with a bad actor. Fast forward a few years to the Jack 4 offsuit scandal, Hustler Casino Live made comments saying basically the opposite, that whatever cheating may or may not have happened could not have included HCL staff, though it appears that they softened their stance or fully retracted some of those statements since. I know that Live at the Bike in earlier years had done commentary live with a broadcasting delay, which would have made changing the HUD that's heads-up display possible in real time. Sounds to me like he was needling his kind of former, kind of current co-workers since any potential fallout wouldn't have affected him, but take it however you will. In the wake of the Postle scandal at Stones, the bike and many other casinos, I imagine, were under heavy scrutiny by the DOJ. 
That's not true. <laughs> nope, not true. He's talking about the California DOJ, but no, no, they, they weren't under heavy scrutiny. Uh, there was a visit, which actually was first uncovered on this show. We made a prank call to Stone's Casino, and the, the floor man revealed that the DOJ was there. But nothing happens, as you know. And that's because the California Bureau of Gambling Control is weak. And I talked about this last week. They don't care about things like this. They do a very, very lame and cursory investigation. Really, all the California Bureau of Gambling Control cares about is whether the rooms pay their taxes and whether they spread the agreed-upon games. And that's pretty much it. Now, this guy's talking about the DOJ, not the California Bureau of Gambling Control, but they also don't care very much because they don't understand issues like this very well. Whenever they hear some allegation of cheating in a casino, uh, immediately their question goes to, is the person alleging the cheating perhaps just a sore loser? Because there are people who lose in casinos, both in poker and in casino games, who think they were cheated and just don't understand that either they're not a very good poker player or if they lost in the casino that the casino simply has the edge on them. So they allege cheating when in reality there was no cheating and they're just being paranoid. So they probably get complaints like this all the time. But the DOJ, all they're interested in is knowing if there was any concrete evidence of cheating. And if there was not, then they go away. And even with Possel, where the poker community analyzed 18 months' worth of hands and was very, 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 very suspicious, to say the least, this is not what the DOJ does. They don't sit there looking at footage of hands, and they don't watch Chicago Joey's breakdown or Doug Polk's breakdown. That's not what they do. They go to Stone's. They say, was there any concrete evidence of cheating in this game? Stone says no. That's pretty much it. And same with it here. Unless you've caught someone red-handed, then the DOJ is not interested. So Stones, the bike, all these others were, were not heavily scrutinized by the DOJ. This guy does not understand that. He goes on to write, This renewed interest in Mark Ventre's investigation on Ryan and Chris, but the COVID pandemic stopped all progress on multiple fronts. Mark also unfortunately passed away in early 2021 while his investigation was still pending, just as L.A. casinos began to reopen. I don't know about that. Ryan was long gone by early 2021. I, I guess it's sad that this Mark Ventre passed away. I don't know how old he was, but I guess he was still working at uh, the bike. He couldn't have been that old. But I don't think he was actively investigating Ryan once Ryan was gone. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In fact, Hustler Casino Live had not been announced yet, to my knowledge. So they really had no reason to continue trying to beat that dead horse, especially, like, what would be the point? Even if they found something, what would they do? Trumpet it to the world. Hey, everybody, we found cheating on our own uh, stream here. I mean, there's no way they would do that. So I don't believe that they were continuing to investigate Ryan and then the guy died and couldn't continue it. I think it's possible that maybe they were still looking at some things and then the COVID pandemic in early 2020 ended up putting a stop to all that. But I, I don't believe that the guy dying a year later was anything related to why this didn't fully get fleshed out. He wrote, in the wake of the Apostle scandal at Stones, oh, no, I, I read that part. Then he wrote, the last part of the saga at the bike was Ryan's tweet on June 3rd, 2020, 
complaining that he'd been laid off without warning in spite of all the work he did for the casino. And we read this on the show at the time, and we also had Ryan on here to talk about it. So he actually posted his layoff notice that happened during COVID. It was sent to him on May 28th, and he posted it on June 3rd, 2020. And it's just a very cold notice with a check mark layoff effective 52820, notice to employee as to change in relationship. So he said, thanks to the Bicycle Casino for notifying me via mail that I was laid off after everything I did for that place, all the time, energy, and passion I put into that place without ever being properly compensated. No call, no text, just a letter. Which at the time I thought was very cold. And I said so. And then he repeated that on here and I agreed when he came onto the show last year. So that was the tweet that's being talked about here in that Reddit post. It garnered a lot of sympathy and goodwill from Poker Twitter for the high-profile things he did on the show. Two reality checks here. First, we all got laid off. The casino had been shut down for three months during the pandemic, and the staff knew layoffs were coming in in part so that people could collect unemployment. We knew it was likely temporary. Even the VP who barred Chris got laid off, and if it's any consolation to Ryan, she probably didn't get a pat on the back or a letter thanking thanking her either. Second... Ryan had been iced for the better part of a year and and knew his former employers and co-workers were unable to comment. He wasn't jobless thanks to the home game he was running. While the rest of us had to stay at home, Ryan Feldman was running an illegal, unsanctioned home game as high as 2550 No Limit with Nick Vertucci and telling people he was still running live at the bike despite having been removed for over a year. Side note, I've seen multiple places online cite Feldman's, quote, reputation as the only saving grace in the Jack Four scandal. Look on 2 Plus 2 and see what Rake is like in L.A. home games. Read up and listen up to some podcasts to get an idea of what goes into organizing them and tell me he's clean. Okay, that's kind of unfair because, yeah, the Rake is awful in these home games. I, I went to one. It was $25 max per hand. So I won not even a huge pot. You know, I think I was playing 5-5 five, five or 5-10. No, I was playing 5-10. So I'm playing 510. I went like a decent sized 510 pot, but it wasn't like a monster pot. And I see them grab a $25 green chip and drop it. And I said, wait, did you just rake $25? They said, yes. So I'm like, okay, well, goodbye. And I racked up and went away. I was not going to be raked $25. It was a good game. The players were bad, but I'm not going to be raked $25. That's insane. But, you know, that's the rake. And if you don't like it, then you do what I did and you leave. It's not unethical. I kind of wish I knew that going in, but okay, you know, I, it's not the end of the world to sit in the game, notice the rake is high and leave. It's not like it's a secret. I watched it get dropped and uh, <laughs> I stood up and left. So I wouldn't say that this is unethical, nor would I say that organizing a home game where you're trying to get fish into the game is unethical. Because, yeah, you're putting together a home game. Of course you want it to be a good game. You don't want it to be a game of nine crushers. No one's going to go to that. In his tweet from July 21st, 2020, Ryan posted that his PayPal account had been suspended and that he had a large amount of funds frozen due to people sending him money during the lockdown. He confirmed he wasn't selling goods or services. So what could these payments that broke PayPal's terms of service be for? You might say, well, who cares if they were running unsanctioned games? The Hustler Casino does, and so does the DOJ. If you're running a game in their house, you better not be caught running one in yours. Okay, but he wasn't... See, this is... I I don't love this post because this guy's going off into the weeds accusing him of victimless crimes. 
So first of all, this wasn't while Huster Casino Live was going. This was in 2020. This was over a year beforehand. Second, who cares? Home games run all the time. As long as home games are not crooked, then I don't give a crap if they run. I'm not going to bash anyone for running a home game. If I would, I'm a big hypocrite because I even played in one. I'm talking about an illegal home game. I don't mean like among friends. I mean a raked home game. Yes, it's illegal to run one of those. But I played in one and had the rake not been $25, I would have kept kept playing. I probably would have come back because it was a good game. So whatever, you know. Uh, Who cares what the law is about running one of those games? I understand why there's a need for the law because a lot of these games do end up crooked. And they do get a, get robbed and they don't have the right security. So there are dangers to playing there. And that was also in my head when I played. And that's another reason I didn't seek any others out, even ones that are not as high with a rake. But as for purposes of this discussion, we don't have to worry about Ryan Feldman running a home game in the past. Like, ooh, we can't trust Ryan Feldman because he ran a home game in 2020 and that was illegal. Who cares? I don't know why this guy is putting that in there. Yeah, I'm sure he was sending and receiving money on PayPal related to that home game, which, by the way, doesn't mean PayPal should take his money. Let's go on. But but why did nobody say anything? Asked this poster. At the beginning of my post, I mentioned that the only people likely to have the full story are bound by non-disclosure agreements. Ironically, one of the parties who supposedly under NDA regarding this topic is Ryan Feldman himself. I'm obviously not privy to the specifics, but he's almost certainly bound by similar limitations as others directly involved, perhaps even stricter ones. Maybe they aren't enforceable? I don't know. You might ask, why now? Why did you wait so long to say anything? Well, I've been out of poker for a few years now and no desire to throw myself into this shit show. And given what many of us know about the characters involved, I just assumed that the House of Cards was bound to fall over. That's obviously not how things panned out. What seems to have happened is that no one took a negative free roll by fighting someone else's fight. Some of us make our money when the boat doesn't rock too much. Some of us don't want our entire social media history getting dug up by overzealous sleuths. Some of us make a living in legal gray areas or have at some point in our lives exposed ourselves in a way that could come back to haunt us. So why not let everyone just go at it and see what happens? Poker isn't a team game after all. So what the guy's trying to say here is that he isn't living a pristine life, that he may be doing some illegal or semi-illegal things. He may have said some things on social media that could make him look bad. He doesn't want to become a high-profile whistleblower. And let's say someone dug into his social media history and saw that he used the N-word in 2010. And then people who are pissed off that he's taken a side in this will start pushing that really hard, and then every time an employer Googles his name, they'll see that he tweeted the N-word in 2010. He's not saying that that's what he did, but he's saying that he just doesn't want like heavy scrutiny on him, either because of his social media history or because he's been involved in some things that are illegal or quasi-legal or semi-illegal or whatever, and he just doesn't want the scrutiny for all this. Then he writes... Well, why did no one collect the 250k bounty? This was where several poker players, including Bill Perkins, put together a $250,000 reward for anyone who could prove that cheating was happening at Hustler Casino Live. I don't have any information on what happened at the Hustler. The story and rumor regarding Ryan and Chris was somewhat widely known, but the people inside couldn't conclusively prove it. And even if someone could, they wouldn't win any of the recent prop bets that I saw. The players who were aware of the rumors at the time treaded lightly and approached the situation as a potential cost of business, like they would with anything else. 
Circling back to Ludacris, it appears he is a slight loser on Hustler Casino live streams. Maybe we were all wrong and there never was foul play. Maybe there was and they got spooked by Postlegate. Maybe once Feldman got Hustler Casino live going, he was back on his feet, had a point to prove, and went fully legit. One thing that I should mention is that most of the people who work on Hustler Casino Live genuinely do have high credibility within the LA poker community, and some have been targeted unfairly, such as DGAF slash Billy being the main example. But the main operators have somehow wrote out the worst of the storm in spite of their sketchy history. Nick Vertucci's less-than-flattering real estate ventures are well-documented, and we've seen that he often responds to criticism with mean tweets or choice words on his podcast. Privately, though, Vertucci seeks out people who could potentially be a thorn in his side and even goes so far to imply that, quote, something might happen to them should they raise legitimate concerns. Nevertheless, Feldman and Vertucci will come out of this more resilient and perhaps more bold than ever before. Each scandal they face going forward, and there certainly will be more, will be taken less seriously than the last. They will be able to prove the point of inconclusiveness of past allegations as vindication, or continue using their platform to attract people with actual integrity as cover. And to wrap things up, maybe foul play was or wasn't involved in the Jack Forehand. I definitely can't say anything with certainty. But what I do know is that Ryan Feldman left the bike under a cloud of suspicion and verifiably sketchy behavior. I also know that no one else at the bike, past or present, had the ability or desire to speak up. But there it is. As a hell of a post. Hmm. Someone named Kula523 said, I am an L.A. reg, meaning a regular poker player in L.A. I can confirm... This poster's statements about sketchy L.A. games, particularly during the pandemic, I'll never play a home game again, and this scandal has me questioning my sanity at the casinos, too. Okay, but that that's not important here. Like, okay, so there were sketchy L.A. home games. I'm sure there were, but that really doesn't have much to do with Ryan Feldman. Even if he ran a home game, that doesn't mean that he did anything sketchy. Let's move on. Wolverine9478 said... Former Live at the Bike employee who went with Ryan to Hustler Casino Live and left recently is, in my opinion, Patrick Curran. I thought he was a big part of the production. Why would he leave except for not being compensated enough? He also tweeted, follow the White Rabbit recently. Well, that's an interesting take. That's exactly what I thought. Remember that employee who followed Ryan from Live at the Bike over to Hustler Casino Live and then left recently? but before this whole thing with Robbie. And he claimed this person was responsible for the graphics on Live at the Bike, and he claimed that this person was trying to push for this ludicrous guy to play. Now, I don't know if these things are true, but what I do know is true is that Patrick Curran did work at Live at the Bike and did move over and work on Hustler Casino Live, which by itself is not suspicious at all because Ryan moved over, so he was working for Ryan and then working for Ryan again, so that totally makes sense. In fact, when I was considering asking to be on Hustler Casino Live, this is, of course, before this scandal, but I'd say like in early September, I was starting to consider asking if I could play on one of their 510 games, which play very big, but I was asking if I could appear on one of those. I hadn't asked, but I was considering asking, And the two people I was thinking of asking were ones that I had some kind of belief that they might be willing to put me on. One was Ryan Feldman, who spent 90 minutes on this show and I always had a good relationship with. And the other was Patrick Curran, who I knew listened to this show regularly and told me he was a big fan of the show. So I thought, okay, between the two of them, maybe one of them can get me on. 
And I wasn't going to be a regular person appearing on there. I just wanted to appear once in a while because, let's face it, I wouldn't be a big draw to it. I mean, yeah, I'm a little bit known in poker, so I'm not like a nobody or a stranger to the community, and I've been around for two decades, but I'm not a hot chick. I'm not young. I'm not a really action player. So in those senses, like I wouldn't be bringing a lot to the stream. But I thought maybe you know from knowing somebody there that I could have possibly gotten on. And now I don't have an interest in going on because of what happened there. But there's a decent chance had I asked then, it would have been said yes, especially while Patrick was still there. I didn't know he had left. Anyway, he did tweet, follow the White Rabbit, which is interesting. That's an Alice in Wonderland reference. And it kind of seems to be implying, like, follow the evidence and you'll get to the truth, which is kind of a weird thing for a former employee of Hustler Casino Live to put out. I did ask him if he was willing to come on the show and speak about any of this or even tell me something privately, and he said there's nothing to say. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me, that there's he doesn't know anything, he has nothing to say. And he didn't say it rudely. He didn't say, like, none of your business. He's like, no, I, don't, I just don't know anything. I have nothing to add here. But then he said, follow the White Rabbit publicly, so who knows. But that is interesting that Patrick Curran was part of this story. But the most interesting response of everything here, or shall I say series of responses, came from Lyman. Remember Lyman the obnoxious guy with a raspy voice. We had him on this show a few times. I regret it, to be honest. The guy was uh, disrespectful. He even pissed on this show. He he brought his phone into the toilet and and pissed as he was uh, being interviewed here. He was just very obnoxious and drunk, and it was impossible to reason with him. I appeared on his show a few times. He appeared on this show a few times. And I'm not really looking to have him on again. He was just too obnoxious. In fact, someone who hadn't heard the beginning of it thought he was a co-host, and they texted me when he was on, who is this co-host you have? This guy totally sucks, and he's annoying me. But anyway, I'm going to read what Lyman said. By the way, in case you're wondering what Lyman is doing these days, he is at Commerce... I see him frequently there. We don't ever say anything to each other, and he's never at my table. But I kept seeing him show up at Commerce during the day, and he would just be strolling around the room. And I was wondering, like, what's he doing here? Because he seemed to be doing a lot more strolling and drinking than playing. But I learned actually from this thread what he was doing. He actually has organized a Commerce home game, and that does exist. What you can do is if you have a regular group of players that you can bring into commerce, they will make deals with you to give you a piece of the rake. So that's apparently what Lyman does these days, is he organizes these games to take place at commerce. And this is legal, by the way. So he's organizing games to take place at commerce, and then they give him some commission for it, and sometimes he plays in the game, sometimes he doesn't. Anyway, this is what Lyman wrote. And of course, uh, Lyman is biased, He had a bad ending there with Live at the Bike. They let him go. I think he had some kind of ownership there, but they let him go, and he has very bad blood with them at the bike, 
and Live at the Bike, and uh, now, of course, with Ryan having moved over to Hustler Casino Live, obviously, Lyman is not an unbiased party here. This is someone who clearly hates Ryan, so keep that in mind. But he did put this out there under his own name, so this is pretty interesting. He said, some shit is going to come out. Wasn't Ryan's PayPal frozen at some point for suspicious or illegal transactions? I don't run in these circles anymore, but I do run the biggest legal PLO game in L.A., and there's lots of stories about money lent and money due. Here's the most interesting part with Lyman. A person named the Great Beauty 2000 said, All this is somewhat common knowledge among high-stakes regulars in L.A. I know for a fact that Vertucci has threatened a former owner of Live at the Bike. That former owner is now afraid to open their mouth about anything Nick is involved in because of it. And then Lyman said back, this is true by all accounts. So then someone named Platypus asked him, you worked directly with everyone involved for a while. Give us your take on what the original poster wrote. He said, it's most of the information that rattles around Los Angeles. A little light on the illegal home game, app game, acting as agents, loaning, collecting, getting their PayPal shutdown info. A lot of that floats around the LA private game networks. See, I guess he didn't really answer what the guy was asking. He's like, what do you think of everything said about Ryan? He's like going on about the home game stuff. But the most interesting thing was how he said this is true by all accounts that Nick Vertucci threatened a former owner of Live at the Bike and the former owner is afraid to open their mouth because of it. Now remember, Lyman was a former owner of Live at the Bike. So this might be Lyman saying that he was the one who was threatened and he's afraid to open his mouth. He's not saying that directly, but he is saying it is true that a former owner was threatened by Nick Vertucci and is afraid to say anything. So Lyman's saying either it was him or another former owner. Could be either one, but I'm guessing it was probably him. So there probably are a lot of things Lyman would like to say, but can't. It's even possible he signed an NDA. Who knows? However, again, Lyman had a very bitter end with Live at the Bike. He had some kind of bitter dispute with Ryan. He had a bitter dispute with a lot of people there. So Lyman is not someone who can be considered neutral. Lyman is not someone who, if he were to speak up and make allegations, that you just take it to the bank and say, okay, it's got to be true, because he has an axe to grind with these people. Now, sometimes a person who is an enemy or has bad blood with someone is the most likely to come out with bad things about that person, and that doesn't make it false. That just gives the person motivation to do it. If you think about it, someone you like, it's kind of tough to make yourself come out and say something publicly bad about them, even if you know it's true. Someone you're neutral about, uh, you'll do it, but you take no pleasure in it. You'll just do it because you just feel like the public needs to know, and someone that you really dislike, you can't wait to put out information that's going to make them look bad. In fact, if you remember the whole Bryn Kenny and Martin Zamani thing, Doug Polk jumped on it so quickly because he hated Bryn Kenny. Doug Polk would have been interested anyway because it was an interesting story, but the reason he was so quickly on that was because it involved someone he disliked. So similarly here, Lyman is not an unbiased person who happened to witness things. But it sounds like he's not really talking. He's just talking cryptically at most. So what do I think of this whole thing? 
it is very hard to tell what the truth is. And Ryan came on to Joey's show, and he defended himself again, and I'm not going to play all that here. It's one of these things that's just too hard to tell what really was going on. It does look like it is certain that both sides had issues with one another at Live at the Bike, unrelated to any kind of cheating allegations or suspicion, that there was just a lot of different things that each side didn't like about each other, and that they eventually had to separate, which happens in business. So that is not scandalous. That's just people not getting along or not having the same vision for a business and that it's time for one or the other to leave. Was there perhaps other suspicion? Maybe. But was there perhaps other suspicion because some of the people there didn't like Ryan and wanted to find something that was negative about him and were leaving no stone unturned to try to find anything they could? Yes, that's possible. Is it possible something was going on there that was not above board? Yes. Is it possible that a lot of this is a whole bunch of false allegations and rumors that spread around that are getting a lot of oxygen right now because of the controversy at Hustler Casino Live? Yes. So I don't really know what to believe here. I have not seen any evidence of hands that occurred on Live at the Bike that are like, oh my God, there's no way this could have happened without cheating. I haven't seen any evidence. So until I see such evidence, I can't say it was happening. And I'm being honest about this. This is what I really think privately too. I'm not saying something publicly because I have to or I'm trying to cover my ass. I've been trying to look at this from every angle. And this includes allegations against Robbie. This includes allegations against Garrett, against Ryan, against Nick Vertucci, even against Brian Sagbixall, who I know was a thief, but maybe he was not a cheat. I don't know. I still think someone willing to steal like he did is also willing to probably look at whole cards and have a cheating partner if he could find one. That would That's what logic would dictate, especially given the money that could be made from it. But I don't have proof that he ever did any cheating. So I've been trying to look at this from all angles. I haven't come at this from any viewpoint of I really, really want to be right about X or Y. And if you remember, shortly after the whole thing happened, I made a tweet that was very, very well shared on Twitter and had hundreds of thousands of views where I said that I had determined that Robbie Jade Lou wasn't cheating. And this was before the Brian Sagwixall info came out. And once that did, then I started to change my mind to being back kind of on the fence again. Right now, as it stands, in case you're wondering, I still think it's more likely that she didn't cheat than did cheat. However, I do think it's possible that also there was cheating unrelated to her that was going on that this may have brought attention to. So maybe she was innocent, but other bad stuff was happening there, and now we're looking at it. There's a lot of different possibilities. It's also possible there was no cheating. Who knows? We don't have any conclusive proof. We don't even have semi-conclusive proof. We have this one jack forehand, and that's pretty much it. And then Brian Sagbick's all being caught stealing money off stacks. That's basically all we have aside from him moving his uh, the file cabinet around so the cameras don't have a view of him. So without enough evidence, or really any kind of convincing evidence, I can't say there was cheating on Hustler Casino Live or Live at the Bike. And these stories, while interesting and while worth considering, are not conclusive in any way. And I don't 
walk away from these stories going, oh, okay, well, now I know Ryan was shady. No, I, I don't know Ryan was shady. He may not have been. And there were some parts of this I didn't like, as I said. Like the person talking about the home games and talking about the rake of the home games. That's a stupid point to bring up. That's not relevant here. But I thought I would read it to you. You can make your own decision. But really, with this whole thing, try to look from all angles. Don't just go with the latest gotcha and think it really means something. It's a very interesting story because it is hard to determine what the real truth is. It's not obvious, and that makes it more interesting. Okay, so now let's move on and talk about the other owner of Hustler Casino Live, Nick Fertucci. Now, he has a very different personality than Ryan Feldman. Ryan Feldman is not a... He's not an intimidating guy. He's not someone that anyone's afraid of. He's just this short, skinny guy who just seems like he's mild-mannered, doesn't ever come at people aggressively, doesn't seem like someone who's going to be out to get you because you say something he doesn't like. Now, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily someone you can trust. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And there's a lot of debate about that these days. But he is not someone who has been unprofessional or aggressive on Twitter or really on any social media since this all happened or really at any time. He stated his opinion, but he's never really been out of line. Nick Vertucci, on the other hand, well, he's got a much more aggressive personality and it's gotten him in some hot water ever since the scandal broke. Now, strangely enough, before the scandal broke, he had a rapidly rising podcast called The Nick Vertucci Show that he was doing with Veronica Brill, who was the whistleblower in the Stones situation, ironically. And more and more people were watching The Nick Vertucci Show because he would just kind of come out there and speak his mind. And people liked that. People liked that he was kind of an open book and someone who didn't hold back his feelings and people were enjoying the show. I even played you a clip of it where Veronica was bashing Vanessa Cade and said that she didn't like her. <laughs> so that's the type of thing you'll hear on the Nick Vertucci show. At least that's what you heard before this scandal. Well, ever since the scandal happened, the few Nick Vertucci show episodes that have come out have been about this scandal. And then there have been other episodes that Nick was threatening to do, but never did. So we're seeing this pattern with Nick Vertucci where he gets mad at someone on social media and then he posts some kind of aggressive tweet about how he's going to expose them or we're going to find out such and such about this person. And you can tell he's really, really pissed and wants to really harm someone's reputation in response to bad things being said about him or his business. And then he gets a lot of bad responses from it on Twitter, and then he changes his mind and deletes the tweet. This has happened several times already since this scandal broke about four weeks ago. So it happened again, actually twice, since we last had our show on October 14th. The first one was involving Matt Berkey. Matt Berkey has been doing pretty fair coverage, in my opinion, of this whole thing. He has 
really been willing to look at this from different angles, and I haven't agreed with all of his conclusions, but most of them have been pretty reasonable. I felt that he's not been someone who's been married to one side or the other, and that he has attempted at times to think deeply about the whole thing and have some interesting discussions on his show with his co-hosts on that Only Friends show he does on YouTube. The thing that really pissed off Nick Vertucci was when Matt Berkey did a show where he was stating that Hustler Casino Live needs to shut down. And Nick Vertucci became convinced that Matt Berkey was a friend of Live at the Bike because he's appeared on Live at the Bike a number of times, more than he has on Hustler Casino Live. And he thought that Berkey was doing a favor to his friends who run Live at the Bike, which is a competing broadcast, and is putting this out there not because he really feels that Hustler Casino Live should shut down for safety and security reasons, but because he's trying to help Live at the Bike. So at first, Nick Vertucci responded with, like, biased Live at the Bike bullshit, which I think he deleted later. And ever since then, he's been pissed at Berkey and just really has wanted to come after him. He was holding back for a little bit, but finally on October 16th, he put out the following. He tweeted this, which you won't find anymore. It's been deleted, but this is what it said. Integrity and rep check is the title of this tweet. He put a little graphic up with a little the little sirens, those emojis of the sirens, uh, integrity and rep check, he puts. I will be putting out a special podcast Tuesday, October 18th about Matt Berkey. Some information has come out that Matt needs to answer to immediately. Matt refused to have me on his podcast to discuss this with me personally. I have agreed to give Matt the chance to get ahead of this matter on his show on Monday, October 17th. The Nick Vertucci Show on YouTube, October 18th. Oh my goodness. So he was giving Matt one more day, October 17th, to come out and get ahead of this scandalous information that is going to expose some bad ethics and integrity on the part of Matt Berkey. Yeah. Well, I was curious what that was going to be. So was most of poker. What did Nick Vertucci find out about Matt Berkey that was going to shock us? Well, I actually thought it was probably going to be not very interesting. Matt Berkey took a hit a little bit some time back where someone unearthed some old tweets he made back in 2010 where he uh, used some slurs uh, that are now considered homophobic. But whatever, you know, that sort of thing is much more acceptable back in 2010. And also, are you really going to dig into the guy's tweets 12 years back to find something stupid like that? It's not like he found out that Matt Berkey was a scammer or something. I mean, so so he used some language on Twitter that people today don't like and think is inappropriate. I mean, who cares? That's, that's so dumb. I hate when people do that. So I was wondering if it's going to be that or if it's going to be just some other thing that, while not painting Matt Berkey in a light of perfection isn't that big of a deal. I just didn't think there was going to be some earth-shattering thing about Matt Berkey that was going to shock us all and make us think he was a scumbag. But I was willing to watch and listen with an open mind. Well, they ended up kind of squashing the beef for the moment, and Nick did appear on Matt Berkey's show, 
on the 17th, and we found out what it was. What was this information that came out that Matt needed to answer to immediately, that Matt was refusing to talk about, that Nick was giving him one day to reveal on his own to get ahead of it before Nick puts it out on his show? What was this earth-shattering offense? Matt Berkey spoke to someone at Hustler Casino Live and recorded the call. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Matt Berkey, you recorded a phone call you had? How dare you? That changes everything. That changes everything about Matt Berkey's reputation. He recorded a phone call. I know I would never record a phone call. I know you guys would never record a phone call. I'm sure none of us have ever in our lives recorded a phone call. How dare you, Matt Berkey, record a phone call with a Hustler Casino Live staff member without telling that staff member that you were recording that phone call. That is a tremendous offense. I understand why Nick Vertucci was so angry about this and why he gave you a day to get ahead of this. How dare you, Matt Berkey? How dare you? That was the big deal. He recorded a freaking phone call. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that was the big thing that Matt needed to get ahead of. (laughs) But that's what it was. They talked about it together. And part of the reason this was such a big deal, get ready for this, recording a phone call without someone's knowledge is illegal. Oh, my goodness. It's illegal. Well, this is something that's not very well understood. This is the sort of thing that really only matters when it comes to what you can use for evidence in court or what you could use commercially. So let's say you record someone who you're talking to who admits they did a shitty thing to you and you don't tell them you're recording the call, of course. Even if this person finds out that you recorded them and you're in a state where it was illegal to do this, it doesn't matter because you're never going to get arrested for it. Regardless of whatever laws are on the books, every state is different with the laws regarding doing this. But even with a law on the books against doing this, you're never going to be arrested and prosecuted for this. This is the type of, quote, crime that nobody gets arrested for when they're recording their own phone calls. Furthermore, even civilly, if you were to sue someone for doing this to you, even with a law against it, you would have to show damages in order for your lawsuit to be successful. So, yes, if somebody recorded you and then distributed the call and actually caused you real damages that you could prove in court, then you might be able to recover something from them. But if you just don't like the fact that they recorded you without telling you, you're not going to get anything from them. So that's why you don't hear about any kind of cases, even civilly, where someone sues the other for recording them secretly on a phone call. To show you how rarely this is pursued, if you remember that whole controversy with Donald Sterling, the former L.A. Clippers owner, who was recorded in his home in California by his then-girlfriend making a lot of racist remarks, and he was recorded without his knowledge, well, technically, making that recording was illegal, and making and distributing that recording was even more illegal. But guess what? Did this woman ever get prosecuted? No. Did she ever get sued? No. And you could say this definitely damaged Donald Sterling's reputation. In fact, he was pretty much 
forced to sell the team because of this. But this woman was never prosecuted or sued in any way. Because you just don't see this in court. You, you just don't see any kind of real-life application of either civilly coming after someone or criminally coming after someone for recording their own phone calls. Where this really more takes an effect is being able to use the evidence against someone. So, for example, let's say someone scammed me out of $1,000 and I sue them. And I call them up and I don't tell them I'm recording them. And I get them to admit they scammed me out of $1,000. Now, that would be very strong evidence in court, except if I recorded this in a state where you are not allowed to record without telling the other party that you are, I could not use this as evidence. If I were to say, I want to play this guy admitting he was a scammer, the judge would ask me, did you get permission to record the phone call? And if I were to say no, he would say, well, then you can't play this evidence in this courtroom. That is the real application to that law in practical terms. So going back to what Berkey did, Berkey called up someone who worked at Hustler Casino Live, spoke to him, and recorded him without telling the guy who's recording him. And that's what Nick Vertucci had his panties in a bunch about. Oh, it's illegal. No, again, this wouldn't be able to be used in a court of law against Nick or Hustler Casino Live, but there's nothing that could be done to Berkey for this. So this is a stupid thing. Now, Nick can say to Matt, hey, don't do that again. I don't appreciate it. Stop calling my people and recording them without telling them. He can even publicly say that he's pissed off this happened. But look how he put out that tweet, making it seem like there's a major scandal. That was the problem here. If he just wanted to tweet, hey, Matt did kind of a dick thing. He called up and spoke to someone at Hustler Casino Live didn't tell him he was being recorded and the guy said some things and now Matt has it and can use it against him and you know he's going to may play it on his show who knows what he's going to do with it and it's fucked up he should you know he should have been honest with the guy that he was recording okay you know Nick can put out that opinion and if he wants to try to make Matt look bad for doing that that's up to him but to put this out like this is some major scandal that he's going to give Matt a day to get ahead of it and that this is an integrity and rep violation and Matt needs to answer to this immediately. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Matt's answer could be, well, I, I was recording it because I wanted to have others listen to it and believe what I had to say about the phone call. Because if I just say, well, this person said X to me, then maybe people won't believe me or think I misheard. So that's why I recorded it. And I'm sure that is why Matt recorded it. So whatever. He's, he's trying to get to the bottom of what happened here. Isn't that everyone's goal? So, yeah, I understand why Nick was a little annoyed by this, but to frame this as a ma major scandal that Matt has to get ahead of and he's got one day to do so. That's really, really, really overstating how big of a deal this is by a wide margin. So everybody collectively yawned when they found out what this was. Like a bunch of us are watching Nick come on to Matt's show and they're going to hash this out and, oh, what's it going to be? Oh, it's about a recorded phone call? Oh, come on, that's stupid. So as soon as I learned that's what it was about, I turned it off. Very lame. But that's not it. We're not done with Nick Vertucci coming after people on Twitter that he doesn't like. The second one was even worse. There is a person on Twitter who used to go by Karen Kessler. Now, it has nothing to do with Alan Kessler. It was actually a parody of Alan Kessler. This person 
took a picture of Alan Kessler and put a long blonde wig on his head with a crude Photoshop and was portraying Kessler as if he's a Karen, you know, the recent term to describe a middle-aged woman who constantly complains to managers about things. Now, Kessler often publicizes his complaints to managers about things at fast food restaurants, at poker rooms. Kessler likes to complain, and he makes no secret of this. So that's what this account was. And that was the original purpose of it, was just to kind of needle Kessler a bit. However, Karen Kessler, who is a man, by the way, despite the female name, this this is a man, and it was not Alan Kessler, and it wasn't someone related to Alan Kessler. This Karen Kessler person pretty quickly evolved into using it as a regular Twitter account. So the, that whole gimmick of being like a female Alan Kessler, that lasted a very short time, and then this person just started making irreverent and kind of trollish comments about various people in poker that they didn't like. And it was kind of an entertaining account, and I followed it, and I didn't really care that much about it. It was just one of many gimmick accounts on Twitter, and the only question in my mind is, like, is this someone who I otherwise know on Twitter under their real name? But aside from that, the account wasn't really that notable. Well, this account eventually dropped the whole Karen Kessler thing and just changed its name to The Poker Karen. Because, as I said, they moved past the whole thing of making fun of Kessler, and they realized that there's no point to have that name. In fact, it was confusing people. So they just changed themselves to The Poker Karen and kind of kept to the same theme of what they were doing before. Now, this person being anonymous was more willing to come after people they didn't like pretty aggressively. And one of the people they decided they really did not care for was Nick Fertucci. So this person was coming after Nick Fertucci pretty hard, bringing up over and over Nick Fertucci's controversial uh, real estate seminar program from the 2010s and kept calling him a scammer and kept posting links to how you can read about that and screenshots of people complaining about Nick Fertucci's real estate school. And the person just over and over and over was a combination of making fun of Nick Fertucci and trying to convince you that you can't trust him. So I will acknowledge that this poker Karen person was pretty aggressively coming after Nick Fertucci and really trying to make him look bad. But Nick Fertucci is one of the co-owners of Hustler Casino Live, and they just had a major controversy on there. And Nick Fertucci definitely has not been handling this optimally, and he's been making some missteps, including this thing about Berkey. So, you know, this comes with the territory. This comes with being one of the owners of that stream and having such a thing happen there and then lashing out at some people who had opinions he didn't like. So, okay, that's going to happen. There's going to be Twitter trolls. There's Twitter trolls who bash me. And that's just the reality of Twitter. If you can't handle Twitter trolls, then you shouldn't be on Twitter. Well, Nick has a hard time handling these Twitter trolls, and he was really, really hating this Poker Karen person. So Nick decided to look into it to see maybe if he could figure out who the Poker Karen is, and then maybe if he could expose this person or maybe some things that are unflattering about them, maybe they'll leave him alone. So I'm sure that Nick thought this was a clever plan. 
The problem is that Nick Vertucci has something else much bigger to be investigating right now. It's one thing if just in normal times, if there's some troll who's constantly hassling him and he decides to do some investigating and figure out who's behind the account and then say, okay, well, the Boker Karen's real name is X and he's done Y in the past and this is why you shouldn't trust him or whatever. That's fine. And that is also what comes with being a troll is that if you're trolling someone and you annoy them enough to where they look up who you are and find out things about you that aren't very flattering, well, that's fair game too. However, Nick Vertucci right now should not be wasting his time with this. So he put out on his Twitter, and this is after deleting the stuff about Berkey, he put out on his Twitter that he has been looking into some things and he's asked around and done some investigating and that he has found out who the poker Karen is and that he's going to be revealing it shortly and that this person is no good or a a piece of dirt or, or something along those lines. Well, that did not go over well at all. And you can't find the tweet anymore because guess what? It's been deleted. But at the time, that did not go over well at all because what this looked like was that you have a guy who owns a stream where cheating is suspected and where they even caught one of their own employees stealing. And instead of doing an aggressive investigation, trying to figure out the full story with everything going on at Hustler Casino Live, he is diverting his resources to investigate a Twitter troll who's being mean to him on social media. (laughs) That's just a bad look. It's just a bad look. You you can't waste any time or any resources investigating who the poker Karen is when you're trying to investigate a major cheating scandal. It's very, very bad optics. And it makes it look like you're not taking the serious stuff seriously. Also, it makes it look like you are trying to come after those who criticize you. So when you are in a position where you're going to get criticism and where you're running a stream that is right now enduring a lot of controversy, the last thing you want to do is try to attack your critics. You can debate with your critics. You can tell them why they're wrong. You can even state why they have motivations to be coming after you that may not be that pure. That's all fair game. But to try to investigate who anonymous critics on the internet are when there are legitimate questions about whether your stream should still be running and whether there was cheating there, that's a very, very bad look because it makes it look like that if you dare criticize Hustler Casino Live, Nick will come after you. Nick will look into who you are and Nick will expose things about you. That's just not a good look. So predictably, the poker community overwhelmingly got behind the Poker Karen. And the Poker Karen was actually kind of laughing about this whole thing and and was not intimidated one bit. It just kept coming after Nick and and was a combination of being defiant and joking about the whole thing. He definitely was not scared. And I asked the Poker Karen privately, and by the way, I don't know who it is, but I asked him privately, do you think Nick knows who you are? And he said, probably. He said he has told some people who he is. And I said, okay, so you think he might know? He said, yes. So he believes that Nick has this information, but this didn't stop him. He just kept on going after Nick Vertucci and calling him Dick Verducci. So he's he's still coming hard at Nick there. 
And I guess he was especially emboldened by the overwhelming support he got from people. And a lot of people were saying that Nick should just step down and not even continue to be an owner there if he's going to behave this way. Now, there's no way that's going to happen. But I will say, and I'm sure Nick knows this now too because he took down the tweet about how he's going to expose the Poker Karen. So the Poker Karen still has not been exposed. So in case you you thought you are going to find out who the Poker Karen is, nope, even I don't know. He might tell me if I asked him. I, I didn't ask him mainly because I don't want to be blamed for leaking this information if it gets out. I wouldn't leak it, but like it's kind of something I'd rather just not know if not that many people know because this way if it gets out that I don't falsely get the blame. Because I've had this happen to me before where someone tells me something and they say, promise not to tell anyone. I say, okay. And then somehow it gets out. And then the person who tells me calls me and yells at me saying, why did you tell people? And I go, well, I didn't. Well, I didn't tell anyone. And then it turns out the info got out some other way and they didn't realize it. So like, sometimes I actually don't want to know things if it could possibly lead to me getting falsely blamed for telling people things. So I don't know who it is. I know a few details about the person. Like, not their name, but I, I know some details about them. I revealed one of them that it's a male, but that doesn't tell you very much. But I, I know some more details, but I'm not going to reveal them here because I don't do things like that. But no, uh, Nick never revealed who that is. And uh, he's, though he's, the Poker Karen's continuing to make uh, Photoshops and making polls about him. He's just really coming hard. Yeah, this is exactly what. Dick Vertucci tweeted, I have the tweet right here. My team of investigators during their investigation into all matters has informed me who the poker Karen is. I will reveal soon. I'm sure nobody will be shocked. What a piece of cheese. Hashtag bottom feeder. So the beginning, my team of investigators during their investigation into all matters has informed me, blah, blah, blah. Like that's saying that the same investigators who are looking into the cheating there are now looking into the poker Karen. <laughs> You can see why this looks really bad. Anyway, the Poker Karen has rocketed up in followers and popularity ever since Nick did this. All he did was help the Poker Karen, who only had like, I don't know, 200 followers and now has 1,751. That's a pretty big jump. The Poker Karen identifies himself as being from Las Vegas slash Bay Area. But that's all the information he gives. So despite the female imagery on the account, it is not a female. Here's what Nick Vertucci posted after he deleted these posts about Berkey and the Poker Karen. Also, I want to say I do regret some of my posts in regards to fighting back against the mob of haters. Some of my responses and posture has been unbecoming, and I apologize. I would also like to apologize to the Berkey group for my end of the back and forth. I wish you guys the best and you will not be hearing any more from me regardless of what you say. I will strictly be focused on bringing this investigation to an end and continuing to run Hustler Casino Live. So he realized that this does not go over well. Nick was responding to criticism by saying, okay, let me expose these people. And people are like, no, we don't want to hear it. (laughs) Just focus in your own house here. You've got a big scandal. Focus on that. Don't worry about Berkey. and Don't worry about the poker Karen. I have a feeling that Nick was also talked to by Ryan and maybe even people at Hustler, maybe some of his friends, and was probably told 
you're not handling this well. This is not going to win over any fans here. This is not going to change anyone's mind for the better about you and about our stream. So I haven't spoken much about Nick Vertucci and his real estate seminars. I told you some about this last week and I think maybe the week before. But basically, he ran these seminars about how to flip houses and make a lot of money in the 2010s. And he had a team of people working under him giving these seminars. So frequently, it wasn't Nick himself doing the seminars, especially once he grew it to be bigger. But he had people working under him to do these seminars. And sometimes they got very expensive, and they even had these bus tours, which would cost a lot of money, where they would take you on a bus around uh, whatever city you were in to look at homes that you could possibly buy to flip. And there were all these different packages from like $1,400 all the way up to like tens of thousands. And if you take a look on Google, if you Google Nick Vertucci real estate seminars, you will see a lot of complaints. You'll see a lot of bad things people had to say, some calling it an outright scam, some saying that they didn't deliver what they promised, some saying that the information they gave was useless and not worth the money. Now, there was no question that if you paid for a real estate seminar that you really got one. So they weren't just taking people's money and running off. You really would get a seminar, but there were various complaints related to these seminars and how valuable they were and what they were promoting it to be and what they actually received. So again, I'm not going to delve into all of that. You can read that and make your own opinion. But there was a lawsuit that was brought to my attention by a listener to this show and hasn't really been discussed anywhere. So I'm going to discuss it. And I think you'll find it interesting. And it has to do with this real estate business But the lawsuit is probably not what you're thinking. I bet you would imagine that a lawsuit, which was filed in 2014, would be about a customer paying him maybe $20,000 or whatever for one of the most expensive packages to learn how to flip homes profitably. And then they felt like they didn't learn anything valuable and they were misled and they want their money back. Wouldn't that be the lawsuit you would expect? That's what I would expect. But that's not what this lawsuit was. In fact, This lawsuit was not from a customer at all. Instead, it was from a similar company that did a lot of the same things. And they alleged that Nick first contracted to work with them, and then after learning everything about the way they operated, stole their material, and then he started his own real estate school. Ah, so it's a business-to-business lawsuit about theft of intellectual property. Hmm. So this lawsuit was brought by Armando Montelongo Seminars against the Nick Vertucci companies and Nick Vertucci himself. This was filed in the Western District of Texas, San Antonio Division in the U.S. District Court. So it was a federal lawsuit. It was filed on March 7th, 2014. And I do have the complaint. It's 15 pages long. A lot of this is basically just establishing what this Armando Montelongo school was and what Nick Vertucci was doing. And most of this is not all that interesting. However, I will read you the most relevant part. 
defendants, referring to Vertucci and his real estate seminars, entered into a vendor agreement with plaintiff, which is Armando Montelongo, whereby defendants would provide real estate training services on behalf of plaintiff's companies to plaintiff's customers using plaintiff's teaching materials, methods, and other proprietary information owned by plaintiff. The business relationship began in 2010 and continued until September 2013. So basically, this Armando Montelongo is alleging that it was actually his real estate seminars. It was his material regarding people learning how to flip houses and all that. And that Nick was basically just an affiliate, that Nick was teaching these courses using all of Armando's material that he was renting from Armando and that they had an agreement that Nick was not going to run any kind of competing business or start his own uh, school or anything like that, that basically Nick finds his own customers and then teaches Armando stuff and gives Armando the piece of the profits. That's, that's basically what's being alleged here. And that was the agreement that is, was claimed in this lawsuit that they had from 2010 until September 2013. Then the complaint states, on or about September 11, 2013, defendants ceased working with plaintiff. Defendant's vendor agreement and working relationship with plaintiff was terminated due to defendant Nick Vertucci's repeated inappropriate relationships with various clients of plaintiff. That's kind of weird. Now, he doesn't say what kind of inappropriate relationships. I don't know if Nick Vertucci was having sex with uh, clients that the Armando Montelongo school had. I don't know what was going on, but they're saying there is a repeated inappropriate relationships with clients of the plaintiff and that he terminated the arrangement they had with Nick Vertucci for this reason. Shortly thereafter, defendant Nick Vertucci began operating a seminar business in direct competition with plaintiff's business. And then a lot of stuff is uh, in this complaint basically showing that Nick agreed not to use any of this on his own such as vendor agrees to never use or disclose directly or indirectly for any reason whatsoever in any way other than at the direction of AMS, which is uh, our, uh, which is this Armando Montelongo schools, uh, or after receipt of the prior written consent of AMS and any confidential information of AMS. Specifically, vendor agrees not to utilize, disclose, copy, duplicate, or publish any or all part of, nor lend, nor permit the disclosure, copying, or duplication, or publication of any part of the confidential information of AMS, including but not limited to books, records, client lists, software, electronic files, customer lists, or any documents or materials related to the business of AMS. So you get the point here that basically they were stating that Nick agreed that you can't use any of this stuff on your own, that you can only use it when working with Armando Monte Longo seminars, and that when they terminated their business re- arrangement because they didn't like how Nick was having, quote, inappropriate relationships with their clients, that Nick said F it and started his own seminars, the Nick Vertucci seminars. So this was eight and a half years ago. So what was the result? Well, I was then sent settlement documents that stated that there was a settlement right before trial, but the terms were not made public. And this is pretty common in situations like these. 
where both sides decide not to roll the dice in court, also because of mounting legal fees that they would rather just settle before it actually goes to trial to where neither side gets exactly what they want, but but there is some settlement made. So it's pretty likely that Nick did pay something to Armando Montelongo seminars for this alleged violation of their terms. Now, this was a civil matter. This was not a uh, criminal matter. I just want to make this clear. But I found it interesting. So I thought I'd share that out here. doesn't really have any relevance to what's going on at Hustler. But I thought that was an interesting lawsuit, that the Nick Vertucci seminars uh, allegedly sprung from seminars of a very similar business. And then when they said they're not going to work with Nick anymore, then Nick went and did his own thing. Mm. Wish I knew how much the settlement was for. I have to imagine it wasn't zero, though. I, I don't imagine that this Armando guy would have dropped the whole thing right before trial if all he was going to get was... Zero point zero. Now, sometimes they will have these situations where the settlement really is just no one's going to pay anyone anything and we're never going to talk about this again. But that usually happens when the plaintiff realizes his case sucks and just wants to save a little face publicly by getting the defendant to agree not to discuss this lawsuit and figures, okay, if I won't get anything monetary out of them, at least I'll get like a like a gag order to where they can't ever say anything bad about me. So I've seen that before. I actually know someone this happened to. And I, I actually told the person they shouldn't have agreed to this because they really had the other party in bad shape. This was a, a defendant who probably could have won their countersuit as well. But uh, anyway, they, they ended up agreeing to something involving never disparaging the plaintiff and not talking about how much the settlement was and, and all that. And they, they got this very small amount of money and the whole thing was dropped. Anyway, that I don't think is the situation here. I think it's highly likely that something was paid. Maybe it was a little, maybe it was a lot, I don't know, but it seems like something was probably paid right before trial. Moving on, I want to talk about Robbie at the Five Diamond. The Five Diamond is a poker series that takes place at the Bellagio. It's a World Poker Tour series. The main event of the Five Diamond is a $10,000 buy-in. The WBT Five Diamond has been going for a long time. And it is a prestigious event. It gets a lot of poker pros. It's a tough event. You get a lot of good players entering. This This is not like the main event of the World Series, which is a mixture of good and excellent players and also a number of amateurs. The Bellagio Five Diamond is one that really attracts mostly pros. And the top prize for the 2022 main event at the Bellagio Five Diamond was just slightly more than... One million dollars. And it was won by Chad Evislodge. I don't really know him, and Steve Buckner finished second for 690K. 
Okay, well, whatever. Why am I announcing that here? There's been many other five diamonds, and I've never discussed them before on this show. Well, a certain interesting person played the Bellagio Five Diamond this time. That would be one, Robbie Jade Lou. Remember, she's been in Vegas a whole lot lately. So, you know, when in Rome, do like the Romans do. And when in Vegas, play the Five Diamond, I guess. It's not known if she had herself in this tournament or if Rip was putting her in or if other people were putting her in, but Robbie was definitely in the event. And she apparently entered with three bullets from what I hear. She was the last woman standing, which isn't that hard because they don't have a ton of women in this event, as you might imagine. And unlike the World Series of Poker main event, which has like 8,000-something people, this has 569 people. But she did enter three times from what I've been told. I don't have verification, but that's what I've been told. She finished in 49th place. And that paid her 22400 Another notable female who busted just before her is Farrah Galfond, Phil's wife. Remember, she got into some hot water over the summer when she got that masseuse fired for giving that uh, nipple rub. Well, I shouldn't say she got her fired, but she, she tweeted about it, which led to the masseuse getting fired. And I was on the masseuse's side in the whole thing. We had her on the show. The, the masseuse, not Farah. I thought Farah was making too big of a deal out of nothing. But anyway, she played, and she was in 52nd place. I don't know if Phil played as well, but if he did, she outlasted him. She got uh, 22,400 in 52nd place, and, and uh, Robbie Jade Lou got 49th place for 22,400. And that is, I believe, her second biggest cash lifetime. That is her only WBT cash ever. If she really did enter three times, that would mean that she lost money here. And that's why you have to be careful when you look at results and you're going to go, oh my God, look at all the money that people have won entering these tournaments. Wow, I'm jealous. Well, maybe you shouldn't be because in many cases these people are losing. So in this case, if she really did enter three times... Since the buy-in was 10400 that would mean that she spent 31200 and cashed 22400 for a loss of almost nine k. So that's not a lot to be jealous of. If you look at my Hendon Mob results, you will see that I am just short of having cashed... One million dollars. It's true. Go look at it. But have I profited a million dollars from tournaments? No, not even close. So the amount of cashing and the amount of buy-ins are two different things, and it doesn't show the buy-ins, so that's one of the big misleading things about tournament poker players. The seating arrangement at this event, at least for one of her bullets, was interesting. Now, seating is random, but sometimes you got to wonder. I'm not saying the seating wasn't random, but boy... This was a pretty interesting group they had together there at the Bellagio Five Diamond. 
a picture was posted of Kitty Quo, Robbie Jade Lou, and Justin Bonimo all posing for a picture. This was actually posted by Kitty Quo herself. And I'm surprised it has no filter on it. She filters like every one of her pictures, Kitty Quo. This one has no filter, so you can actually see the way she really looks, which is not very common. I, I think someone else may have taken this picture anyway, so I, I guess she figured no point to filter it. But you can see Kitty Quo, Robbie Jade Lou, and Justin Bonimo all next to one another at a table. Kitty Quo tweeted, three girls at table, P.S., my face is not that big. <laughs> so, Kitty Quo is so worried about her looks. She's constantly worried about her looks. She's she's filtering all her pictures, and she's just always so self-conscious that you think she looks good. And there's a story about her berating some woman at the table who's trying to give her a compliment, saying that, uh, you know, that I think you're probably older than you really are and you look great for your age or something like that. And she got mad because she thought it's the woman calling her old. Kitty is just really uptight about the way she looks. So that's why she's putting the note here. My face is not that big. Well, yeah, I mean, she doesn't look like she has a big face, Kitty. She's the closest one in this picture. So, yeah, her face looks bigger than the other two because she's closer to the camera. Her body looks bigger, too. But if you've seen pictures of Kitty's body, she's very small. I'm surprised she didn't say I'm not this big or not this fat because, you know, she does look the biggest one because she's closest to the the camera. I I could put my son Benjamin close to the camera and I could be farther back and he could look like way bigger than me. But that's very much not the case if you see us together. So anyway, uh, that aside, kind of an interesting threesome there. I wonder what Bonomo talked about with her. I'm really wondering, was he on her side about the whole thing or feigning he was on her side or talking about polyamory and asking if she wants to give it a roll with him? I, I don't know. Bonomo has his usual pink hair. And I think I might see some gray on the side, which is strange because I still picture Bonomo as a young guy, even though he's not that young anymore. Because when he first came up into poker, he was like 21. So that's like, I still remember him as one of these kids in poker. And then I think I see gray hair. I think he's like in his late thirties. He's still a lot younger than me and always will be. But yeah, Kitty Quo, Robbie J. Lou and Justin Bonomo right next to each other. All three of them had some controversy in 2022 of different types. Kitty Quo over that whole thing with the, quadriplegic player K.L. Cleeton, which happened over the summer, and we talked about it on this show. And I actually felt that both were in the wrong there. I, she took a lot of heat there, Kitty Quo, and she was rude, and she didn't handle it well, but I felt that K.L. Cleeton also did some things wrong there. Then Robbie J. Lou, of course, we know about, and uh, Justin Bonomo, if you remember, was acting very self-righteous, as always, but in... One particular case over the summer, he was uh, going after Negreanu when Negreanu threw the camera equipment against the wall and was saying that this is why women don't play poker and was just being really, really lame and self-righteous and trying to act like uh, he's the good feminist who's protecting the women when this had nothing to do with women. I don't think even women were even around when Negreanu did that. So Bonomo took a lot of heat for that. And he's taken heat a number of times for some of these comments he's made on social media where he's always trying to make himself look like the 
most moral and most sensitive guy in the room. So all, all three of these have really been under fire for something on social media in not just 2022, but I would say since June of 2022. And you have them all together in one place. That might have been an interesting conversation to listen to. Might almost be worth the $10,400 to pay to get in there. Have I ever played the WPT Five Diamond? No. I did once enter a satellite to get into it, and I lost, and I left, and I did not get it. So never actually played the Five Diamond, and I don't think I ever will. What this does say, by the way, is that Robbie Jade Lou is not going away from poker. Not that we thought she would, but this is very clear that she is now playing a high-profile Vegas tournament and has a big smile in this picture. I mean, she's thrilled to be in this picture with Kitty Quo and Justin Bonomo and just be part of the high-profile poker crowd. And yeah, I know the seating's random, but you could tell she has this big smile on her face. She is thrilled to be there. She is thrilled that people are looking at her going, oh, look, three notable poker players, and she's one of them. She is thrilled about that. So she probably is very happy that this whole thing happened. As strange as this sounds, I have a feeling she is very happy this whole thing happened, which does make us wonder what was the motivation in the first place playing in these Hustler games? Was it to make money or was it to become poker famous and social media famous. So she's very, very, very much leaning into this, and I have a feeling, since she has the bankroll, or someone else's bankroll, whatever it is, she's, she has money from somewhere to enter these tournaments. And I think she will continue to. I think we're going to see a lot of her at the World Series of Poker. I have a feeling that I will see her around the World Series of Poker. She may not be at my table, but who knows, she could be. But I'm sure I'm walking around the World Series in 2023, I will see her around. I bet she'll be ever-present during those seven weeks of the World Series of Poker and firing, 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 and hoping to make it deep into these events, maybe even get lucky and win a bracelet or make a final table. So get used to Robbie Jade Lou. She's going to be here. Alex Jacob is a name that you've probably heard for a while in poker, and also in Jeopardy, if you are a fan of Jeopardy. Alex Jacob is someone that I got to know in the 2000s. He was a very young guy then. He came into the poker scene by winning a bunch of money on poker stars, like a lot of these young guys did. Very smart guy. There's no question that he's a very intelligent guy. I can tell you from spending time with him in person... I've gone to dinner with him, and not like in a big group. I actually went to dinner with uh, him and his now wife and my then-girlfriend. So I, I've, I was never close to him. We were never really friends. But I have spent some time with him, both alone and in a group setting. And I can tell you, he's a, like a soft-spoken guy. He's quiet. He's kind of shy. And you know, maybe he's changed. I haven't spent any time with him recently. But that, uh, that was my impression of him then. And his girlfriend, whose name was uh, Jennifer, she was actually part of Never Win Poker at one point, And she got kind of involved in the whole Brandy Hallbaker story when uh, Brandy uh, committed suicide in uh, 2008 because she was friends with Brandy. 
and so she she had a lot to say about that whole thing. Uh, she has been with Alex since they were in high school. So Alex has only had one girlfriend his entire life. And I don't know if she had any boyfriends prior to Alex, but uh, if she did, it wasn't anything significant. Like since high school, they've been together and now they're either like both in the late thirties at this point and they are married. Uh, Jen does not care for me very much anymore. And I'll tell you the reason it has to do with this site and something that I reported. And I felt I was fair about it, but uh, she, she didn't like it. My position with people's personal business is if they put it out on social media, I'm going to talk about it. If they don't put it out on social media, and it's just something I hear through the grapevine, a lot of times I will keep my mouth shut, even if it's an interesting story and even if I know it's true. So I'm not even talking about for like legal reasons, about worried about being sued for slander. I'm talking about ones where I know verifiably something's true, but it's a personal story about someone that is not out in the public. There's a lot of stories I've heard over the years in poker, ones that I'm sure you guys would find very interesting that I won't say because it's kind of a dick move to do because these are people's private business that things are told to me and I hear them. And even if I know them to be true, I don't think it's always appropriate to put out on this show. And I'm sure you understand. I'm sure you could picture yourself in that situation. You wouldn't want someone like me just putting out your private business on the show because I hear about it. So I, I look at this from a human perspective and think, should this be talked about? However, if someone puts their personal business up on social media, on public social media, I don't mean on their private Facebook where only their 50 friends can see. I mean public social media like Twitter. Then it's fair game. Because if you're posting your private business for everyone to see, then obviously people have a right to talk about it. And if you don't want that, then don't post your stuff up there. Now, I'm not talking about if someone forces something up there against your will. Like, let's say someone posts something about uh, your relationship that you didn't want out there, like some former friend of yours, and then eventually you address it. Well, then it becomes more complicated because, yes, you addressed it, so at that point it kind of becomes fair game. But at the same time, this was brought out when he really didn't want it brought out. But if someone puts out their own dirty laundry, then I feel it's okay for me to talk about it. So what happened was uh, some years ago, I don't know, maybe five, six, I, I, I forgot, I lost track. But sometime around there, like mid-2010s, Alex Jacob's account, and Alex Jacob has a pretty decent following at this point because he was on the show Jeopardy and did very well. He had like an aggressive style there where he was going after the high-value questions first, and it worked very well. So between that and his strong knowledge of trivia, he did very well and kept winning on the show. So he actually has fans from his Jeopardy days, and he has almost 30,000 followers for that reason. He would not have anywhere near that amount of followers if he never played Jeopardy, but because he was on Jeopardy and did very well, now he has a good following. So... His account some years ago tweeted out very strange things admitting he had an affair and how he fucked over his wife, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, that's just so weird. And I never got verification of this, but it looked like it was probably written by his wife on his account. It didn't look like it was him confessing. So this was interesting. And, uh, 
it stayed up for a while. And finally, I, I put it up on Poker Fraud Alert because why not? It's on his freaking account with all those followers. I, I didn't hear this rumor and, and break the news. This was on his own account. And his account wasn't hacked or anything. Then what was really weird is someone showed up who had knowledge of the situation. I don't know if it was his wife. I don't know if it was some friend of his wife's. Someone knew a whole lot about the situation, created an account on Poker Fraud Alert just for this purpose, and then posted a picture of the woman that he was alleged to have had the affair with. And uh, then that person disappeared and wouldn't answer any questions. And then... I guess they all got over it, and uh, they're still married. So, okay, you know, whatever. Uh, it's not a big deal. It's it's really between the two of them. I, I don't really care. It was interesting because he was a notable person in poker and on Jeopardy, and his account is, is posting these weird messages about how, had he, how he had an affair and blah, blah, blah. Like, And it doesn't seem like it's really him posting it. Like that, yeah, that was interesting. I had to bring it to Poker Fraud Alert because it was public and it was interesting. It was nothing against him, nothing against his wife. It was just news because it was right there on his own account and it did not look like a, a hacking, nor did they ever claim it was a hacking. So, okay, you know, someone put this out there when it shouldn't have been put out there and it's regrettable that they did, but once they did, it's out there. And it stayed up long enough. It's not like it was up there for five minutes and deleted. If if that happened, I wouldn't have said anything. But it was up there for a while. So I, I talked about it on Poker Fraud Alert. Anyway, I, I heard his wife was unhappy with me for putting this up on Poker Fraud Alert, which I don't understand because this was from his own account. And there, there was nothing malicious intended here. There really wasn't. But uh, that's what happened there. And... Uh, I also think she's friends, or shall I say was friends, with Joy Miller, who just never liked me and did some not-so-nice things to me in the late 2000s. And, you know, what Joy Miller did has nothing to do with Alex Jacobs' wife, and I don't blame her for any of it, but uh, I believe she was friends with Joy Miller and also when I was arguing with Joy about this years later was, you know, made some snide comments on Twitter from what I remember Whatever, you know, she doesn't care for me too much. But at the same time, you know, I I, I don't really have anything against uh, either of these people, especially Alex. Uh, it's just one of these things like, okay, you know, she just doesn't like me for this and that reason, and I don't love all the things she said, but, you know, it's no big deal. So when I've seen her argue with a lot of people, I'm talking about Alex Jacobs' wife, I haven't gotten involved. I haven't commented on it. I haven't uh, piled on. Because she's... Jennifer has made herself into one of these uh, fanatical feminists who's always uh, attacking people for criticizing women in poker, even times when the women in poker deserve it. Because just because you're female doesn't mean you can't do something wrong. I agree that attacking someone because they're female or attacking them more vigorously because they're female is wrong. But attacking someone who is female is not wrong if they did something wrong and deserve the uh, the criticism. And when I say attacking, I mean on social media. I don't mean physically attacking. So I think male or female, if you have engaged in wrongdoing, then people 
should criticize you for it and and shouldn't be afraid to do so because you're one gender or another. So anyway, uh, she has gone back and forth with a lot of people, including Matt Berkey, by the way. She had a very nasty exchange with him. And I've seen these things happen, and I never piled on. I'm blocked, but I could still easily get involved, but I chose not to because why should I? You know, this is really not my business. I just uh, observed and let it all happen and chose not to get involved in any of it. Alex, however, remained mild-mannered. He did not do what his wife was doing. He was not picking fights. He was uh, being cordial and friendly to everybody. And I'll tell you something. Even after his wife had the problem with me, Alex uh, sent me a message himself and asked me if I could remove something on Poker Fraud Alert that was inconsequential and stupid, but like it, was, it wasn't removing anything scandalous. It was just removing something he didn't want up there. And I, I said, okay, no problem. I, I responded out of respect for you because I never had a problem with him. He was uh, always pleasant with me. So I said, okay, out of respect for you, I will remove it, and I did. It wasn't a big thing I removed, but uh, and I'll do this for people. If there's something that someone is uncomfortable with on my site, and it is not a consequential post or thread, and especially if it's years old, and for whatever reason they'd like it gone, you can message me, and if you can convince me that there's a good reason to remove it or why it's causing you trouble, I'll... I will get rid of it if I think that's warranted. I'm not going to be convinced to remove threads about scammers or anything like that, but Alex Jacob has never been a scammer. He hasn't done anything bad to anybody from what I've seen. So, uh, you know, the the one thing he wanted me to remove, I I removed. No big deal. So even after all that, I removed it. uh, You know, he asked politely, and I said, okay, I'll do it. There's never any kind of... uh, threats, legal or otherwise, he just said, can you remove this? Uh, I don't like this up there. And I said, okay, and I removed it. Well, I saw something out of Alex Jacob for the first time that I had never seen before. And that is, he is uh, coming aggressively at people and pissing people off. Very unlike him. I don't know what caused this, but he has taken the position and it first started on Joey Ingram's show. There was a segment with him and Haralabob where they were discussing Robbie Jade Lou. It was the same night that she was on there with that Julie Yorn woman when Julie and Robbie were arguing back and forth. I played part of that on this last show, and you heard a little bit of Haralal Bob in that, but uh, Alex was not on yet. But Alex came on later, and he gave his take, and then, then he started arguing in a friendly manner, you know, he wasn't hostile, but he was arguing back and forth with Haralabob about the entire situation and, you know, what you can think about Robbie. And he was very, very, very pro-Robbie. And keep in mind, Haralabob is not anti-Robbie. In fact, he's kind of pro-Robbie also, but he wasn't as pro-Robbie as Alex was. And Alex was just, you could tell, like, even on the show, being very aggressive about it. While polite, he was very aggressive in his beliefs. And he was kind of taking like a male feminist tone to the whole thing. And I found it kind of off-putting. Like I, I, I turned it off. It just, it got on my nerves. I also kind of felt like both he and Haralabob weren't like fully understanding the situation, which was surprising because these are both very smart guys. These are guys who really have been successful 
in things they've done, which require smarts. Haralla Bobby, you probably know, was, was very successful in the sports betting world and also even had a, an executive position with the Dallas Mavericks until recently. And uh, Alex Jacob had this uh, run on Jeopardy, which was really impressive. So these are two very smart guys, and I still felt like they, they weren't getting some things here with the Robbie J. Lou situation, but especially Alex. And it, it, it irritated me enough to where I turned it off. I just didn't want to hear it anymore. But okay, whatever. You know, so Alex and I think differently about it, and he was passionate about it. Okay, whatever. You know, who am I to say what he should think? We all have our opinion. That's what makes this so interesting. But he started tweeting about this, and he kept tweeting and tweeting and tweeting, and really just tweeting in a matter which was, while not insulting, kind of condescending and very closed-minded to other points of view. So he decided that Robbie was innocent, completely innocent, 100% innocent, there's no chance of anything else, and that anyone who thinks otherwise is a misogynist or is stupid or can't think critically. That, That was basically what he was putting out. And he has been tweeting and tweeting and tweeting about this over and over and over again. If you scroll down his tweets and look at both his tweets and his replies to tweets, you'll see over and over and over all he can do is talk about Robbie. A few other things he talks about, but for the most part, it's Robbie, 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 Robbie. And he is strongly, strongly, strongly trying to convince you, almost like he's her attorney, which he's not. He's not even an attorney. But the way he's coming off is like he's her attorney or her paid publicist, which he's also not. And just very, very strongly putting forth that she's completely innocent. There's no other chance of anything else. Now, I will admit that right now, if I had to choose, did she cheat or did she not cheat, that she did not. And when I had this discussion last night with a recreational poker player who I'm friends with when I was over at his house, I told him that I thought that Robbie probably didn't cheat but you can't be sure, and I'm less sure that she didn't cheat than before the whole thing came out about that Brian guy stealing the chips. But even with that, though, I, I still am more on the side that she didn't cheat. But with that said, you can't say there's a 0% chance she cheated. That's stupid. But boy, is Alex Jacob pushing this hard. And he's not allowing people to have their own opinion. It's one thing to say, well, my opinion is this. But, okay, you can have your opinion. But he is acting like you're insane or a misogynist to have any other opinion besides his. So this has been starting to grate on people, even people who are in the Robbie didn't cheat camp, even on some people who normally will jump on the, oh, you're just a, you're just a, giving a hard time to this woman because she's female bandwagon. And there are people on poker Twitter who brand themselves feminists who will always jump on your back if you dare criticize any female in poker, even if what you have to say has merit. Even some of those people who I don't like, even some of them are getting sick of Alex Jacob and his routine. Now, Alex Jacob is somewhat taking this in good humor. For example, and I don't even know who this person is, a person named Haley, Vegas Hales, Vegas H-A-Y-L-S, wrote 
why is Alex Jacobs still talking? Jesus fucking Christ, that dude's annoying. And he retweeted it. This got 271 likes, by the way. But I don't think this is a joke. But Alex was doing this so much and pushing so hard to try to convince everyone that Robbie is 100% totally innocent, no question, that I actually started to think maybe he's just trolling. Maybe he doesn't even believe this or doesn't believe this as much as he says and is just trying to get under people's skin. Maybe he's like laughing about this in the background. And he might be. I still haven't ruled this out. It's possible Alex is doing a masterful troll job here. And if he is, okay, good job. My hat's off to you there. If this turns out to be a troll, then I'm going to give Alex Jacob big-time props for pulling off a convincing troll job because not many people think he's trolling. People think he's serious. And I'm actually more believing he is serious, and that's a sad thing. If this is a troll job, it's it's great. Then that's brilliant. But if this is serious, then I don't understand it. But boy, has he been hitting this really hard. And I don't understand the reason for it. Now, it's true that his wife, Jen, has the same opinion. But that doesn't mean he has to push like this. And in the past, he hasn't gotten involved in her internet battles with Poker Twitter. Because she's been in a lot of internet battles with Poker Twitter, as I mentioned, like uh, against Matt Berkey. Like he didn't jump on Matt Berkey when she was jumping on Matt Berkey. But he's jumping on this big time. And some people are saying, oh, Alex is, is being a simp. He's trying to get Robbie to have sex with him. I don't even believe that. I don't think that Alex is trying to get with Robbie. I, I think that he has taken this weird male feminist position and now like has to defend it and is just going overboard, going crazy defending it to the point where it's really, really getting on everyone's nerves. And from some people, this would make sense, but not Alex Jacob. He's like a very mild-mannered guy. That's what I don't get. That's what's so strange about this. I would totally expect this from his wife, but Alex himself didn't do things like this before. But he chose this weird hill to die on. And when I say die on, it really is getting a number of people frustrated with him who used to like him. Because before there wasn't a reason not to like him. He was a mild-mannered guy he did very well on Jeopardy and kind of did the poker world proud by being good at Jeopardy. And he really didn't give anyone a reason in the past to dislike him. Even that affair thing. I mean, it was kind of weird, but the, like the way it ended up on his Twitter. But nobody cares about that because it's between him and his wife. I thought it was an interesting thing to talk about on the forum because he, it was put out on his own Twitter. But at the same time, I wasn't judging him for this. I wasn't saying, oh, Alex is an awful guy. Like, this, this is really something that is is a matter between him and his wife, and the only reason it was being discussed is because it was being played out on his own Twitter account. So no one disliked him for that. No one disliked him for anything. Like, I couldn't even think of someone before this who didn't like Alex Jacob. He wasn't, like, super popular because, as I said, he's kind of quiet, he's kind of shy, he doesn't... Uh, really have the big personality people are going to take notice of. People really took notice of his Jeopardy play, but that's about it. But people liked him. I, I didn't know anyone who didn't like him. But now there's a ton of people who don't like him because they find him annoying. Marley, that is Marley Sprague now, you know, she's married to 
that spraggy character from the UK. She is very outspoken on social media. Marley has never cared what anyone has had to say about her. And by the way, you might remember I played with a then totally unknown Marley on Live at the Bike a number of years ago. One of my few appearances on Live at the Bike, Marley was in my game. This is what she wrote. She was dating someone else at the time, by the way. She was dating another dude at the table who was not spraggy. But I digress. This is what she wrote on October 22nd. It has a lucky 777 likes. Hey, Alex Jacob, your wife DM'd me, and I just want to be clear. I was out of line speaking about Robbie like that three weeks ago. She had some various criticisms for Robbie then that weren't all related to the scandal. She said, and for that, I apologize to her. But I think your brain busto, just like your wife, go fuck yourself. Wow. Just told Alex Jacob to go fuck himself and that he's brain busto, just like his wife, Jen. Wow. Wow. Well, that got 777 likes. So obviously, people agreed. Then if you click and expand, there is a discussion. Alex responded. He said, I'm posting this because your tweet makes it sound like Jen DM'd you something out of line when she was really just trying to defend me. I understand you coming after me because I called you out first, but I don't think Jen deserved this. So it's interesting he mentioned that he called her out first. I don't know what Marley said for him to call out, but he was calling out a ton of people. So then he showed DMs where, uh, this is only a partial conversation, of course, but where Marley said, thanks, I appreciate that. It was a particularly rough day for me, and I shouldn't have been calling it a podcast, referring to what she had to say about Robbie a few weeks ago. And then Jen said back, Marley, are you for real out here in the Twitter streets liking tweets, calling Alex annoying today after he did you guys that favor last night after the sob story Spraggy sent? LOL, okay. So I don't know what favor, supposedly, Alex did for Marley after the sob story her husband sent. But Jen was giving Marley a hard time for liking tweets that called Alex annoying. (laughs) She didn't call Alex annoying. She just liked a tweet calling Alex annoying. And notice Alex retweeted a tweet calling him annoying. It's right there on his Twitter. So what the hell? So Alex can retweet something that calls him annoying, but if Marley hits the like button, one of hundreds of people hitting the like button, that's a big offense, apparently. So that uh, did not sit well with Marley, who then blocked her. (laughs) And then she explains the sob story a bit, Marley. She said, yeah, it wasn't a sob story, and she's mad I liked Cherish Andrew's tweet which was fucking hilarious, and she's 100% right, I'd like it a million times again. Cherish Andrews, by the way, is another outspoken female poker player. I've played with her before, too. I played with her at the World Series, and the Cherish Andrews I played with is very different than the Cherish Andrews on social media. The Cherish Andrews on social media is always uh, not only outspoken, but will like openly talk about sexual things and is often very crass and... You know, it, it it can be a humorous account sometimes, but 
you would not expect this like quiet girl who doesn't say a word at the table, but that's that's what Cherish Andrews was when I played with her. Maybe, maybe it was just that day, but I mean, she didn't say a word to anybody. So that's kind of totally not what you'd expect of her. But getting back to what she tweeted about uh, Alex Jacob, she wrote back to Alex Jacob. This is what Alex wrote on October 22nd. So this is just a, a day ago now. It's so impressive to me that in the midst of this shitstorm, Robbie Lou just cashed in a $10,000 buy-in tournament filled with some of the best players in the world. Last woman standing in the event. If you're still saying this person's a cheater, it's time to reevaluate. And all Cherish said back was, you're annoying. Can you be done? (laughs) I don't love all of Cherish Andrews' tweets. Sometimes I think she tries too hard to be like this girl who says shocking things but that was funny that was a good tweet it was just it was short but it, it was great because in it, it because of its brevity and how much it said in a few words it was great you're annoying can you be done that's like what a lot of people are thinking it got 119 likes so one of those 119 likes was marley and this got alex jacob's wife furious enough to message Marley and get mad at her because Alex supposedly did her a favor. Like, really? It's not like they're good friends. I I could see if they're really good friends and then Marley likes a tweet that says that Alex is knowing and she's like, hey, I thought we were friends. Why are you doing that? Like, apparently they barely know each other and I guess they had one interaction where, quote, some favor was done. So, come on. Like, what? You think now Marley owes you her firstborn? She can't ever like a tweet saying you're annoying? That is overreaching for sure then a guy named timothy said alex someone saying that your tweets are annoying is kind of true and i agree with you i think that some people are saying that she's a cheat because of sexism but you lash out at everyone it's exhausting and then alex said back to timothy lash out at everyone the tweet in question calling me annoying which i didn't really care about by the way was in response to me saying i was impressed with robbie cashing the tournament and then someone named uh, john stuckey said The irony is he is acting as intolerant, if not much worse, as those he is debating. Everything apparently is proof she didn't cheat, even completely independent events, and nobody's allowed to strongman the cheater's side. So basically he's saying that Alex is just being super ideologically intolerant, that if you have any different opinion about Robbie not cheating or not believing that unrelated events prove she didn't cheat, then you're a terrible person, according to Alex. I will say the point that Alex was making that if she cashed in a tough event, that that means she wasn't cheating, that's really not true. As pointed out by someone who responded to him, who listens to this show, that actually makes it more likely that she cheated because that shows that she's not an incompetent player because that Jack Four was either a horrendous call by an incompetent player or a cheat. So if you want to go with incompetent player, then her cashing in a tough event would kind of say she's not an incompetent player. Now, it is true that you can cash in an event without being that good. There are plenty of fish who have cashed in events, even tough events before, just because they got lucky. So cashing in one WPT event doesn't mean she's a great player. I'm just saying that the argument that her cashing in that event meant that she didn't cheat on Hustler Casino Live is very fallacious. So anyway, they went 
back and forth there. Alex said back to Marley, I obviously had no way of knowing you apologized to Robbie. I do think I was justified in calling those statements out. I want you to know I would have never deleted that tweet if Jen hadn't asked me to. Yes, Spraggy's DM helped, but Jen had asked me to delete it before that. So I, I guess maybe it was the tweet bashing Marley for what she had said about Robbie or something, and Spraggy asked uh, if Alex would do that. But, I mean, this whole thing is stupid. It definitely doesn't mean that Marley can't like a tweet calling him annoying. Matt Berkey, he chimed in here. Remember, he had gone at it with uh, Jen Jacob, Alex's wife in the past, recent past. Matt Berkey said, I've blocked like 10 people ever. No single action of disengagement gave me greater peace of mind than blocking Jen. Wow. (laughs) So Matt Berkey said that he has never had an act of disengagement that was more satisfying to him than blocking Alex Jacobs' wife. (laughs) Oh, my. Jared Smith, who I mentioned before, when he tweeted saying about uh, find someone who looks at you the same way Robbie looks, or the same way that Rip looks at Robbie, he just wrote, "LOL, they deserve each other," and that has been a lot of the sentiment in general. Even though this tweet from Jared didn't get any likes, this has been the sentiment in general from a lot of the poker community that a lot of people found Jen to be kind of abrasive and over-opinionated and accusatory to people, but they're just kind of like, okay, whatever, that's Alex Jacobs' wife, you know, we'll just kind of uh, disengage, as Berkey said, but they all quietly respected Alex and liked Alex, and that's probably some of the reason they disengaged, and now they're like, oh, these two deserve each other. I don't know why Alex Jacob did this. Like, he he has a right to do this. He hasn't done anything shady. He hasn't done anything evil or bad. It's just kind of torpedoing a reputation that he had for now more than 15 years as a soft-spoken, agreeable, nice guy. Why over this? I don't think he's ever even met Robbie Jade Lou in person. So it's really weird. All I can say is this is weird. And as I said, Marley's tweet has right now 777 likes, and it was just made a little more than 24 hours ago. So obviously this isn't just Marley with a personal beef. A lot of people felt the way she did. Such a weird thing for Alex to stake his reputation on. And it's not staking his reputation on, like, that he's going to end up looking bad if he's wrong. It's the way he's doing it. There's a lot of other people who are defending Robbie and saying she didn't cheat that nobody's mad at because everybody has an opinion. It's generally accepted in poker that having a differing opinion on this is fine. It's generally accepted that this is not totally clear and that there's a wide spectrum of opinions here. So people aren't getting angry, for the most part, that someone has a different opinion than them. It's just the way Alex Jacob is doing it, and it's so unlike him. It's so unlike him. It's unlike what I've seen of him on social media. It's unlike what I saw of him when I've spent time with him in person. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. 
Sometimes people will kind of go down a road and then they just can't get off. It's kind of like the sunk cost theory where people will keep putting resources or money or time or effort into something which was already a mistake and they'd best be suited to just walk away from it. But they keep sinking resources into it. That might be what's happening here that he really felt she was innocent. He really felt that she was being treated unfairly. So he stated it and then he was over aggressively stating it and then it was getting on people's nerves and then he kept doing it because he didn't want to give up and he felt like backing down at all or even being open-minded to anyone else having a different opinion would make it look like his point isn't this strong and I, I think that he feels like he can't walk away from it at this point that's my only theory unless he's trolling if he's trolling then again great job I can appreciate a masterfully planned troll job. I really can. If he comes out later and he's serious, if he's not just making excuses and he's serious and he says, guys, I never thought this. I was just trying to see how you guys would react. I've been doing this just for fun. I'm just doing this to demonstrate how absurd Twitter is and just a little troll and experiment on my part. And sorry if I offended anyone. And I know I was annoying. I know I was trying to be annoying. I was trying to see how far I could push it. So Sorry, guys, this was all planned. Okay, I will take my hat off to him. I'll tell you in advance, if that's what he comes out with, and if it's believable, then I will give him credit. I'm telling you that right now. And you can hold me to that. Very odd. You don't see this very often. You don't see where someone who has had a good reputation for so many years just goes and torches it over something stupid. It's not like... He scammed someone because he was broke. Not that I'm defending scamming, but at least when someone's broke and scams, you can understand their motivation. It's a motivation I don't agree with. If you're broke, you should either stop playing or get a job to earn some money and then and then try to go back and play poker once you have some savings or maybe get someone to stake you or, or, or borrow from a friend or family member, uh, whatever. But at least when someone scams when they're broke, I can understand their line of thinking. Their thinking is, well, if I could just get a little bit of a bankroll, then I can get back on my feet and I'll pay back the people I scammed. So I'll just scam in the meantime as a way to get back in action. Again, I don't agree. I think it's unethical. I think it's bad. But at least I can understand the thought process. I don't understand his thought process. I don't understand what he's doing here. I don't understand what he thinks he's going to gain from it. I don't understand why he keeps pressing this when it's clear that poker Twitter is so annoyed with it. Like, I'm seeing very few people say, oh yeah, Alex Jacob, he's doing the Lord's work. He's doing what needs to be done. He's on a noble quest here. I respect him for what he's writing. Like, like hardly anyone's saying that. Even people who agree with him are saying, he's annoying the hell out of me. So, so why? If I was tweeting about a subject, and even the people who agreed with me are like, enough, I don't want to hear about this anymore, or I don't like the way you're approaching this. Like, if I was getting nothing but negative feedback, I would back off pretty quickly. I would not turn my whole identity into something everybody hates. Very weird. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. I have some texts I got here from the 760 
I was at the bike the other day, and they've beautified the room. Tan, tan, tan. Was it beautified? I don't know. I've I've been to the bike recently. I've played there a number of times in September and October. And I don't know. Was it really beautified? It kind of looked like what I remembered. From the 773, how often do players bank, I think it means back, other players and not tell the table? How shady is that? Rip banked Robbie and no one knew until after she gave his money back? Yeah, that was definitely unethical. Uh, Some people who defended her said that they just didn't know that they should disclose this. But yeah, this is definitely something you should disclose at a high-stakes game if somebody is backing you who's also at the table. That needs to be known. And in fact, when Rip made it known, and to his credit, he wasn't trying to hide it. They didn't tell people, but at least when he got mad about her giving Garrett the money back, he openly said that he's mad about it for a reason and said, what reason do you think that there might be for why I'd be mad at this? Like he's saying this out loud and he's repeating it so everyone at the table gets the picture. So he was trying to get everybody to understand that he was backing her. And then she said, yeah, well, now they know. Now they, now it's out. So she thought this was a secret. Now, maybe she didn't realize that it's unethical to hide this. But who knows? She's definitely not someone I would trust. Even if she didn't cheat. Even if God himself came down and said, I'm going to tell you one thing and one thing only. Robbie did not cheat in any way. I would say, okay, thank you. I believe you. But I still don't trust her about other things because <laughs> it seems like she has a hard time telling the truth. Okay, final topic on this Robbie J. Lou matter and then we will move on. Garrett Adelstein did an interview with the LA Times just like Robbie J. Lou did. Seems like everyone's getting their moment in the sun in the LA Times about this matter. So Robbie J. Lou did one and now we have Garrett I'm not going to read you the whole article. You can go find it on the LA Times. This was in the business section on October 14th by the same woman who has been doing all these articles. Her name is Andrea Chang. She's been with the Times for a long time. And there's even a link to the Robbie J. Liu article. Some interesting things came out in this article, though. First of all, Garrett revealed to this reporter that he once played in a home game where he was cheated out of $100,000. And that when he brought the concern about this $100,000 he was cheated out of, the money was returned to him with the condition that he promises not to say anything about having been cheated there. That is not very ethical. The article says this. When he was 26, he was invited to a home game where he bought in for $100,000. High-stakes poker games are notoriously rife with cheating and illicit activities, and Adelstein said he had a really, really bad vibe throughout the night. He believed the dealer was setting the deck in collusion with four players at the table, a suspicion that was heightened when his second nut flush was beaten by the nut flush, the best possible five-suited cards in a given hand. It's a scenario that happens, but, quote, quite rarely, Adelstein said. Well, it's not that rare, but it doesn't happen all the time. But I'm not going, oh, my God, a, a ace high flush over a king high flush. No, that never happens. But 
I understand if you already thought there was cheating going on there and then this happens, why that would really make you suspicious. Having lost all his money, Adelstein left. This is about 10 years ago, by the way. But the incident rattled him, and he soon got in touch with the host of the game, who offered to meet at Q's billiard room in West Los Angeles. There, Adelstein said, he laid out his suspicions about the intricacies of the operation to the host and a business partner, and said he would go public with what happened. They offered me a deal where they would refund my money in exchange for my silence, he said, and they paid me in six installments, once a month for a six-month period. So I guess they sent him like 16K and change for six months, and they did pay him. Now, apparently, he had talked about this in the past on a poker podcast, but this was talked about in the article, which is what really brought people's attention to it. So this already got a lot of people angry because Garrett was basically admitting that he was willing to let other people get cheated in that game 10 years ago as long as he got his money back when he got victimized. Now, you can say a lot of other people would take this deal, too, because they want their 100K back, and that's the only way to get it, then a lot of people would do it. But for a guy who's so outraged about cheating and about being cheated, so he says on the Hustler Casino live stream, he took back 100K 10 years ago to keep his mouth shut about cheating in the game. Then at the end of the article, I'm going to read you another little section. You can go back and read the rest yourself. Live at the bike, on which Adelstein has played several times, has been hitting him up since September 29th, that's the day all this happened, in the hopes that he would join its stream. But he said he's not in the right headspace for it. And then he said, there's, I guess, a world in the next several weeks or months where maybe I'm able to process this and want to play a poker game. But at the moment, that's not how I feel. I'm not playing poker again on a stream unless I see tangible, noticeable, measurable differences in live stream security. That's for my own benefit, and it's for the benefit of the poker community at large. So it sounds like that Garrett has quit poker, at least live stream poker, unless he feels the game is very secure and that they've shown him the differences between Hustler Casino Live when he played and whatever the stream is next. He also just hasn't played. He says he hasn't been in uh, the right headspace to play any poker. That's interesting, but not surprising. It's not surprising that he doesn't want to play poker right now. What really has been traumatizing to him was not the feeling that he got cheated. Remember, he got cheated 10 years ago and eventually got the money back, but he kept playing. I think this was the beatdown his reputation has taken from this. Because even those who think that maybe he is onto something and that there was cheating and that he did get cheated in that hand, a lot of people don't feel he handled it right, and a lot of people don't like how he is still holding the money instead of putting it somewhere to be escrowed. Now, he could say, oh, I gave it to charity, but if it wasn't his money to take, he can't just give it to charity. It's not his to give. I've said that many times. People are also laughing about some of the pictures he took. They, they have these posed pictures for the article, one where he's sitting on this weird kind of stool-like chair he has in his house and looking thoughtfully out into the distance. He's also wearing shoes with no socks for some reason. Then there's another picture where he's standing with his arms crossed, looking defiant, also at that same home, which is his house. And then one everyone really laughs at, where he is, again, at his house, but like in an outdoor balcony or something, but he's leaning against the wall, 
and you can see his reflection in the window he's standing next to. And he just looks like he's in deep thought. He looks like he's kind of unhappy and in deep thought. It's also not a good picture of him. He looks kind of old and like like the Garrett I've seen is a lot better looking than the one in this picture. This main picture is a very bad picture of him. Like if someone told me that they're from the future and this is Garrett in the year 2035, I'd actually believe them. It looks like way older and just worse. It's weird. I know people have bad pictures, but it's funny they chose this one. I think it's because of the reflection, because, you know, it's got a hidden meaning to it. Garrett is reflecting. And get it? There's a reflection of him. Mmm. But people have made all these memes of that picture. So this article didn't go over well. People found that it was kind of him acting holier than thou and still defending his position of taking the money, and they didn't like the fact that he's acting so self-righteous about the alleged cheating at the game when he took 100k 10 years ago to keep his mouth shut about cheating. All fair points. He's not handling this well. If he does have like any kind of crisis management team or, or something that's directing his actions here, they're not doing a good job. Since he didn't seem to care about the money, he gave 135k to charity. Now, admittedly, it's a charity that he's been supporting for six years and he believes in. But you see, he wasn't keeping the money just for the money if he gave that amount to charity. Though he does get a write-off for it. But if I were to be advising Garrett here, I would say that he should put the money in escrow and then put out a statement that while he was very suspicious of the hand and while he was on edge already about cheating on the live streams because of the possible situation and others that have occurred in the past, that... He overreacted, but he's still very suspicious about what da- what went down, but that he's very happy to have this money stay in escrow until a panel of poker players that he respects and trusts get together and kind of arbitrate where that money should go, whether it should go to him or go to Robbie J. Lou or something else, but that he's trusting, he's going to pick you know, several people who are neutral in this to who are trusted and respected by the community to decide the fate of the money and that he acknowledges that while he thinks this is very suspicious that there is no proof so he shouldn't have come at this one so strongly. Something along those lines. Something where he's humble, he admits that there were some missteps, he admits that he was overzealous in his allegations and that, and also to admit that uh, it was wrong to demand the money up front to go to him, that he should have demanded that you put the money in escrow somewhere. But he hasn't done that. All he does is keep doubling and tripling down on what he did, which most people don't like. Time for some topics outside of the Robbie Jade Lou situation. There's more going on than just that. There is a guy named Nick Howard... And he is some sort of like poker mindset coach and he teaches you how to move up from the small stakes into the medium and bigger stakes. And I guess if he thinks you're showing promise that he will stake you himself to play in the bigger games. 
But he revealed something interesting on Twitter. He's always trying to post things on Twitter that are deep and uh, make you think and always trying to make you think that this is a guy with all the answers. Usually he relates it to poker in some way. And some people find it annoying and some people have called him out for being uh, phony or overly reliant on these little anecdotes. But this one really got attention. This is what he tweeted on October 17th. In 2012, I ate dog food. Today, I own one of the largest poker staking companies in the world. Here's a three-minute breakdown of a 10-year struggle to success story. So he's telling us that in 2012, he actually ate dog food. Who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? So is this true? Who let the dogs out? Did Nick Howard really eat dog food in 2012? And now does he really own a large staking operation? Has he really risen to these heights in 10 years? Well, the poker world is debating this. The first question came up regarding the dog food itself. There is a myth that dog food is cheaper than all human food. And that if you are so poor that you can't afford human food, that you have to eat dog food to survive. And it turns out that's not true. In fact, this criticism came up not of Nick Howard in 2022, though it did there as well. But it first came up in the 1970s. There was an episode of Good Times where the upstairs neighbor, who was a nice older woman, was found to have empty cans of dog food in her garbage, even though she didn't have a dog. And as the episode wore on, she admitted that she had been eating dog food because she was so poor. And there were some comedic scenes in the whole thing, like where she brought over a meatloaf for the Evans family to eat and nobody wanted to touch it because they thought it was made of dog food. And it turned out it wasn't, and she was kind of insulted that they thought that she would do this to them. But anyway, let's get back to reality. Good Times, of course, is a fictional show. But on Good Times, some people criticized that episode, even though it's a very well-remembered episode. Some people criticized it because even in the 70s, dog food was more expensive than some very cheap options that people can eat. For example, Top Ramen. That was true in the 70s. That is true today. You could buy Top Ramen for a lot cheaper than you can buy dog food. So there'd be no point to eat dog food. So people are assuming here that Nick Howard knew this too. In fact, all it would take was him walking around the store to see the cheapest thing he could buy to eat, and it would not be dog food. So people thought this is probably just him exaggerating or outright making it up for effect. After some controversy about this, I'm not going to bother to read you his... Uh, inspiring success story. But two days later, after there was a lot of joking about the dog food, in fact, 
people were comparing his October 17th tweet about the dog food to Nick Vertucci's October 17th tweet about the poker Karen. Because it was both on October 17th when Nick Vertucci was uh, posting that and when Nick Howard said he ate dog food. So the question was, which Nick was crazier on October 17th? Well, two days later, Nick Howard tweeted this. Did I really need to eat the dog food? Probably not. Was it some masochistic impulse to cement a rock-bottom experience? Probably. So he's already admitting here that he didn't need to eat the dog food. There were other things he could eat. And in fact, maybe he wasn't even totally flat broke. But he's claiming that he did this to cemented in his mind how bad his situation was. He went on to write, Did it fuel me with a new level of intensity? Definitely. Could most struggling poker players benefit from things getting worse? Yes. And then he posted a picture of a dog. So Nick Howard's solution, if you are struggling in poker is that you should eat dog food. Don't just be sad that you've lost most of your bankroll. You need to really hammer this home by opening up a can of Alpo and chowing down. It doesn't have to be dry dog food. It can be the wet kind, but it's got to be dog food. You cannot become successful in poker after going broke unless you eat dog food, according to Nick Howard. What do I believe? Do I think Nick Howard really ate dog food? No. He made up the story, and maybe he saw good times. I don't know. Maybe he got this from good times. Maybe he saw it and forgot he saw it and then took that lesson over to Twitter and thought he was inventing it himself. But I think he made the mistake that the Good Times writers made, that dog food is not the cheapest thing. And I think once that was called out, he had to explain it somehow. So he couldn't say, oh, I ate dog food because it was all I could afford, because people had already answered that. So then he changed it to, well, I had to do this to kick my ass in gear. I had to really show myself how low I had sunk. And the only way way was to make myself eat dog food. But why? That's a, a stupid thing. A masochistic impulse to cement a rock-bottom experience. Yeah, I don't believe it. I don't believe that's really what he d- did. I I think that uh, he made this up, but I think he made this up from kind of partial truth. I think he was struggling in 2012. I don't think that was picked out of the air. And the reason I think that is because I went to his Hendon mob and I looked at his results. Now, Nick Howard has caches dating back to 2009. In 2009, he entered a 2050 No Limit Hold'em event at the Venetian and finished second for 108K. That was his first cash ever. Very nice. Well, I have to imagine, like a lot of people who have initial tournament success, that they believe that they can conquer the world. And he probably overbought in to tournaments and got his ass stomped on. Probably between this and cash games, he got his ass stomped on. So the next cash he had was that year's World Series of Poker in a $1,500 no-limit event on June 16th. And then nothing for the rest of 09. 
World Series or otherwise, and nothing for all of 2010. And then we see him again all the way in December 2011, a sole cash for a $150 event at the Hustler. And he finished in sixth place for a whopping $575. Then he did not cash all the way through 2012. And in May 2013, late May 2013, his next cash was third place. He said, oh, good. At the Rio, oh, good. $185 no-limit hold'em deep stack. So the daily deep stacks at the Rio, as I've said before, are for people who cannot afford to play the bracelet events, which is not a knock on anybody who plays them. I'm not saying that everybody should be able to afford bracelet events. I'm just saying that if you are playing the daily deep stacks, you are not an elite poker player, and you probably don't have a very deep bankroll. You don't have people who have a lot of money playing these deep stacks for $185. It wouldn't make any sense. So this is a guy who cashed 108K in February 09 in his very first cash ever, and then... Here we have him in 2013 entering $185 daily deep stacks when there are World Series of Poker events going for like a thousand bucks. So obviously he was in such dire straits then in 2013 that he could only afford these sub $200 buy-in deep stack events and couldn't play any World Series events. And we don't see him with another World Series cash until May 2015 when he entered the Colossus event for $565. And the first time we see him then with a cash over $1,000 uh, was, or for a buy-in of over 1000 was also in 2015, after he had cashed the $1,000 at the Colossus. He played a deep stack at the MSPT in... Las Vegas, I'm not sure which property, and cash for 2K. So then he was playing some events for the next few years for like a low four-figure buy-in. He he did cash the main event in 2017 in 674th place for 18K. And that was his first five-figure cash since that score he had in 09. So suffice to say that Nick Howard around 2012-2013, really was not doing very well. Otherwise, he would have been entering bracelet events, not the 185 deep stacks. So I do believe that if Nick Howard is doing well today, he is far richer than he was in 2012. So he probably thought back and said, you know, when was the rock-bottom point of my life? And he's probably thinking 2012. My guess is he probably chunked off the 108K that he won in February of 2009 in 2009. I think by the time 2009 was over, he was busto, or close to it. And that's why we don't see any tournament results in 2010 at all. And we don't see him again until he's at a $150 tournament at the end of 2011. So I think around that time, he was just scratching by and maybe even had a regular job. I don't know. But he was scratching by and had a very small bankroll. So he probably picked 2012 number one because it's 10 years ago and that's an even number. And also just because he probably remembered that as kind of being the middle of when he had been struggling for a long time. And then he probably started making money again either through improved poker play or he came up with this whole mindset coaching thing and 
built up a business that way and now uses that to fund his poker play. Keep in mind that he does not have a really, really impressive resume of tournament caches. And he may be a cash player, so that's fine. I know some excellent cash players who have barely cast tournaments ever, but they've they've done really, really well in, in uh, cash games. So he has a 775,000, or 770, not even 775, 770,000 worth of caches total. And the best was actually in 2022 in Texas at Prime Social. He finished second at a $5,300 event for 303K. So prior to March of 2022, he only had 400,000 something in caches dating back to 09. And I have to imagine he had a lot more in buy-ins than that. I don't know if he's up lifetime now because of that 303K score he got. But this is not a guy who's been killing it on the tournament scene. So should you be taking advice from him? Well, maybe. Remember, he's not claiming he's going to turn you into a top high-stakes player. He's saying he's going to get you out of the small stakes to where you can compete in the middle and higher stakes and that he will even stake you if he feels that you're up to being able to win at those levels. So he may just be uh, promising to get you out of some bad habits that are keeping you stuck at the small stakes. I don't know. I haven't really looked too carefully at his offerings, and I don't really care. But I thought the dog food thing was interesting. Now, of course, this was on purpose. He wanted to get attention. He, the dog food thing was to get people to notice and I guess it worked. It's the first time I've ever discussed him on this show, despite being aware of him for quite some time. He said some politically incorrect thing some months ago. I forgot what it was about. Maybe women in poker. I forgot what the story was. But it was either about women in poker or about something involving trans people. I don't remember which one. But he got jumped on by the social justice warriors. And I, I thought they were being kind of unfair to him. He made a statement which would have like really been unremarkable maybe like five, six years ago, but now like oversensitive Twitter jumped all over him. But I do see why people think the guy's kind of a douche. He he does seem kind of self-absorbed and a lot of his tweets are very trite. So I see why people find him a little bit irritating. And I don't believe he ate dog food. I just don't believe it happened. All right, moving on. One month ago, there was a robbery at the Lodge Poker Room in Texas. Yes, the same lodge that Doug Polk is a part owner of. Not surprisingly, Doug Polk was not covering this. The last thing he wants to do is make people feel unsafe at the poker room that he partially owns. I'm not saying he should have covered it. I'm just mentioning he didn't. But this really didn't get very much coverage at all because when this became something that was noticed, it happened to be on September 29th. Now, what else happened on September 29th? Yes, the Robbie Jade Lou hand. So nobody was all that interested in the mugging that occurred outside of the lodge when we had Jack Four offsuit to talk about. So fortunately for Doug Polk, this story was drowned out. It reminds me of 
the Gary Condit situation. Remember Gary Condit, the politician who had an affair with a staffer named Chandra Levy, and then she disappeared and was found murdered? And there was even some suspicious, could he have been involved? Did he really do it? They never completely solved that murder. There was one guy they claimed that they believed did it, and they even arrested him for it. I was never totally convinced that guy did it. I mean, the guy they arrested was a piece of crap who had raped a bunch of women in the past, so it's not like I felt bad for him, but I'm still not convinced that was ever solved. But anyway, Chandra Levy was a big story. This was a young woman who was uh, sex- who was murdered, brutally murdered when she was out in Washington, D.C., and was having an affair with her boss, who was a prominent politician. But then the story abruptly lost coverage, and people forgot about it, because September 11th, 2011 happened. And nobody wanted to talk about Gary Condit anymore. So it went from the top story every day in the news to something nobody cared about anymore. But this was even better timing for... Doug Polk, as this happened to come out on the same day, it didn't happen on the same day, but it came out in the news on the same day as the Jack Four offsuit thing at the Hustler. But nevertheless, it happened, and we're going to talk about it here, albeit a little bit late. This was a tweet from the Round Rock Police. Remember, the lodge is located in Round Rock, Texas. It is in the greater Austin area but it is not in Austin. It is in Round Rock. The tweet says, the Round Rock police request assistance in identifying suspects in an aggravated robbery. On Friday, September 23rd, a citizen leaving the Lodge Poker Club at 1401 South IH35 was approached by the pictured suspects. They actually have a picture sort of of the suspects and robbed his backpack and robbed of his backpack containing cash and personal items. If you have any information about this incident or can identify these individuals, please contact Detective Laura Baxter at blah, 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 blah. Anonymous tips can be submitted at whatever. So they have a picture of one of these suspects, and he's wearing a hoodie covering a lot of his face. What sucks is uh, these criminals can now wear masks in plain sight because they're just assumed to be someone who's trying to be safe around covid and in reality, they're just, they're blocking their face. Whereas in the past, someone walking in with a mask, sometimes you'll be suspicious of them. Anyway, so of course, this guy had a mask on. He also had a hoodie, so you couldn't see much of his face. It says, one suspect is described to be a Hispanic male in his 20s wearing a Calvin Klein jeans hoodie, blue jeans, and red sneakers. The suspect was accompanied by two additional unidentified males wearing all black, long-sleeved clothing. The suspects fled the scene in a black BMW displaying no license plate. So they were at least smart enough to take off the license plate when they committed this crime, figuring it would probably be on camera somewhere. And as far as I have seen, there have not been any arrests yet, even though a month has passed since this occurred. The victim was a guy they call Yuchan, Y-O-O-C-H-A-N, on the stream, because they do have a stream from the lodge, you know, similar to Hustler Casino Live, and Yuchan is apparently a regular player on this stream. And he played at the 2550 game they had on the stream that night on September 23rd. And three assailants there, as described, 
took his backpack, which had $30,000 inside of it. He's referred to just as Yu Chan, but his full name is Will Yu Chan. The robbers were inside the lodge watching the game take place and were clearly waiting for the stream to be over and for the players to leave. They do offer security guards at the lodge to walk you to your car, but Will Yu Chan felt that was unnecessary. He probably left the casino a bunch of times and nothing happening, so he probably felt like, why should I ask security guards to escort me out? I don't really need this. The truth is, in Texas, there have been a lot of these robberies, and part of the reason is because these poker rooms are really not set up with the security structure that other casinos and card rooms have, because these are not actual card rooms. They are like small businesses that are meant to look like card rooms and operate like card rooms, but by Texas law, they can't actually be card rooms. So for that reason, they often have a lacking security structure. Now, they do have security guards that will walk you out. And yes, there have been robberies in other parking lots of other casinos, both in Vegas and in L.A., and in many other places around the country. So this is not unique to the Lodge or to Texas. But I've noticed a lot of crime that have been taking place at these Texas poker rooms. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think these are seen as a soft target. Looks like they haven't caught them. So these were probably criminals who prepared well enough to where they couldn't get caught. They They had on the hoodie with the mask, they had the license plate taken off the vehicle, and they knew this high-stakes stream was going and figured, hey, we're going to watch who leaves, we're going to watch people cash out, anyone who takes cash from the cage, I guess, I don't even know if there is a cage there, but anyone who cashes out and leaves with money, we're going to follow out and mug them. So they probably watched him put the cash in his backpack and then followed him out and held him up. They pulled out the gun. Obviously, Will Yu-Chan was not going to fight three guys with a gun pointed at him, and he handed over the backpack, and they said, thank you very much, and they got in the BMW and sped away. So that's the end of his 30K. The lodge did not give him back the money, as far as I know, and I believe the position was that he should have asked for the security guards if he really wanted to prevent this happening, and he did not ask, so he got mugged. That's too bad. I'm not blaming him for this. It actually isn't that common for players to have security to walk them out. That's it's much more the exception than the rule. But the problem with these high-stakes games, especially streamed games, is all it takes is one guy or one guy and two buddies to notice that there's a lot of money in these games and that some of these players are going to leave right when the stream is over. So it's actually also very predictable that people are going to be there and leave with that money. At other casinos and card rooms, it's a little harder to guess when people are going to get up and leave and if they're going to take cash with them. Because what you want is cash. You don't want to get big chips and then have to cash them in somehow, especially at a smaller room like the lodge. So what you want is to just rob someone of cash if you're going to do this. So here they have a streamed game that is that people are going to buy in big and play big and uh, play deep, and some will walk away with a bunch of money, and you just have to follow them out. And there you go. Very easy. And it worked so far. Now, how can you prevent this? Let's say 
you play on one of these streams, or let's say you play high-stakes poker, even not on stream, or let's say you gamble big at the casino, and people are there watching and notice that you cash out a lot. Maybe someone's just kind of hanging around kind of by the cage and just looking at who's getting a lot of money. How do you prevent this? Because if you walk out to the parking lot and some guy pops out with a gun, you're probably going to hand it over. So how do you stop this from happening? Well, I guess one way is to have a security guard walk you out every time, but sometimes it's a pain in the ass. Sometimes you just want to leave. Sometimes you don't want to wait for this. Sometimes it just kind of feels stupid. So if you don't want to have a security guard walk you out every single time, what should you do? Well, the key is making sure that you're not being followed or watched. And you can do this by just being aware of your surroundings and by looking around. And if you see anything suspicious, then don't walk out because what they're waiting for there is for you to walk out where you're vulnerable. So if you see anybody that seems to be following you, then don't walk out and then start taking a funny path around the casino and see if they're following you, see if they're looking at you. If they are, go to security and report them. Say, I think these guys are looking to follow me on the way out. Maybe then go with security out and also have security go question them. But don't ever feel stupid about not walking out because someone's following you. And also, you might want to not walk directly out of the casino right after you're, you've gotten your money. You might want to take a path around the casino where it would be clear that someone is following you. You may want to go out a different exit than people would expect you would leave from if there's two exits or more than two exits. You also might want to get a box if there is one available on the premises and go to the box and put your cash in there instead of taking it with you. Then you can honestly tell anyone who holds you up that you put it in the box. And in fact, if they see you go to the box, they're probably not going to mug you on the way out knowing you probably have dumped your cash off in the box. You also should know where your car is and walk briskly to it and keep your attention at all times. Don't use your phone. Don't read the latest funny tweets about Robbie Jade Lou. Just know where your car is and keep your phone in your pocket and walk straight to your car and, and look around. Don't be afraid to look around. You don't have to keep your head straight. You don't have to. It's fine if you actually look paranoid because then anyone looking to mug you will know that you are on alert for this. Now, if they have a gun and they approach you, you can be on alert all you want and there's not much you can do about it. But they much prefer the element of surprise. But what you're basically looking for is a uh, safe and clear path to your vehicle and then you get in and leave. Now, I still suggest you use boxes and that's what I do. And then you don't have to worry about being mugged on the way out. But if you don't have boxes or they don't exist where you're playing, you can't get one, whatever it might be, then I really do suggest that you look for anyone following you and anyone watching you. And don't ever second guess yourself. If something seems funny, then don't go out and report whoever you think might be following you. And don't just assume it won't happen to you because it might. Now, if you're playing low stakes, it probably won't. So if you're at a 1-2 game 
and you cash out 350 bucks, you're probably not going to be followed out there and mugged for your 350 bucks. They're probably going to look for a better target. But anything that's, you know, above 1,000, there definitely are people who will mug you for that. There are people who would mug for hundreds, but just in the casino, there's so many people who have more than that. They're probably not going to hit you if you walk out with hundreds. But if you walk out with thousands, yeah, it doesn't have to be 30,000. They could easily mug you for 3,000. Anyway, it's too bad this happened. I don't think it says anything bad about Doug Polk or the Lodge directly. As I said, they have security guards, but just know there's a lot of this crime at these Texas rooms. So you need to be extra careful over there. A lot of criminals in Texas have decided that poker players are easy to rob and that these rooms are often easy to rob. That the security is kind of lacking. That's the general impression there. So that means criminals target it more often. So be careful if you're playing in these Texas rooms. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is a number to reach me. You can text me. You can call me. IGT has prevailed in a lawsuit against the DOJ. And this is good news for those who want to see legalized poker around the country. This is the endless battle that's been going on involving the 1961 Interstate Wire Act, which obviously was passed long before any kind of online gambling existed. In fact, there was no internet in 1961, as you might guess. The internet did start a lot sooner than many people realize. It started only eight years after that in 1969. However, it was not the internet you know today by any means. It was uh, comprised of eight computers, and it was something called ARPANET, and it was actually being built for military purposes. The purpose of ARPANET was to have a communication system that would work if enemies bombed the U.S. phone system or destroyed it in some way. It was an alternate means of communication. And then it eventually evolved into a network of a lot of systems of uh, large businesses and educational institutions. So if you were at a college, you could often get a free account to access the internet, but there was no graphical user interface. There was no web browser. It was all text back then. I did have an account that had access to the internet back in 1991. In January of 91 was the first time I got on the internet. I'd been online in other ways for about five years prior to that, but the first entry to the internet was in January of 91. And Still at that point, there was no kind of online gambling. The first online gambling showed up in the mid-90s on gambling websites that were offshore. And ever since then, the legality, or lack thereof, has been something of intense debate and in some cases uh, criminal action. And we've discussed those actions many times on this show. But the question that has come up over the years has had to do with the Wire Act itself. Did the Wire Act make gambling across state lines over a 
communications network illegal or did it only make sports betting illegal? So what was the concern in 1961? Obviously not the internet, which didn't exist. What was the concern in 61? What was the Interstate Wire Act of 61? Well, basically the concern was that people were wiring money to bookies and this was a way to curtail illegal sports betting. That was really the concern at the moment. There was no other way to illegally gamble. You couldn't, I mean, I guess you could, there were gambling dens that were set up, but I'm talking about ones that you would do from your own home without having any kind of gambling devices in your home. The only way to gamble was to do so by placing sports bets with bookies and paying or receiving money from them. So basically the 1961 Interstate Wire Act made it a crime to do any kind of sports betting over the telephone or to wire money over across state lines for the purposes of sports betting. The Interstate Wire Act was the only law on the books for many, many years regarding gambling via the telephone or the internet. And of course, it wasn't written, mentioned in the internet because there was no internet in 61. And that's why it was murky legal territory when online poker sites showed up because you were gambling for real money online, which was using a U.S. communication network and it was uh, either interstate or inter-country. But the question was, did the 1961 Wire Act apply to it? Number one, did this apply to the internet? And number two, did it apply to more than sports betting? In 2006, this was clarified somewhat by a passage of a new law called the UIGEA, and that made it illegal to fund any kind of gambling. So it wasn't making the gambling itself illegal, but it was making the funding of the gambling illegal, which pretty much kills the whole thing because you have to get money on there somehow. And that was what was used to bust the sites like PokerStars, Full Tilt, and UB in 2011 in what is now known as Black Friday. So they did not bust them based on the 1961 Wire Act. They busted them based upon the 2006 UIGEA. The UIGEA is also the same reason a lot of poker sites which had previously been in the U.S. market exited the U.S. market because they did not want to get in trouble or anger the U.S. government, even if they were located offshore. And that's why sites like Party Poker exited the market, while others like PokerStars took the chance and kept offering games to Americans. Shortly after Black Friday, there was discussion about revisiting the 1961 Interstate Wire Act and clarifying once and for all that it is just about sports betting and that this would pave the way for legalized online poker. At the time, online poker was seen as a potential cash cow for state and maybe even federal entities because it could be taxed and because sites like PokerStars had gotten so big. So what if U.S. companies could offer the same games and then could basically make the same money, except this time it would be taxed by the U.S. government and the states and there could be a lot of tax revenue. 
However, of course, it did not go as we thought it might or hoped it might. Instead, we had a bunch of individual uh, states considering online poker. A few of them actually did it. And then it was found, kind of predictably, that these states just didn't have the population to support an active poker room, and these were all fail sites which lost money. So to this day, online poker in the legal U.S. space has it's been a failure. It uh, either is losing money or is uh, kind of treading water and barely getting by. There's no online poker site that is legal in the U.S. that is killing it and making money hand over fist. That's just not what's happening. However, the 1961 Interstate Wire Act, which was clarified, definitely ruled to only apply to sports betting. There have been attempts to get this to be reinterpreted, or shall I say re-reinterpreted. Sheldon Adelson was directing a lot of this if he just had this bug up his ass about online gambling because he could have made money from online gambling while online poker has been a failure online gambling has not so states like new jersey actually offer online gambling where you can actually play casino games online and those make a lot of money for the casinos so sheldon adelson could have had a part in all of this but Something about Sheldon Adelson a lot of people didn't realize, and still don't. You know, he's dead now, but when he was alive, a lot of people just saw him as, like, the boogeyman. The truth is, Sheldon Adelson was a principled man. Now, he may have principles that you didn't like. It's possible you disagree with all of his principles, but he was someone who had principles. And even if he could make additional money, he didn't want to if it violated his principles. So something that he was very against was online gambling. He just hated it. I don't know why, but he hated it. And he put a lot of money behind trying to defeat online gambling. He didn't want any profits that could have come from it. So he was really putting a lot of pressure on politicians that he had donated to in the past or might donate to in the future to get this changed and to make all online gambling illegal. Not just online poker, but all online gambling. And he was really pressing for a re-reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act, which would have made it illegal for any kind of money to be transmitted across state lines through the internet. So that would kill any chance of online poker having any kind of co-ops between states like exists right now with New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada that would have killed that. And it even could have killed online poker completely because sometimes, even if you're betting within the same state, sometimes the network packets will temporarily go out of state before coming to the destination. So even if you're playing in Nevada on a Nevada site, it is possible that the signal between your two systems temporarily goes out of state before returning back to the site in Nevada. So there could even be an argument to completely end online poker, even if it's people just within the same state or any form of online gambling. So Sheldon was really trying hard to get that done. Unfortunately his for him, and fortunately for us, his attempts failed. And there was no re-re-interpretation of the 1961 Wire Act 
and it stayed with the reinterpretation, which decided that it was only for sports betting. However, under the Trump administration, there was a re-reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act, and it went back to the belief that it was about all gambling. So that was a problem, and it was not something that had caused any issues yet, but because you know, these things take time to actually be enforced, so this wasn't something that took place immediately. But basically, in 2018, the DOJ that operated under Trump reversed its previous opinion that it was only about sports betting. So now it was back to the 1961 Wire Act being about all online gambling. So IGT sued the Department of Justice over its interpretation of the Wire Act. They wanted it ruled that there would, uh, again, this would only be about sports betting and that any other transmission across state lines of gambling is not covered by that act and therefore is not illegal. So IGT, which stands for International Game Technology, and they've been around for a very long time. They've been around for several decades. They filed a lawsuit in November 2021, and they wanted the DOJ to clarify its position, and they requested a declaratory judgment that the DOJ may not prosecute them for non-sports betting under the Wire Act. Now, why would IGT care about this? They make machines. Because not only could they make games that you could play online in sites like New Jersey, but also even some of their machines could be transmitting information to other machines in casinos outside of the state for these networked jackpots. Because sometimes you'll see these huge jackpots on certain machines, and the way these jackpots build is by being networked to a lot of machines in a lot of different casinos, and then someone eventually hits it. So that's why some of these get so huge. So if it's illegal to transmit such data because it's gambling, then this could make these machines illegal. So IGT wanted to be sure that any games they make, that they can transmit data between the states and not be illegal, not be putting themselves in legal jeopardy. So they really needed to know for sure that as long as they're not doing sports betting, that any communication between the player and these machines or these machines and other machines out of state is legal. Well, they finally got an answer on this. In a summary judgment that was issued on September 15, 2022, Judge William E. Smith ruled in favor of, the IG, of IGT and denied the DOJ's motion to dismiss the case. So now IGT can operate wherever they want across all these different states that gambling's legal and not worry that one day some federal prosecutor is going to try to go after them. IGT was especially worried about potentially being a victim of this because these offices at the DOJ often like going after money. They're not necessarily going after justice. A lot of times these offices want to squeeze money out of well-heeled companies and organizations 
that can't afford to pay very large fines. So IGT would definitely fit in that category. So if the DOJ felt that the IGT was breaking federal law and they could prosecute them, a settlement could be made for a massive sum of money which would go into the federal government coffers and then whatever office performed this prosecution would get this feather in their cap that they raised X amount of dollars from a, quote, criminal organization, which would be IGT, which you wouldn't think of being a criminal organization. But there's kind of like a competition between these offices at the DOJ of how much money they can raise through settlements and confiscations from what they consider criminal organizations. Now, some of these confiscations are fine. Some of them really are from criminals and organizations that should not have this money. But other times it's done in kind of a shifty fashion and going after victimless crimes, such as something like this. So IGT wanted to be safe. I want IGT wanted to make sure that they were not going to have a target on their back because they have a lot of money. They basically wanted to make sure the DOJ was not going to steal from them. So with this, now they know that because they were given a summary judgment on September 15th and now they can operate without fear. So that is good news for online poker because this also means that online poker sites sharing player pools across state lines, which WSOP.com is trying to more aggressively do in recent years, that this will no longer be a crime either. Maybe the battle's over. Maybe it will continue. It's very stupid they're fighting about a 1961 law. It's very stupid that the federal government is trying so hard to keep this illegal. And a lot of this is about money. A lot of this is about their ability to go after organizations that violate this or violate this in their opinion and find them for a fortune. So that's the really stupid thing is that this is something motivated by a quest to seize as much assets as possible and not really about doing the right thing. Poker Go had kind of an embarrassing situation because they took a stand, and we talked about it on this show, where they decided that Ali Imsravik and Jake Schindler were not welcome in any of these Poker Go series, at least for the moment, because of their reputation for being cheaters. Keep in mind that there was never anything definitively proven against Ali Imsravik and Jake Schindler, but there were enough high-stakes players who were insisting that these two were committing various violations, uh, mostly online, but there was even some photos of Ali Imsravik looking at someone else's cards on a live stream tournament. And Ali and Jake have never defended themselves. And when asked in person about the allegations, they refuse to discuss it, which of course is very suspicious given the major hit that has come to their reputation. You think that they would speak out if they were being falsely accused. So as I mentioned on the show in September, in fact, this is a month ago, PokerGo tweeted out this statement. 
The Poker Go Tour today announced the indefinite suspensions of Ali Imservic and Jake Schindler from tour play effective immediately. The suspensions will extend through at least the 2022 PGT season, upon which time a review will take place. The PGT is committed to upholding the highest standards of integrity and emphasizes proper conduct to ensure the safety and security of its players and events. So they were really the first tour to say, we don't need a court judgment stating that Ali and Jake are cheaters. We don't need a criminal investigation determining this. Just if we think that these are bad dudes and we don't want them in our tour, we're not going to have them. We don't have to have them. We can have whoever we want. We can ban whoever we want. So we have decided we just don't want these guys. We don't like them. The community doesn't like them. We think they cheated. So that's enough for us. We don't want them here. And I applauded this at the time because I said we said we need to see more of this. We need to see more consequences for people who are widely believed by the community to be cheaters and that anyone who's falsely accused should, of course, have an opportunity to defend themselves and explain why these allegations are false. But when someone is accused of cheating by credible people, and even if there's only circumstantial evidence, if those accused will not even answer to it, and most people believe it happened, then it probably did happen, and it would be nice if these poker tournaments would just not make them welcome, because nobody has a right to play a poker tournament. You can't shut someone out of a poker tournament because of some federally protected class they're in. You can't say black people can't play or gay people can't play or old people can't play. You can't do that. But you can say people we don't like that are suspected of cheating the community can't play, even if we can't prove they did it 100%. That is legal to say that. And that's what PokerGo said. And I respected them for that. Unfortunately, this becomes a bit of a slippery slope. Because where do you draw the line? And I brought this up a month ago. Well, sure enough, Martin Zamani, who is the one who called out Bryn Kenny for his alleged cheating, and Bryn even admitted that some of it happened. Bryn admitted that there was some ghosting that went on. And, of course, Martin was alleging a lot more than that had happened. But not only has Bryn Kenny not been banned from the Poker Go Tour, But Martin Zamani himself was not banned, and Martin Zamani admitted that he cheated. Keep in mind, Martin wasn't coming forward saying, hey guys, I was witness to a lot of cheating and I can't keep quiet any longer. He came out and said, I was part of this cheating ring. He was not professing innocence. In fact, he was admitting that he cheated and he named other people that he said he was cheating with. For example, he kept saying this guy, Cocksucker Mizikowski, which is actually David Mizikowski is his real name, but he kept saying that CSM there was cheating with him at the instruction of Bryn. And he said that he took over for other people, Martin. He said that there was like a hierarchy of people taking over for each other in tournaments depending on how good they were and how big the tournament was. So Martin said that sometimes people would take over from him that Bryn would think would better than he was, and sometimes he would take over for other people in the stable who were believed to not be as good as Martin. So what do we take away from this? Well, yes, Bryn is the much bigger name. Bryn is the much more interesting person, and Bryn was the one who was supposedly the head of this whole cheating scheme. But Martin Zamani did get on Doug Polk's show and admitted that he cheated. So, okay, there you have it. We have a guy admitting he cheated. He was not the ringleader, but he admitted he cheated, 
and he admitted that he did this until he had some falling out with Bryn. He was asked by Doug, why did you come forward? And he wouldn't say. And then he asked, he was asked, well, was it because of some sort of issue you had with Bryn? And he basically said yes. So Martin was not even claiming he was reformed. He wasn't even saying, hey, look, I was a cheater a few years ago, but I realized how wrong it was, so I'm coming out now and telling the truth and sorry I did this in the first place. That was not what he did. He came forward because he was pissed off at Bryn Kenny for something. I, I think he was probably for confiscating his affiliate revenue. But whatever it was, he was mad at Bryn for something, and he was not at all regretting what he had done. So should he really be welcome on these streams either? I know he's not on the level of an Ollie or Jake or Bryn, but this was a guy who recently came on a stream and admitted he was a cheater and had no remorse and admitted he was coming forward because of a personal beef, not because he thought it was wrong. So what happens? Of course, Martin Zamani wins one of their events. Now, they didn't hide it. They tweeted out, congratulations to Martin Zamani winning 200000 whatever at such and such event. But right here on this same Poker Go tour where they banned Ali and Jake, Martin Zamani was one of the winners. So what does that say? Now, somebody on Twitter responded to me when I criticized this. Someone responded that he should get a pass because he's a whistleblower, that they need to give passes to whistleblowers. Otherwise, we will not find out about cheating if the people who come forward get penalized the same way. Well, I understand that argument, but remember, again, Martin Zamani was not doing this because he felt bad about it. There was no remorse expressed. He admitted this was done for selfish reasons. And I feel that whistleblowers should really only get credit for being whistleblowers if they are doing it for moral reasons. So if a whistleblower comes forward because they just don't want to do it anymore or regret what they've done, then fine. Then we can forgive their past transgressions if the information they bring allows us to fry a bigger fish. But not so much when they bring it because they're mad. I'm not saying we shouldn't use that information. I'm just saying that as far as admiring that person and giving them a pass for their cheating you can't really do that if they are not regretful about the cheating. I mean, I'll give Zamani credit for at least not lying about it. He could have said, oh, yeah, I feel awful about it. <laughs> he didn't. He's like, no, no, I didn't come forward because I'm guilty. I feel guilty. I just uh, I just don't want to get into the reasons. Was well, it because you have an issue with Bryn? Uh, kind of, yes. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I'll give him points for honesty there. Does it really make a lot of sense to keep at Ali and Jake and... Let Martin Zamani, the admitted cheater, to play and then eventually win? And this is the problem. This is the problem. Yes, he's a more minor cheater than these others. So that's a reason to let him play. But where do you draw the line? Where, where do you draw the line between minor cheating, middle cheating, major cheating? I agree there's a difference. And what about people who don't cheat but just rip off the community by scamming or by taking bad loans that they know they can't pay and lie about their ability to pay back. What if some guy comes up to you in the casino and says, hey, I've got a wire coming. It's just been delayed a day. Can you loan me 50K? You give the guy 50K. It turns out there is no wire and uh, he just needed money to stay in action. Then he chunks it off. 
should that guy be allowed to play in tournaments? Is that really any better than cheating? Stealing is money. You know, stealing money is stealing money, whether it's scamming or cheating, right? So it becomes a very slippery slope, and then the question becomes, if we're going to disallow people to play in these tournaments because of some sort of past transgressions, if we do too much of this, then we're going to have just about nobody that can play. <laughs> because who's going to really pass a purity test in poker? There will be some, but not all that many. But my response to all of this is we don't have to ban everybody just to get the major ones. And that would be an argument to allow Zamani in. But on the other hand, Zamani was part of a major scandal and admitted that he was a cheater. So it's just not a good look to ban Ali and Jake and then have Zamani win one of the tournaments. Kind of unfortunate for them. Now, something's better than nothing. I'd rather have Ali and Jake banned and not Zamani banned and not Bryn banned then have nobody banned. As far as I'm concerned, banning highly suspected cheaters from these events is exactly what poker needs. And even if they don't do enough of it, then some is better than not doing it at all. So I will say that. Sean McCormack has left the ARIA as the director of the poker room. Sean McCormack was mostly liked as the Aria Poker Room director. Aria is a pretty big and prominent room in Vegas. And they have a lot of high-stakes games. They have a lot of middle-stakes games. They are, of course, an MGM property, so they are the same ownership as Bellagio, which has long had a big poker scene. This is what Sean McCormack tweeted on... What day do you think it was? Yep, you guessed it. September 29th. For some reason, these are all September 29th stories. But September 29th, he tweeted, It is with mixed emotions that I announced my departure from Aria. The last seven years have felt like a dream with the best damn poker team ever. Although farewell, not goodbye, as I've accepted a new position as Director of Poker Strategy for MGM Resorts International. In my new role, I will work with MGM Poker Rooms and our corporate strategy team for continued growth of the game I love most. And then he tweeted ats for all the rooms which he's going to be overseeing. Aria, Bellagio, MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, MGM Grand Detroit, Beau Rivage Biloxi, MGM National Harbor. And yes, I know I said Biloxi wrong. Sorry about that. Borgata Poker and MGM S Poker. I'm not even sure what that is. It's another MGM Poker Room. Somewhere else in the country, it is Springfield. There we go. Much love, TPB, referring to the poker boss, is what he calls himself. As I said, he was mostly liked within the community, but some resented him for allowing and encouraging the proliferation of private games, which essentially operated like home games at the Aria. Now, Nevada law forbids actual private games from running in licensed casinos. Any poker game that runs in a Nevada casino has to be open to the public. There's no such thing as saying this is a private game you can't play. However, McCormack used various quasi-legal tactics to get around that law and kept certain games going only for certain preferred players. 
and certain people were shut out. And people who were shut out were not necessarily people who were problem players. I'm not talking about people who were assholes or abusive to dealers or abusive to other players or cheaters. No, I'm talking about just good players they just didn't want in the game. Or players that Fish didn't like playing with for whatever reason. And there were a number of tactics that were used which were preventing these players from getting in. Because remember, they can't just say, you're not allowed in this game. That's against the law. But what if you just never get in the game? So here were some tactics that were used. And I did a report on this in a segment in uh, early 2018, which, by the way, I got compliments on that segment. I At the World Series of Poker in 2018, some well-known pro players came to me separately and thanked me for doing this segment because they said that they couldn't speak up because they played at Aria and they didn't want any trouble there. They didn't want to get banned. They did that. They were kind of afraid of consequences. They spoke out too aggressively. So since I didn't really play at Aria, I didn't mind putting this out there. I would have anyway. I still would have put it out even if I played there. But I especially had no concern because I didn't play at Aria. And so I, I put it out there and was just straightforward and honest with what was going on from what I was hearing. And I, I was thanked for that at the 2018 World Series by various players who heard it and were told to listen to it, uh, not by me, but by each other. And they said they, they thought it was very good. So I appreciated the compliments. I'm not going to say who these people were, but uh, I appreciated the compliments. Anyway, just to quickly review... Here are some things that was done to keep these private games running. They would have phony waiting lists where non-invited guests of the game would go on the waiting list while preferred players would be able to jump right ahead of them. Often the way this would be done is that the game would start at an agreed-upon time where everyone would show up who they wanted in the game. So let's say they say, okay, game starts at 8 p.m., so everybody shows up at 8 p.m. And anyone who was on the list before 8 p.m. is on the list for, quote, a different game, even if it's the same stakes. So they say, well, this is a totally separate game. So you're not on the list for that game. But now you can get on the list for that game. But it's already full. Sorry. So that like a whole table worth of people will show up at a agreed upon time. And then any waiting list for that game beforehand is disregarded. Then there is the invitation-only situation, where once all the invited players are there, they declare the game full. So if there are seven players there, and that's all they want, they'll say this is a seven-handed game. And the casino can do that, technically. They can say, okay, this is not a nine-handed game, it's seven-handed. It's eight-handed, it's six-handed. They can say it's ten-handed. They can say whatever they want. So they just adjust the number of seats in the game to what players want at the moment to keep people out they don't want from joining. Then there was a really nasty trick where they would wait until the player who wanted to get in that they don't want there. They would wait until the player that they didn't want in the game would walk out of the room briefly, like he goes to the bathroom or goes to get something to eat for 15 minutes, something like that, where they see him walk far enough away and they only call his name for an open seat then 
and take him off the list. Here is audio of this that I had from this being done where they called a player who was waiting and he didn't respond because he had just walked out to go to the bathroom. Bueller. 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 Yeah, so Ferris did not get his seat. See, that was the Bueller Bueller trick. They would call your name only when you're not in the room. Players on the way was a trick they also pulled. If they are holding spots for players they want in the game but aren't there yet, they would claim that these players were already on the list for the game and they're, quote, on the way, even if they really aren't on the way and wouldn't be there for hours. Then there is the rigged lottery. It was claimed that people would be in a lottery to get seats in the game and that they would go draw random names to get seats. Then they would take the list of players to be in this lottery to the back. Nobody would see how the players were chosen. They'd come out with the results, and lo and behold, it was always the ones who were the preferred players to be in the games. And the ones they didn't want in never seemed to win the lottery. Isn't that convenient? Then there is the fake chip stack trick. Phantom chip stacks that are actually belonging to the house were just put in seats to make it look like a player was there, and thus there were not seats open in the game. Let's say they wanted a nine-handed game, but only seven of them were there. What they would do is they would sometimes just put stacks in front of the two empty seats, and then when the players they wanted to be in the game would show up, then they would remove those stacks and let them sit down, but the stacks would be representing that the seat is occupied and uh, people wouldn't realize that these were phantom stacks that didn't belong to anybody. Then there is the excluded players trick, that if certain players were disliked, they would just keep them out using these tactics and other tactics. Uh, Greg Merson claimed he was one of these excluded players who was just never let in. And then there was a rule that, and this is a, a law in Nevada, that all of the poker games have to be in public. So they can't hold these in some kind of private closed room where you can't see it. Every poker game that takes place in Nevada Nevada, has to be visible to anybody who wants to observe them. This is part of the whole spirit of the law that a poker game in Nevada is open to everybody. But what if they are technically visible but very hard to access? You got to keep them separated. Yeah, so they got to keep them separated, and they did it. The games are physically separated from the rest of the room, and if you attempted to walk into the area where these games took place, security would chase you out, claiming that you were a nuisance to the game and making the players feel uncomfortable that you might be looking at their cards. So while you could watch these games from a distance, you couldn't get anywhere near them. And this would also stop anyone who is looking for any of these tricks I described because you can't get enough of a view of what's really happening there. So they would keep these separated from everybody else in the room. Yep. Gotta keep them separated. I think that was the philosophy of 
Sean McCormack. So this happened while he was running the Aria. And I got into it with him on Twitter. Not rudely. I was polite about it. But I was questioning why this was being done and how this was fair. And even in some ways, how this was legal. I felt this was violating at the very least the spirit of the law and maybe even the letter of the law. Even Doug Polk spoke out about this four and a half years ago. He said, Sean, I think you do an awesome job and run a great room, but if you think some games that happened in Ivy's, referring to the Ivy's room, which is uh, no longer called that, um, the high limits section of the ARIA, are running legally, you're crazy. I've had times where I show up, get on a list, and can't get in, but a recreational player shows up and they add a seat. How is this a public game? Yeah, exactly. And Sean would just say back, well, you're wrong, it's legal. <laughs> Eventually, he stopped even trying to deny it was happening. He just basically said, yeah, you know, we, we are staying within the law, and casinos have different needs than what players have, and sometimes we have to do what we have to do. Sorry, guys. That's the way it is. And he'd be polite about it, but he basically admitted that these private games were happening. And this is just wrong. It's violating the spirit of the law. If Nevada had a law which said private games can take place and casinos chose to allow private games to take place, okay. I may not agree with the law, but that's the law, fine. But here, the law was passed specifically to prevent things like this. And they're finding ways to squirm around it. And I don't like when there's violations of the spirit of the law. So that was something I didn't like that Sean McCormack did. And I don't expect this to change because he's not someone who has been fired, nor did he quit, nor did he go to a company that is competing with MGM. He is just moving up the chain. He is now going to be one step above where he was before. So instead of being the director of the Aria Poker Room, now he is the director of all the MGM property poker rooms. And the person who now has his position reports to him. Do you think he's going to change this? If anything, this will become standard practice everywhere. So that's kind of sad. So while Sean McCormack is a competent poker manager, and while minus the private game thing, people thought highly of the way he ran the room, and they probably are right. I think he probably did a good job aside from that. I really, really am against the whole private game thing, and I think that's a big step back for poker in general. One of the players who came to me in 2018 who was very upset told me that what bothered him the most is that they started doing this to like the 5-5 game sometimes. He said it's one thing if it's going to be the high stakes games, but he was noticing that there was poaching of the fish out of the 5-5 games into like a private 5-5 game. So every time a good game would get going, then preferred players there would poach the fish out of the good 5-5 game and move them to a private 5-5 game and it would ruin the good games that were going there. And the guy was just furious about this. And it was someone who was credible. Like, I, I didn't witness this myself, but the person who told me had never been known to lie about anything, and this was someone who had been in poker for a long time. I'm not going to name this person, but this is someone who is known to be very credible. So I understood why this guy was so pissed off. And that's why this person was asking, you know, can you please do a segment on this. Can you please say something? And this was not a friend of mine. And this was not anyone I was particularly close to. 
This wasn't a regular listener of the show either. It was a person just who was aware of the show in Las Vegas who was a regular in that 5-5 who came to me and said, can you please do something? Can you do a segment about this? At least make people aware. So I said, okay. That was a bad thing. And it's too bad that persists to this day. That law definitely needs an update. If you put me in charge of writing that law, I could write it to where this could not be done. You could write a very specific law that makes all of this stuff illegal and makes a lot harder for them to invent new tricks. But unfortunately, the law is too broad and allows for things like this. It's against the spirit of the law, but I believe you probably could not do anything about this through gaming. WSOP.ca is a new thing. It is not the same as WSOP.com, but it is the WSOP. It has launched in Ontario. Ontario is the most populous province in Canada, as you probably know. If you go to WSOP.ca, it says, Why play on WSOP.ca? Home to the world's top pros, next generation smart software, action packed games 24 7, buy and sell action. Hmm. Now you may be wondering, how could these features exist? You may have played on the crappy 888 based WSOP.com software, and you can't do any of these things. First of all, it's not home to the world's top pros, it's not next generation smart software. It's in fact, inferior to the PokerStars 2003 software. It doesn't have action-packed games 24-7, and you can't buy and sell action through the software. But which software can do this? Which poker software is next-generation smart software? And which of these sites allows you to buy and sell action? That's like buy and sell pieces of yourself and other players through the site itself. Can you think of that site? I'll give you a hint. There's a banner that's rotating on WSOP.ca and it has four poker players on that banner. Very prominent on this banner is Daniel Negranu. You also see Elki. You also see Fedora Holtz. Which site do these guys represent? Yes, GG Poker. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. What happened to the 888 software? Why is GG Poker running on WSOP.ca? Well, if you take a look at the felt on WSOP tables, you will notice GG Poker ads. I saw them when I played the 2022 World Series of Poker and the 2021 World Series of Poker. So WSOP already has a partnership with GG. We've talked about it before. They have online bracelet events for non-US players on GG Poker itself. This is not a new thing, this partnership. But the WSOP.com software has been 888 software ever since it launched in 2013. This is now the first WSOP software that is on GG Poker, where you're actually playing on a WSOP branded site, but it is GG Poker. So much that they are using the same ambassadors for the WSOP side with Daniel Negranu 
and Fedora Holtz, Elki, etc. So it looks like this might be the future of WSB.com. That soon enough, WSB.com will also be GG software. They probably have to get some kind of regulatory approval to do it. But that might be the new thing. Now keep in mind that if you are a current GG poker player and you're in Ontario, then you can't stay on GG poker. You are now forced to re-register on WSOP.ca and play on the site only with Ontario players. So that kind of sucks because now you're going to have a much smaller player pool. Instead of having the whole world minus the U.S., now you're going to have just Ontario. But that's what's happening. Eventually, this might expand into the rest of Canada. So at least they'll have more potential players. But at the moment, it's only in Ontario, and it's kind of a fail site. Remember, the reason WCP.com has had lousy traffic is not because of the bad software. It's mainly just because of the markets they're in just aren't big enough to support a lot of players. The other problem is it's managed very poorly and promoted poorly. There are other sites already in Ontario. There's PokerStars Ontario, BetMGM Ontario, and 888Poker Ontario. But as of October 17th, WSOP Ontario is the biggest one. However, they do not have all that much cash traffic. They only have about 335 players on at the same time on average playing cash, which is about equivalent to what's going on in the U.S. and their online poker sites that are legal. So it's all kind of fail. But what this might mean is that, as I said, GG Poker might be taking over the software in the U.S. for WSOP. And that would be a good thing because it's good software. Many years from now, I don't know how many, but many years from now, we might see GG Poker software that Americans can play on across a lot of states, including some big states, maybe even California, who knows? But that'd be kind of cool if we could play on GG Poker, and it wouldn't be the GG Poker you know of today, but it would be the GG Poker software, which is very good, and if say we could play with a combination of California and Florida and New York and the existing Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware and Pennsylvania and Michigan that'd be a nice pool and add some other states too even if we don't have everything those would be some good games and good software and then you could trust you'd actually get paid that's something maybe to look forward to it's probably some years out that looks like the direction it is going. And it is interesting that Canada has decided that GG Poker cannot continue to operate in competition with these GG software licensed sites like WSOP. I, I don't think that Ontario or Canada decided this, but I think the this was probably some agreement they had with GG Poker that they don't want to compete with mainline GG or they're going to get clobbered. Here is Daniel Negranu talking about it in an ad posted by WSOPCA on Twitter. 
12 World Series of Poker Circuit Rings up for grabs on WSOP.ca. Okay. Not a very exciting ad, but nevertheless, you see that Negranu has been tabbed to be the spokesman for WSOP.ca because he is the GG spokesman and this is a licensing deal. So I guess Negranu comes along with a package. And he's Canadian too, even though he lives in Vegas now. I had a request for an update on Zed Run. Remember, Zed Run is a virtual horse racing site that I got involved with in May of 2021. These are NFTs, but they're NFTs with utility. Most NFTs you just collect and you sit there with them and they don't do anything and you just sit and watch their value go down and wonder why you ever bought them. Zed Run was a game, and still is a game, it's still operating as it was before, of horse racing. So while the, these horses are NFTs, you can actually do things with them. And that's why I found Zed Run to be appealing, whereas I didn't really collect other NFTs. I didn't put mass money into Zed Run. There were some people in poker who put tens of thousands of dollars into it. In fact, some who even put uh, six figures into it. I did not do that. I, I took a small shot at it, and I had what was known as a small to medium-sized stable. Uh, I could have made a quick buck on it because the I got a lot of what was known as Genesis horses, which were the first-generation horses that were said to be the most valuable, and I got more than most people did in the initial drops. And I talked about that on previous shows. I won't get into it, but I ended up with eight Genesis horses and I could have sold them immediately for profit and not, not just like right away. I could have many months later still as well. I also created uh, new horses because uh, one thing that was cool about Zed Run was that you could make horses by breeding. So if you had a male horse and a female horse, or even if you have uh, just a female, you could mate with somebody else's male and then you would create offspring and sometimes the offspring would end up being lousy and they would lose all the races and be pretty worthless. But once in a while you would get a good one. In fact, uh, the one I named flying stupidity based upon the uh, main form of pokerfraudler.com was my best racing horse. So my best horse is actually named flying stupidity, which is kind of funny. And at one point uh, flying stupidity himself was probably worth about one Ethereum, which at its peak was about 4k. So this was a horse I created for like 150 bucks worth of Ethereum. Now, I did create a number of horses that were worthless, or almost worthless, but it was fun. However, as I mentioned many times when I did Zed Run segments, there was a lot of fail on Zed Run. I won't bother to go into it all again, but they just don't know what they're doing over there. And it's too bad because it was a great idea, and they had some pretty cool graphics, the one of the guys in charge of Zed Run is a graphics guy, and you could tell. And there was a lot of cool stuff about the concept of Zed Run, and there was a lot of engagement, a lot of excitement over it. They had all the elements for a successful project, and even one that could withstand an NFT crash that would eventually come. But the problem was they were having a very hard time, number one, just preventing fails and stupid things from happening, and number two, they were having a hard time getting the racing to be something that was 
fair and viable long term. Because what they didn't want to, was where a few stable owners could just dominate all the races and leaving everybody else out in the cold. And they, they tried different solutions to this, but none of them worked. And when they did find something that was kind of working, they abandoned it. And the bottom line was paid racing, which is where you're paying to put your horse in a race, which probably is considered gambling and probably was illegal in the U.S., but they never got in any kind of trouble for it. Paid racing is mostly dead now. Paid racing, you can still do it, but you're going to be waiting hours and hours for it to go because there's not enough people in paid racing. And now the competition in paid racing is so tough that unless you have one of the top stables, you're not going to be able to compete. You're just going to get your ass beat in paid racing. And then there's free races where you can win money in prize pools. And that was fun for a while where you enter for free. And if your horse gets lucky, it can win or at least finish in the top few spots in a tournament. And you can get some money. Not big money, but you can get some money. But now that's super hard too. So the tournaments are now also very difficult to win unless you have a really, really top-line expensive horse. So for the players, even like myself, who have a decent but not great stable, the game just isn't that fun anymore, and you just lose when you play, even if it's free. It's just no fun to keep playing and losing. And they just have not come up with a solution. And one of the biggest issues they have is what's known as their class system. So they have a class system where every horse is rated from class 1 through class 6. And that would be good. That's meant to keep the best horses racing against each other so it gives the lesser horses a chance. The problem is people quickly discovered that what they could do is just purposely lose races by putting their horse in a length of a race that they're not good at. So let's say you have a horse that's really, really good at 2,400-meter races but bad at 1,000-meter races. Then you just keep entering it in a 1,000-meter race over and over and over again to bring down its rating, and then you enter in a much lower class and dominate everybody. So that's known as downclassing, and it turned into the game becoming mostly downclassing, where you're mostly racing to lose, which is very dumb and a waste of time, but you have to do it if you want to compete there. Otherwise, your horses end up in class one, even if they're not very good, and class one is full of crushers. But then what ended up happening is so many horses were downclassing that even in class six, the horses racing there are very tough. So now... There is no real class system that, yeah, the class one horses are toughest, but aside from that, the rest of the classes are basically still all really good horses, and anyone who doesn't have a really good horse uh, will absolutely just not be winning. There were a lot of potential solutions to make the class system work that the community kept suggesting, including me, and all of us were ignored and even though they keep promising changes and improvements to the class system, it seems like that they would claim to work on it for months and then finally roll out a change, and the change either would not help or make things worse, and then they'd go back to the drawing board. So it was like they claimed to be studying this intensely for months, and in reality it would look like a, a fix they're slapping up after thinking about it for like five minutes. So they still don't have a working class system, and that's really cooked most of the fun out of the game. Now, between that and the NFT crash, where people just aren't as interested in buying NFTs, even ones with utility, the values of these horses has tanked. And horses that I could have sold at one point for thousands of dollars are now only worth hundreds. 
if I sold all of my horses today, I would take a loss. Prior to this, I was proud of the fact that I was having fun with Zed Run, and yet it wasn't really costing me any money. It was kind of like almost a free roll. Because while I spent some money on breeding, and I even bought a few horses, between the money I won from racing, because not everybody's a winning racer, of course, but I was a winning racer, even back when they had a rake. They don't have a rake anymore, but they used to. And I was still even beating the rake. So I was a consistent winning racer. And I won enough racing just by game selecting properly. And then I made enough also from uh, selling a few horses. But it was mostly from the racing. But if you add all the income streams I had from it and then subtract the money I spent on buying horses and breeding, I basically did better than breaking even. And yet I had a lot more horses than I started off with. So I had eight Genesis horses that turned into like 40, 41 horses. And yet I did all of that while actually making a little bit of money. So I was proud of myself for expanding my stable and even ending up with uh, some decent offspring horses like that Flying Stupidity horse and actually overall being able to generate a little money while doing that. However, I hadn't sold any of my horses that were worth a lot, so I was still in for about $5,000 to the game with my initial buy-in. So for a long time, I could have sold my whole stable for like 20 something thousand. But then that declined, and now today, I probably could not even get my initial 5000 back if I sold all my horses, which is pretty sad. I would get probably most of it back, but I probably now have lost money if you look at the value of my stable, which is really lame. And and there were some people who really took a bath. At least, uh, number one, I didn't put too much into it. And number two, I at least made money racing. And, you know, at least I'm not going to take that much of a hit from it, even if I were to sell out today. I still haven't sold. I'm still waiting to see if they can improve this. I'm not that optimistic, but they do still have money coming in. They still keep making these lucrative partnerships with major companies like Budweiser and the World Cup. I mean, it's amazing how many licensing partnerships they're getting done despite the game is kind of failing. So I'm hoping at some point maybe they can get their shit together and the whole thing will work. They released a token called the Zed token, and that was supposed to be a game changer. Uh, they actually put it on hold for a little bit because when all the NFTs were crashing, they didn't want to release the Zed token while all the other tokens were crashing and have that crash too. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it didn't really matter because uh, the Zed token. When it was released, uh, immediately a lot of people dumped it, and presently it's worth a lot less than it was at the start. At its peak, it was worth about $0.16 each. Today, it is worth about $0.3.6, and we're talking about between July and now. So this happened all in a period of about three months. I stupidly never sold my Z tokens, and... They're just beginning to have some utility. In about a week, you're going to be able to buy this skin that allows you to enter a special tournament for Zed Token. I got about like 6,800 free Zed Tokens, which sounds good, 
But number one, if you multiply that by 3.6 cents, that's not a lot. And number two, they really screwed me and a lot of people because they were supposed to give a lot of these out to people who had a lot of Genesis horses, and I had eight, which is a lot to have, and I've been holding them the entire time, which they were going to consider length of time you have the Genesis horses. They are consider how much racing you did. They were going to consider how many other quality horses you have in your stable. So while I was not one who thought I'd be getting the most Zed tokens by any means, I thought that I really fit a lot of criteria for getting a lot of Zed tokens, and I really didn't. And in fact, I had this second stable, and you are allowed to multi-account there, so I'm not breaking any rules, but I had a second stable, which barely did anything. And that one got like a sixth of the Zed tokens that I got from my active stable, which is crazy because that account was barely active at all. It was not one-sixth as active as the main one, or it wasn't even one-sixtieth as active. Yet I got one-sixth of the tokens that the first one did. So that just shows you how unfair this was and how their supposed rewarding of the loyal players who basically kept the whole thing going the whole way was a sham. And I don't even know if this is on purpose or if they just did it stupidly. They just made so many stupid mistakes. So I don't have a lot of optimism about Zed Run. And there's really a tough onboarding problem right now because anyone who wants to get into it new, I guess while you can buy new horses cheaper than before because people are dumping their horses now, the thing is that there's just so many good horses now. And those are still expensive. So really anyone who doesn't want to spend a fortune can't come in and win anything, not even at the bottom classes. So people will come in and try it and lose and quit. And it's really sad because a lot of people want to see it improve. There's people who are volunteering their good advice and they just don't take it. I don't know what the problem is. But this is one of these things where if you have too many people talented in one thing and not enough who are good at other things where you might lack, then the whole company suffers. So they have very, very good marketers. They have good people who are out there establishing partnerships. So they have good salesmen. And they have a good graphics guy who's one of the owners there. And they had some creative people who got the whole thing going in the first place, but the day-to-day management is very poor. Operationally, they're very poor. And, you know, it reminds me somewhat of Run It Once, Phil Galfon's site, where you have an enthusiastic community of people who really want it to work, and they try to give you free, excellent advice, and they're ignored. They're arrogantly ignored. And then the whole thing fails. And you look at it and say, why couldn't they just listen? So this hasn't failed yet, but not that optimistic. So that is the Zed Run update. Okay, I guess I'll talk a bit about COVID. I haven't talked about COVID in a little while. And there's been some new things that have happened. There is the bivalent vaccine, not the bisexual vaccine, though you can get it if you're bisexual, but the bivalent vaccine, which is the vaccine that was developed specifically to fight Omicron BA4 and BA5, which were the dominant variants over the summer. Prior to that, the vaccine that was available was the original vaccine. There was a myth that there was a Delta vaccine, and there was not. 
the vaccine that you got all throughout 2021 and through most of 2022 was the original vaccine aimed at original COVID. But COVID has evolved and changed a lot since the original version. Think of how many different versions we've had. Think of how different Omicron is today than the original. So it is not surprising that the original vaccine doesn't work all that well. And sure enough, I got my fourth shot of the original vaccine in mid-May, and in early June, I got COVID. A mild case, but it busted right through that vaccine. And I'm not surprised. So this bivalent vaccine, which you can get now, this is not restricted by age. This isn't one of those things like the fourth shot where they were saying you had to be 50 or over. This is not age restricted. All Americans can get this vaccine. It is not carried by all pharmacies. So make sure that if you want to get it, that you make sure it is the bivalent vaccine. And if it's not, I wouldn't bother. But of course, with COVID mutating so quickly, now BA4 and BA5 are on their way out. (laughs) But before we get to that, should you get the bivalent vaccine, even ignoring the fact that BA4 and 5 are slowly making their way out for a new variant, should you get it if you already had COVID? Well, if you had COVID in June, July, August, September, or October of 2022, you should not, in my opinion, get this vaccine. Why? Because you got something better. You got the real disease. And that gives you better protection than any COVID vaccine that has ever been made. And that's a fact. That's a scientific fact that natural immunity is the best. It doesn't last forever. It fades like the vaccine protection does. And when COVID mutates, that also makes it easier for you to get it again. And there are some unfortunate people who will be susceptible to getting COVID as soon as weeks after their first COVID or whatever their last COVID was. Not many, but there are some people who just keep getting it over and over. But most people tend to have several months of protection at the very least, maybe even as much as a year from COVID after getting COVID, even if it's mutated. And it is well accepted now that natural immunity is better than the vaccine. So if you've had the real thing in June, July, August, or September, or October, you have probably had BA4 or BA5. In fact, in July, August, and September, it was pretty much all BA4 and 5 mostly five. So you have protection. You don't need that vaccine if you've had COVID in those months. If you had COVID before June of 2022, then you probably had something different. You probably had a different version of Omicron if it was in 2022, but before June. And you had something that was not Omicron if you had COVID in 2020 or 2021. In addition, if you had it in 2020 or 2021 and not since, then any natural immunity you had is probably largely faded by now. It's not completely gone. It probably holds back severe disease, but beyond that, it probably isn't doing much. It also matters how much 
you care about getting non-severe COVID. Does that worry you? Because Omicron is a much lesser disease than original COVID and Delta. So the chance that Omicron, whatever the variant is, is going to kill you if you're middle-aged is much, 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 much lower than original and Delta, and it's not even close. In fact, they are trying to cover up this data. Try to find the age-related data for Omicron only. Try to go look this up on the web. You're not going to find it. They don't want to release it because they don't want people to see that the death profile for COVID has now evolved into something very flu-like. The flu kills almost all old people. There are a few young kids who die from it, which is very sad. And that doesn't really happen with COVID. The flu is actually more dangerous for kids than COVID. And it always has been. But it mainly gets old people. So even if you're in your 50s, unless you have major health issues, the flu is something that is not going to kill you. I don't fear the flu. I'm in my 50s. I don't fear the flu. And I don't fear Omicron. I did fear Delta and I did fear the original because those could actually have killed me. The much higher chance was that it wasn't going to kill me, but it also could have done a lot of damage. Those could have been pretty damn ugly for someone my age. And I did not want to chance that. But now it's a different ballgame. Omicron now is not likely to do much or any permanent damage to me and especially unlikely to kill me at this age. Now, if you're 85 years old, yeah, you you still have to worry about Omicron. It's still like 90% less deadly, but that's who it's killing. It's killing very old people or people who aren't old but have major health issues. And when I say major, I mean a really major issue. Cancer or some other kind of really major life-altering or life-threatening condition. I don't just mean something that is annoying or frustrating, but isn't something that is uh, likely to kill you anytime soon. So if you don't have a major health issue and you're not really old, you probably don't have to worry about Omicron very much from that standpoint. But really, go try to find the age-related data for Omicron deaths. You'll find age-related data for all deaths since the beginning in 2020, but that's not helpful because it has the original and the Delta numbers mixed in there. And we know original and Delta killed a lot of middle-aged people. But try to look it up for Omicron. You won't find it. And the reason you won't find it is because they don't want you to see it. Because if you see how few people who are middle-aged are dying from Omicron, then you're going to go, oh, so what are we worried about now? (laughs) Doesn't this look like the flu? 80,000 people died in the U.S. in the 2018 to 19 flu season. 80,000. But they were almost all old. So everyone said, okay, we've been aware of this our entire lives, that the flu kills very old people. And in 2018 to 19, it was unusually bad. But nobody was walking around with a mask on. Nobody was panicking. Nobody was shutting down businesses or schools. We just said, okay, well, we've known this our whole lives, that 
the flu will show up every single year and kill a lot of old people, some years worse than others. And that's the way it goes. And the truth is there's a lot of things that kill really old people. So there's a... It's very dangerous to be that age. When you're really old, a lot of things can get you. Your body is not what it used to be. It does not have the resistance that what it had. And a lot of things can mean your end. And that's just part of being a human being. What was scary about COVID was that not only was it wiping out old people at an alarming rate, but it was also getting some middle-aged people who were healthy. And you erase the middle-aged people from the equation. And when I say middle-aged, I don't just mean like 40. I'm talking about people the 50s, early 60s, in that whole like under 65 but over 40 range. The original and Delta were killing a good number of people in that group. But Omicron, it's not. You take out the people with the major pre-existing conditions and very few are dying of Omicron. And I bet anecdotally in your life, I bet you know nobody who's died of Omicron under 65 who didn't already have a major problem. I bet you can't think of one. And I can think of plenty who I knew of that died under 60 from the original COVID and Delta. No one really close to me. I mean, we even have a memorial tournament on this site for a poker player who unfortunately passed away of COVID. Robert Gray, a.k.a. uh, A-Game Rob, a Vegas poker pro, he died of COVID in 2020. And he was 56. I knew people outside of poker that died of COVID. I knew someone in Vegas who was not a poker player who died in his 40s of COVID. But none were from Omicron. So if preventing death is the reason you are taking the vaccine and you're not old and you are not in really bad health, then you don't really need the vaccine because Omicron is not going to kill you. However, there are reasons not to get Omicron. It's unpleasant. For me, it was very mild, but there's people that uh, it's not that mild for that... uh, have a bad experience with it, one they'd not like to repeat. There are potential long-term effects from it. There's even some discussion recently that people who had COVID may have a higher chance for future heart disease. It's going to be a long time until we know what damage COVID really does and if Omicron is doing the same damage that the original did. But because there's still a lot to learn about COVID... Maybe you shouldn't just be cavalier about uh, whether you get it or not. But it is kind of looking inevitable that unless you live like a hermit, that you're going to get it. That's another reason to just say, you know what, it's, it's going to be a fact of life. I'm going to get this. And trying to avoid COVID is like trying to avoid getting colds. You know, it's, it, you just really can't do it. it. It's not quite as contagious as a cold, but it's uh, it's still up there with contagious viral diseases and every new version of it is more contagious than the last so it really depends upon a number of factors including how you respond to the vaccine does it make you sick or not now i'm someone who does get sick for the, from the vaccine and it lasts for three days and i decided you know what i'm tired of this 
I, I'm just tired of this. I, I was thrilled to have the vaccine, even with the illness that it brought to me in 2020. Or t- actually, it's 21, not 2020. But in, in tw- early 21, when I got the vaccine, and then in May, I was finally able to go out and return to normal life. I was thrilled to have it. But that was a different COVID than we have today. And I got the real thing in June. And yeah, it's been four and a half months, so some of that immunity is probably faded. But I think I had BA4, so I probably am still immune to all the COVID out there right now. I had a very heavy exposure to BA5 later in the summer when Benjamin and his mom both had BA5, and I was very much in close contact with them. Benjamin was sleeping right next to me and breathing right in my face. And I didn't catch COVID again because I probably had BA4 in June at the World Series and therefore I was immune. And I've been to Carter rooms over and over and I'm not catching it because the dominant variant is still BA5 and BA4 and 5 are related enough to where BA4 would give me immunity to BA5. However, this is not going to last forever and my natural immunity will fade as will the variant itself and it will become something else and it's already in the process of doing that. So what about variants BQ1 and BQ1.1 that you may be hearing about? You might even be reading scare articles calling these the worst variants ever. Is it possible that we now have the worst variants of all as some media is reporting it. Answer, no. No. The worst two variants were the original and Delta, and it's not even close. There were other variants that could have been mad, but they couldn't spread. There were two variants that spread very rapidly. The first one, And then Delta, which beat the first one. And these were so bad because they spread quickly and they were very deadly. They were killing a ton of old people. They were killing a lot of middle-aged people. Those were the two big problem variants. Then Omicron came in 2022. And Omicron, while much more contagious, was so much milder and so much less deadly, 90% less deadly and probably much more than 90% less deadly in middle-aged people, that it was a whole different ballgame. So there's no way that any Omicron variant, and by the way, BQ1 and BQ1.1 are both Omicron variants. And in fact, they spawned from BA5. So they have some similarity to BA5, and it may be that if you had BA5 or BA4 already, that you are immune to BA or to BQ1 and BQ1.1. As of October 21st, BQ1 and BQ1.1 account for one-sixth of all COVID cases, new COVID cases, that is, in the country, whereas on October 14th, it was about 9%. So BA5 is being replaced. BA5 hung around for months, but it is finally starting to wane and soon enough it will be gone. So whenever these new variants take over, 
it's different than the way the new variants take over for other illnesses like the flu. The flu, basically, new variants take over when there's enough herd immunity to the current version of the flu and to where it has to mutate in order to spread again. That's not what's happening with BQ1 and BQ1.1. What COVID is doing is it's becoming more and more contagious each time, and whatever is the most contagious variant wins. So that's why a lot of these variants you heard about being potentially so terrible over the last two and a half years that never materialized. The problem was they were not contagious enough and just couldn't beat the existing COVID variant. So there really have only been a handful of changes in the dominant variant. There was the original, which then got beat by Delta, which then got beat by Omicron, which then got beat by Omicron BA2, which then got beat by Omicron BA4 and 5, which kind of showed up together. And then they hung around for a long time, mostly BA5. And then BQ1 and 1.1 are now beating BA4 and 5, but it takes a little time. But once they get going, once they start rising like this, it happens pretty quickly. So BA5's days are pretty numbered. And again, this isn't because of herd immunity to BA5. This is because... BQ1 and BQ1.1 are just more contagious and are beating BA4 and 5 as far as infecting people. And just like what happened with original COVID and with Delta, the newer variants that are more contagious just wipe them out. But if BQ1 and 1.1 are similar enough to BA5, then they're not the worst variant ever. And and there's no reports that these are more deadly. There are reports that they can be better at evading immunity and be better at evading the therapies that currently exist for COVID. But as far as deadliness, it seems about equivalent to BA5. So it's really not a lot to fear. And it's unlikely that we're going to suddenly get a really deadly COVID variant. Those seems to be behind us. The typical pattern of virus evolution is they get less and less deadly as they continue because they don't want to be deadly. These viruses, what they want to do is spread. They don't want to kill you. If they kill you, you can't spread it. The way viruses spread very well is when people can walk around and go places and spread it to other people. So if it gets you super sick, where as soon as you get it, you're confined to bed and can barely get up, then it's not a very good virus. That's why viruses like Ebola, which are super deadly, can't spread very well because people get it and they're debilitated. So what these viruses really want is that you can spread it and that you can spread it before you have symptoms. So viruses don't want their hosts to die. And that's why they tend to keep evolving to be less deadly. And that's what's happened here. Now, sometimes they can stay the same. That's why if you think about the flu evolving over the years, it's not like the flu has gotten less deadly. It it kind of is the same flu in some years. It's a little worse than others. But for the most part, it's the same thing. So we may have that for COVID. We may kind of have what we're seeing now as the permanent version of COVID as far as how sick it gets you. 
but I would not worry about another original or Delta type COVID showing up, which is just wiping people out. There's also some potential optimism that BQ1 and 1.1 are similar enough to BA5 that a previous BA5 infection and maybe even the bivalent vaccine will be good enough to allow you to be immune to it. That maybe what worked for BA5 will work for BA1 and 1.1. That would be great. But that's not known yet. Europe is ahead of us, so they are already seeing BQ1 and 1.1 become more dominant there than it is here. And what is good about that is that we can see here what's happening. And as I said, it's not more deadly. It's not anything worse than BA5. They're just noticing that it is better than BA5 at evading immunity and evading therapies. So that's why they're saying, oh, worst variant ever. But that's irresponsible to put that. How can you say that? How can you say it's the worst variant ever when it's still 90% less deadly than Delta? If we're going to talk about the worst one ever, independent of whether we had vaccines or not, that would be Delta because Delta was a little more dangerous, a little more deadly than the original, and it was much more contagious. The only good side is we had vaccines at that point and anyone can get them. So if you wanted a vaccine when Delta was there, you could get the vaccine. And that really lowered your chance of dying from it. I I know a lot of people are anti-vaccine and say it's terrible and say it's killing people. And a lot of that is exaggerated or BS. I do think that the super pro-vax people are also spreading BS, claiming that it's super safe, claiming that any statements that it harms people are false. Like There's a lot of denial that the vaccine has caused harm. It has caused some harm, and it's caused more harm than originally believed, but it has still caused far less harm than it helped, especially for people over 45. There's no question that the probability of the vaccine hurting you if you're 45 plus, even today with Omicron, is much less than the vaccine helping you. The real argument as far as not getting the vaccine is for younger people and kids. But if you're 45 plus, even now, you're better off getting it than not getting it. However, it is a reasonable choice not to get it if you are not in the subgroup that is really vulnerable to death or severe illness from Omicron. And especially if you've had Omicron, as I said, since uh, June, then you especially don't need it. That's why I'm not getting that vaccine. I don't need it. I had the real thing in June. And whether I get it eventually again is in question. I may never get another one because I get very sick from them and it's really starting to not be worth it. Yet if I got no illness from the vaccine, I'd probably be doing it uh, whenever I could because, you know, it's not really any trouble. But for me, I have to block off my schedule and say, okay, next three days, don't count on me for anything. I can't do anything. I, I, I can't make appointments for anything. I can't see anybody. I can't do anything. I can't drive anywhere. I basically have to block off those days because I'm going to be sick. So it sucks. I'm, I'm tired of doing it. So I'm not getting that vaccine 
But then again, I had real COVID in June. If I didn't have COVID in June, and if I had no COVID yet, and there was a vaccine that could take on BA4 and 5, then I might consider it. But I'd want to know first if it could fight BQ1 and 1.1, because soon enough, BA4 and 5 will be gone. So that's why I suggest if you do want to take this bivalent vaccine, I would probably wait with it until you can see whether it is effective against BQ1 and 1.1. If it's only going to work against BA4 and 5 well, then that's not helpful. They're going to be gone pretty soon. Now, if you don't get any side effects in the vaccine or if it's very minor, then go ahead and do it because you'll still get some benefit from it. But if you're like me and get very sick from it, then I would suggest waiting and seeing what it does against these new variants. Reuters put out an article. This is pretty recent. This is like a day or two ago. There is no evidence yet that BQ1 is linked with increased severity compared with the circulating Omicron variants BA4 and 5, European officials said but warned it may evade some immune protection citing laboratory studies in Asia. Okay, you know what that means right there? When they say there's no evidence that it's worse when they've had this for a little while there in Europe, that means it's not worse. They'd know if it was worse. They would suddenly see that people getting BQ1 and 1.1, that there's a lot of new people entering hospitals and dying. And if with the time they've had with it already in Europe, they're seeing that it's no worse than BQ, BA4 and 5, then it's not. <laughs> and there's our answer right there. You know, if, if Reuters is saying this, you know that's true. This isn't like some right-wing site trying to downplay COVID. This is Reuters. So if Reuters is admitting this when they really want you to be concerned over COVID, and even they're admitting that it's not worse, then it's not worse. In fact, it could even be more mild. I don't know but it's definitely not worse. Gregory Poland at the Mayo Clinic said these variants BQ1 and 1.1 can quite possibly lead to a very bad surge of illness this winter in the U.S. as it's already starting to happen in Europe and the U.K. They're always trying to look at the glass half-empty view of this whole thing. And it's kind of annoying. They're constantly trying to find a reason to incite panic. Well, you know, it's not worse than Omicron in severity. And, you know, it maybe you are immune to it anyway if you've had BA4 and 5 over the summer. And maybe the bivalent vaccines work against it. But, you know, the winter's coming and we might see a bad surge of cases, guys. You better watch out. Worst variant ever. Like, it's really lame. Why can't they just be honest and say, okay, you know, we're we're probably going to be seeing this happen for the foreseeable future. That every few months it's going to evolve again and it's going to sometimes be very closely related to what it was before and sometimes it won't be. And if it's not, then it'll probably evade vaccines and previous immunity if it's been a while since you had COVID. So then you should decide what you want to do based on your own personal situation with getting a vaccine. That should be the advice. There shouldn't be these panic-inducing statements from the Mayo Clinic or others who just really, really want you to constantly, constantly be on edge about COVID. But I feel like there's two 
dueling sides to this, one which wants to pretend COVID was never a big deal and one which wants to pretend it's always going to be a big deal. If you want to have some fun, try asking someone who's on the left who's always been like a big uh, COVID is horrible, COVID is the end of everything type of person and who still wears their mask everywhere and all that. Ask them what percentage Omicron kills compared to Delta. Ask them in 2022, in October 2022, how likely are you to die from COVID compared to October 2021, if you catch it? See what they say. They're not going to say 10%, but the answer is 10%. The answer is almost surely below 10%. In fact, maybe much, much lower. It could be something like 1% if you are middle-aged. Information we can't even get anymore. But see... A lot of the left doesn't want this known because unfortunately there's been a lot of policy built around COVID. There's been a lot of policy and elections that depend upon people believing that the right is irresponsible about COVID. And some of the right was irresponsible about COVID. I mean, that's not all false, but because COVID itself changed, that by default changed it to where the right is a lot more correct about COVID presently than the left is. And I'll have these discussions with people who will say, oh, the right did this, the right did that. And I say, okay, but that's about 2020 and 2021. And I agree there's some mistakes on the right there. And I called them out at the time. But okay, let's get to the present. Should we be that worried about Omicron if you're not really old? Well, no, but blah, blah, blah. I go, well, okay, there you go. The past is the past. We're, we're already not there anymore. Delta and original are gone. That's something else a lot of people don't know. Ask the average person, does Delta still exist? Can you still catch Delta? Can you still catch original COVID? A lot would say yes. I have people asking me all the time when they have COVID, is this Omicron? I say yes. Well, how do you know? Because that's all that's there right now. Like, that's how I know. I don't know exactly which variant you have, especially today when we have a, a sixth of the cases being these new variants. But I think it's almost 100%. In fact, it is 100% that it's Omicron. And up until these new variants showing up over the summer and early fall, it was almost all BA5. I know a lot of people don't follow all this, and that's fine, but... If you're going to have an opinion about COVID, you do have to keep up on the latest news. If you have a 2021 opinion on 2022 COVID, then your opinion is invalid and does not matter. That's a fact. Bottom line is here, there's new variants coming, but... You may be protected from them anyway if you had previous COVID recently. And the bivalent vaccine may or may not work against them. You should probably wait. And no matter what the media says, don't worry about BA or BQ1 and 1.1. That's just more of the same thing. It's more of the same old Omicron we've gotten used to throughout 2022. 
Omicron was a tremendous break for humanity in 2022. And it showed up right at the end of December. So really, 2022 is the year of Omicron. There was a little delta left in January at the beginning, but for the most part, if you got COVID in 2022, it was Omicron. And there's a tremendous difference, a tremendous difference in the danger to you, no matter what your age is. And that's what I was hoping to see happen. That's what I was waiting for. I gave up a long time ago on COVID just disappearing. I was just hoping, can it become something that's more flu-like or more, more cold-like? And okay, that's what we got. Great. Great. That's the best we could have hoped for. Once it was clear it wasn't going away, that was the best we could have hoped for. What would have sucked is if we had variant after variant that were like Delta. And that it took a long time to get weaker. The fact that we had this abrupt transition from the deadliest version of it that was spreading a lot, Delta, into something much, much milder, even if more contagious, that was something that was excellent. That was what we wanted. That was what we were waiting for. And that hasn't gotten enough play in the media. We should be thanking our lucky stars that we got Omicron and that it wiped out the real problematic variants. Because we knew at the end of 2021 it wasn't going to go away. So what was the best we could hope for? Something much more mild. Something that resembled the flu. Well, we got it. Here it is. So don't panic. Don't worry. You know all those right-wingers who were in denial who were saying it's just the flu? Well, guess what? Right now, it's kind of just the flu. (laughs) The disease molded itself to fit the narrative. What was incorrect in 2020 and 21 is now correct, what the right was saying. And the left can't update their thinking. Sorry, but that's, that's what it is. I'm not saying you want it. I'm not saying it won't damage you. There's a small chance that it could. But there's a small chance the flu could, too. Now, I know COVID is something that is more likely at the moment to cause permanent damage than the flu. The flu is pretty well known to not cause permanent damage among people who aren't very old, that if you get past it, you tend to fully recover. And COVID, there could be a lot of long-term effects from it. But if this is something that's going to be very contagious and you're going to keep getting every so often, then so be it. And that's part of life. And if it does cause issues later on, then that's just something we have to deal with until maybe there's therapy for these issues that you could take to uh, reverse damage or prevent it or whatever. But at this point, you really shouldn't be bending over backwards to avoid it unless you're in a very vulnerable category. I want to finish off the show by wishing Brandon well. This has not been made public, but I'm going to make it public right here with his permission. Brandon, who dodged COVID despite exposure to me when I had it and was contagious and exposure to his friend Jeannie. In fact, even more exposure to her. He was actually in a car with her for a long time and uh, she had it and was very contagious. And somehow he didn't get it from her or from me. But Brandon's luck finally ran out and he caught COVID last week and he currently 
has COVID right now as I speak. And it's been tougher on him than it was on me. The COVID I had was very mild and cold-like. Unfortunately for Brandon, he has had a number of symptoms. He's had the fever. He has had some stomach ailments. He's had some congestion and a cough. And he has lost smell and taste, which isn't all that common with Omicron. Happens to about 12% of people. However, it did happen to Benjamin's mom as well when she had it over the summer. Her loss of smell and taste lasted for about a week and a half and then pretty abruptly returned. And now it's fully back. It was fully back uh, within about two days when it started to get better. But she did have about a week and a half with uh, no smell and taste. And that is where Brandon currently stands. Fortunately, Brandon has been improving a lot that other than the smell and taste, which is still gone, he's mostly better at this point. He said he has congestion. So if you have a way to contact him, then you can wish him well. I'm sure he will appreciate it. He is mostly better, just waiting for the uh, smell and taste to come back and the congestion to go away, but he's definitely uh, on the trajectory to be better soon, which is nice to hear. He said it was pretty tough. He was uh, struggling uh, at one point. He was never in danger. He was never thinking he's going to have to go to the hospital, but he told me it's very unpleasant and that he classifies it as kind of like a moderate case. So that's kind of unfortunate. And that's an example of why you don't just completely dismiss it as nothing. Because, like, for Brandon, it hasn't been nothing. It's probably not going to damage him, but, you know, he has no smell and taste at the moment, and he had an unpleasant week here. Well, I realized I made a stupid mistake. If you tried to call into the show, I apologize. I accidentally did not turn the phones on for this show, and that's why I did not get any calls during the show. (laughs) Whoops. Let's try to at least throw somebody on here before we conclude. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, thank you for letting me know that I never turned on the phones. I mean, you didn't know that, but you said you tried to call in and couldn't that's because I didn't turn on the phone so that uh, would explain the poor response I got tonight from anything I said I got texts I just wasn't getting phone calls and sometimes people don't call but I, they couldn't call so that's why I had the phones off better late than never yeah I figured you were just going to move it to tonight or something I passed out uh, probably around 10-ish last night and then I just happened to go on now to see oh the show's going <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's good. Uh, I I meant to call you, and then I, I was about to end it anyway, and then I, I I also didn't notice I didn't have the phones on, so I kind of thought you might call in, and oh well. Yeah, no, all good, <laughs> all good. <laughs> well, uh, Trader Risky, have you had COVID yet? I'm trying to remember. I was. That's why I called. I'm the last person on earth to not get it. Wow. So I'm still avoiding it. I don't care how mild some people react to it. I'm, you know, now it's such a game for me. You know, <laughs> you just you want to be the very last guy to be COVID free, and 
Brandon, uh, he was he held that title for a while, but yeah, he finally got him, and you and he both saw me, and we were indoors and everything for quite some time on a night when I was definitely contagious and didn't know I had it yet, and you both dodged it, and the only one that got it there was Matt the Rat, but it may not have been for me because he was playing at the World Series just as much as I was, and that's where I got it, so there's a pretty good chance that he got it from there and not for me, but he also could have gotten it for me. I don't know. But you two did not. And I, I was glad. I would have felt bad if, if yeah. all three of you got it. No, surprise Brandon got it. It looked like he was exposed so much. I figured he was just one of these people that had a certain blood type or, or luck or combination of both that would yeah. never get it. But That's now pretty... he got it. So That's... I did get that updated vaccine for the variants. <clears throat> that one kicked my ass. Oh, really? So that was worse yeah. on that was worse I mean, on It didn't you. kick my ass too much. But, yeah, just was tired. You know, kind of went to bed early that night. Woke up feeling just a little lagging for the next few days. Um, yeah, but hopefully, who knows? Hopefully, I feel... Uh, hopefully, it'll continue to stave off whatever comes next. Yeah, it's possible. As I was saying, it's possible this works against the new uh, two variants, BQ1 and 1.1, which, you know, by November, that that's going to be the dominant, maybe not November 1st, but by in, once we're into November, like mid-November, those should be the main variants. And probably by the end of November, it's it, it's going to be just those. So we'll see if your new vaccine is effective against it. And if it is, then you, you're you going to have a pretty good chance of continuing this streak. Otherwise, uh, they may finally come get you. You may you may have your, rec run, your luck run out with COVID. True. But I could, too. I, since it's been four and a half months from me, it, it wouldn't be sh- shocking if I were to get this again, especially since I've been going to card rooms. But... I've just taken the approach now that since it's unlikely to do anything that bad to me, that I just am not going to hide from it anymore. I'm just going to go do what I'm going to do, and I, I'll play the 2023 World Series and all that. And, you know, if I get it, I get it. And hopefully if I do get it, it'll be like it was the first time. But with uh, with Benjamin, he had it twice this year. And his second one was much more intense than the first. It was shorter lasting, but it was much worse in severity. He had a very bad stomach sickness and a 104 fever, whereas the first one was very mild. So that could happen to me, too, where I get a different variant or maybe one not as close to when I took the vaccine. And maybe I'll get the 104 fever. So I don't know. But I get a 103 nice. fever. I get a 103 fever from taking the uh, the vaccine, so... I mean, it's it's hard to get myself to do that. Right. Now, Truff, I was just reading through the agenda. Now, Lyman sucked into this thing? Uh, he stuck himself into it. He is... Uh, he he's it. Not, there's no accusations against him other than being a douchebag. No, no, no. That's that's pretty much it, being a douchebag. But, yeah, he, right. he, he doesn't like Ryan Feldman, and, and he was implying in a post that uh, Nick Fertucci threatened either him or somebody else because someone posted that out alleging that Nick Vertucci had threatened a former owner of the bike and that now that person is afraid to ever talk about him and and then Lyman wrote this is all true so he didn't say if it's him or another former owner there were several owners there 
But I, I think it might be him he's referring to that he's trying to say that Vertucci threatened him. But as I said, Lyman is not an unbiased party. He had a very bad uh, ending with Live at the Bike and with that whole crowd there. So you have to take anything he says with a grain of salt. But he's objecting. He's injecting himself into it. He's not uh, accused of doing anything wrong regarding any kind of cheating. Got it. All right, I'm going to listen up. Um, yeah, I will listen up. You mean you're, you're going now? No, I'm just saying I'm going to listen to the recording. Well, oh. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you don't want to go too much longer. But, oh, okay, uh, okay. Well, yeah, no, we're, we're, know, about to, we're about to shut it down here, and uh, the archives will be up uh, sometime later. I don't have the energy to do it right now, and I, I have stuff I have to do this morning. This actually wasn't the best night to do the show. I was happy I waited until Sunday, though, so we could talk about uh, Robbie Jade Lou on uh, Raiders TV. You saw that, right? Yeah, I saw I saw the tweet about that. Um, <laughs> that was funny. But I am five and zero in my football pool because there's a bonus every week to go six and zero, and I got the uh, oh. Patriots minus eight tonight. So you know, and I pulled in first place for the season. So I've been oh. uh, just watching a lot of TV. You know what, uh, Trader Risky? I have been betting on the NFL this year, and I've done very well so far. I got off to awesome. a, an eighteen and t- eighteen two and one start, which was amazing. Wow! And yeah. some some of these were with uh, underdogs too, like where I wasn't doing the point spread; I was just doing a money line with with a, an underdog line. That's even harder to win. Eighteen two and one start. Then uh, I went four and four in the next ones. Uh, some, but all the losses were close. I like the ones I was losing were not blowout losses. These were ones which could have gone either way and just fell the wrong mm-hmm. way. And then uh, this weekend I went three and one, and the only one I lost was the Jacksonville game today, and that was uh, winning in in the uh, later part of the fourth quarter, and they made a stupid decision, and uh, it ended up with the Giants scoring a touchdown, and I lost that one. But uh, you know, again, I I was right in line to win that too, and the other three easily won, including the Seahawks plus one ninety five and the L A Chargers are a very overrated team, and I'm enjoying fading them, even though I got screwed last week because the Broncos are terrible. But uh, yeah. but the I'll tell you, the Chargers, they were 4-2 and two coming in, and they were 4-2 and two because, for the most part, they've played shit teams. Like, look at their schedule. You'll see they've played really shit teams, and they've uh, they're just very overrated. They, that uh, This is a team that is not good. And for whatever reason, the books still think they are good. <laughs> they they keep going down as favorites. So I go, I, I was the the Seahawks were actually underrated, and I said, oh, I to get one one ninety five on them plus one ninety five on yeah. them. So I took it. They easily won, and they even yeah. won with with their uh, wide receiver getting hurt in the first quarter. They still managed to win the game easily. So I was proud of that pick. I had two unders that easily won. So another good NFL day. Uh, I've tried betting college, and that hasn't gone as well. I'm I'm a little bit down in college, and I'm off to a bad start in the NBA, like four and eight. So that mm-hmm. that that could be going better. But the NFL, I'm proud of. I've, in my first season betting NFL, I'm I'm really uh, doing well here. So I'm glad you're doing well too on your uh, your contest there. Yeah, no, it's been. I'm 31 and 10 this year. 
And yesterday I had the Jets, the Commanders, and Tennessee Titans. It's funny. I was yeah. so close to, to uh, the Commanders, which I, I, don't, I don't consider the Commanders. I still see them as Redskins. But <laughs> uh, I, I, I was just about to do that, but I, I just... I just think they kind of suck. I couldn't bring myself to bet them. That was, I, I I was really close to hitting that button for the Commanders, and it was a close game. So it, it like, even though it would have won for me, I, I uh, it wasn't one of these things where I felt stupid for not betting it. But yeah, I, I just thought they and sucked. It too wasn't much. looking good there for a minute. Yeah, when they came back. No, so. I'm, I'm glad it. I'm glad it came through. I, I'll be honest that like when I don't pick something that I was about to pick, I kind of root for it to lose, but then part of me says, well, I still shouldn't root for it to lose, because that will mean that uh, I had the wrong feeling on it, and if I almost bet this, then it might mean that I'm the worse than I think I am at this, so may- maybe I should be happy when Wednesday I almost pick win. Right. Uh, so, But then I, at the same time, I, I kind of also pat myself on the back for not doing it and say, ah, see, I was smart to stay away because I, I just ended up losing. So it, it's like a mixed feeling when I watch these games that and look at the results of ones that I was considering. But I was very strongly considering that one. And when I'm going well, it's when I can see that like when, when the ones I'm winning with are winning by a lot and the ones I'm losing with are close, then I know I'm doing things right. When mm-hmm. I, if I have a good record, but I'm just squeaking by with barely winning everything, then really I'm just getting lucky there that it's falling on the right side. But when, I, right. when I'm getting big wins, that's what I've been having here. If you, not only do I have a great record in NFL so far, but most of the wins have easily done it, and and almost all the losses have been close. So that is something that I'm proud of so far. But I will say this year has been an easier year so far because there are some clear overrated and underrated teams, and there's been uh, some teams that just have a very hard time scoring, so you can bet unders on them. So a lot of the sharp NFL bettors have done very well this year, and there's a lot of poker players reporting, wow, look how well I'm doing in the NFL this year. <laughs> I, I know that so far this hasn't been a typical year this way, and uh, sometimes... You, you think you've done everything right and you end up losing and it just keeps happening over and over. So, yep. I will see. I, I know in short term anything can happen and I'm just happy with the start I've gotten so far with this of, and uh, continued this week. So if you guys want nice. to see my picks, I make them public. Uh, I'm not just uh, you know, making this up to sound good. You can see on the Flying Stupidity Forum there's a very long thread called the Flying Stupidity Wagering Thread. But it's very easy. You just go to the very last page, and you'll see the current stuff. The The past doesn't matter. But if you want to see the past, you can scroll back to other pages, and you will see all my picks that are all posted before game time. So you will – and the people watch that thread. So if I were to change picks after the fact, I would get caught, and it would be very embarrassing. So I, I'm posting and leaving up every pick that I make, even ones that – sometimes I'll make a pick and then not bet it yet, and then I'll change my mind and and – it still counts as a pick. It's, I still count it in my record, even if in real money I'm not betting it. But almost every one of those I actually bet. And uh, you can see. And, and you can see the NFL picks were all made before game time, and they, they've overwhelmingly won so far. So if you want to uh, go with these. Like, we have a, a radio listener and forum poster named Country978. He's donated to the free roll before. And he 
actually changed two of his picks. I think it was last week. And he was going to not only not pick the ones I did initially, he was going to go against them and then saw I went the opposite side and switched them to what I did. And they both won. So he was very happy about that. And I, I was happy, especially that it landed that way. I would have felt bad if he reversed his picks to go with me and then lost. But fortunately, it went the right way there. But yeah, at the moment, I've been hot with this. I don't know how long it's going to last. I thought maybe it was over because I would, I went into the little 4-4 uh, four and four mediocre streak. But, I, you know, I was losing. The ones I was losing were very close, so I wasn't that worried. Anyway, thank you for joining us at the end here, Trader Ruski. And yeah, this ended up being a long show because I had Robbie J. Lou stuff to talk about. Plus, I, I did all these pending topics. I got through all of them. Someone wanted Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history this week, but I said, yeah, I can't do that this week. It's just it's too much. Too much to do. Maybe I'll get it into next week. Now that we've caught up with everything, and I think the Robbie news is going to decline every week. So maybe next week I'll have time to do a... Uh, Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history segment. And I guess that's it. You know, it's a sign of the year getting later as I actually have the heat on as I'm doing this show. I haven't had the heat on during this show in a long time. But it is kind of cool outside right now, and this room's kind of getting cold, so I, I turn the heat on. And when we look in uh, for the next show drop, are you try to get back on track on Fridays? Oh, or? yeah, shit. Uh, well... Let me think here. Next week is a little bit funny. I gotta, let me look at the calendar. That's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, I can't do Friday because, you know, it's Monday morning right now. There's not going to be that much to say on Friday. Uh, but then... Ugh. It's a tough week the next week. If that would be more convenient to do Friday, it's just too soon. Uh... Well, the stuff you didn't go over, you can tell your Vegas uh, story. I know, but you know, doing this takes a lot out of me. Like, if I, if I was forced to do this every day, I'd be miserable. Like, I enjoy doing the show, but then after I'm done with it, I think like I don't want to do this again all that soon. <laughs> I think like I kind of need to recover. My voice needs to recover, and uh, you know, it's work preparing this whole thing, and it, it's it's one of these things that. Like, like some of you may not think about, there, there's more than just even the time I spend talking on here. There's the editing of the show afterwards. There's the preparation, and it's like, like a lot of stuff. Like I, the reason I have all this stuff to talk about is because I go through all these stories and decide what there is to discuss, and I have to learn about it to talk about it myself. And yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot here, so. There's, there's only so much I can do. We got it. All right, whenever you do it. Yeah, no, I'm Keep just trying. I, next it, Monday's Halloween. It, it's a good question. Uh, I'm kind of thinking it's probably going to be more than a week until the next show because Sunday the 30th probably is not a good day. But maybe, maybe Sunday the 30th is when I can do it. Maybe I can start earlier. That that might be what I have to do. I, I have some things to do that weekend is the problem. But I might be if I could start earlier on Sunday. Or not that weekend, I mean like that Monday. That's the problem. Uh, okay, well I I'll try to squeeze this in. I'll try to get one more show in October. 
but no promises. Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. I do appreciate those that have uh, been enjoying this show. And thank you for calling in, Trader Ruski, and next time I'll try to remember to leave the phones on the whole time. Okay, brother. Okay. Have a good week, and we'll talk later. You too, Trader Ruski. Good morning. Well, we got another show in the books. You know, uh, there's so much contention on poker Twitter. That's kind of what I thought this week, is I'm just, like, reading all these people argue with each other and that whole Alex Jacob thing. There's just a lot of people that argue on poker Twitter. And now, like, there's all these factions that have developed. It's, it's not quite what it used to be. You're going to have factions of people that don't like each other anymore. And that look for any opportunity to say bad things about each other. In some ways, it's interesting. But in other ways, it's kind of stressful to read. Like, when there's drama, it's good for this show as far as stuff to talk about. But, like, as I get older, I find myself less and less inclined to throw myself into it and really get involved. I'm talking about the drama stuff, like the the cheating stuff, the scamming stuff. I, I throw myself into that because I feel like I have a lot of expertise in that area. And I can provide something to the conversation. But just the arguing and the drama, I just, I've just i been less and less inclined to get involved and throw myself in. So there is a lot of toxicity in poker Twitter. And this Robbie Jade Lou situation has only increased that. But there's been other things this year, too. Or you could just tune all that out and eat dog food and become a better poker player. That's the Nick Howard solution. Don't discount that all right, well, we're approaching 6 in the morning. I think it's a good time to hit the shutdown button here. Thank you for listening, everybody. And as always, Shalom. <laughs>